A bruised face, a mat of greasy hair, a thin body shaking and shaking inside a sackcloth dress. Hester was astonished at the flood of pity she felt as she watched Lady Naga come creeping down the humbug's companion ladder. She's not much older than Wren, she thought, and for a moment she wanted to rush forward and hug the poor frightened creature and comfort her and tell her that she was safe now. But she wasn't safe, not yet, and anyway, she would not have wanted to be hugged. She seemed as scared of Hester as she was of Varley. When Varley shoved her forward and said, This nice lady's come to buy you, she hung back and let out a whine like a scared animal. Hester, in her black coat and her black veil, looked like the goddess of death. You're Lady Naga? she asked. Inoni, said the young woman, blinking fearfully at her. Her glasses were held together by bandages, and one of the lenses was cracked. "'Course she's Lady Bleeding Naga,' crowed Varley. "'Look at her signet ring, and that Zagwan pendant thing. They're extra, by the way. Now, go and get me the rest of my money.' Hester nodded and glanced past him, judging the distance between herself and the man with the spear gun at the bulkhead door. She turned back to the wall, one hand moving slowly to the knife inside her coat, and saw out of the corner of her eye the baby reached toward the pile of money-bags on Varley's table. What happened next happened very slowly, but not slowly enough that she had time to stop it. The child's fat hand grabbed the bag. The bag fell. The bag burst. Across the deck at Varley's feet, there went scattering a storm of nuts and washers. Varley, realizing he'd been tricked, let out a yell. Hester snatched her knife and threw it underarm at the man on the door, hitting him in the throat. His spear gun went off as he fell, but the spear went high, passing over Hester's head. She heard it thud into the bulkhead above her. Mrs. Varley was screaming. The baby howled. Something struck Hester, a sudden stunning blow on the top of her head. A flash of purple light went off inside her skull. She cursed and tried to turn, confused, imagining someone had gotten behind her. Things were falling all around her, punching her shoulders, thumping on the deck. She went down on her knees among them and saw that they were books. The dead man's spear gun had detached one of Varley's homemade bookshelves from the wall, and it had struck her as it fell. It was a stupid sort of injury— but that didn't make it any less serious. The spilled books seemed to whirl around her. Dodgy dealing for beginners. Investing in people. Make your fortune on the bird roads and survive to spend it. She felt sure she was going to be sick. Varley had an arm around Inoni's throat. Come on, lads, he shouted. Get her, get her. Hester remembered the men outside. Squinting with the pain in her head, she tried to stand up. Footsteps shook the gondola as the heavies from the mooring strut came aboard. Hester reached into her pocket and tugged out her pistol, shooting them one at a time as they came barging through the cabin door. The gas pistol made soft coughing sounds that she hoped would not be heard out on the main street. The men fell on top of the body of their friend, and one of them kept struggling, so she shot him again. She could feel blood running down her face, she swung the gun toward Varley, but fainted before she could pull the trigger. 
The next thing she knew, the merchant was wrenching the gun out of her hand. He had a stupid, mad grin, and his nostrils kept flaring. He pulled down Hester's veil, and his grin grew even wider, as if her ugliness was some sort of victory for him. He spat in her face. Well, he said. He put down the gun, a dangerous thing to use on board your own airship, and pulled a knife out of his belt. Nobody's gonna miss you. He looked surprised when his wife picked up the gun and shot him. It seemed to take him a moment to understand that he'd been killed. His grin faded slowly, and he sank down on his knees beside Hester and bowed his head and stayed there, kneeling, dead. Oh, God, murmured Inoni. Mrs. Varley lowered the gun. She was shaking. The baby howled and howled. Inoni scrambled across the cabin and helped Hester to her feet. You'd better go now, said Mrs. Varley. She pulled a diaper down from one of the lines and started scooping the gold into it. Hester touched the searing, throbbing place where the shelf had hit her, and her hand came away wet and red. She felt drunk. She held on to Inoni for support and said, We came to rescue you, me and Shrike. Mr. Shrike, he's here. Theo, too. There's a ship waiting. With Inoni's help, she started limping toward the exit hatch, which seemed suddenly to be miles away. Gods, it hurts, she grumbled. Somehow they reached the top of the gangplank. Out on the docking strut, a man was waiting. He was all alone. He had probably heard that last shot. The wind flapped his long blue greatcoat open, and moonlight shone on the hilt of the heavy sabre in his belt. Hester groaned, nauseous and weary. She had no strength left to fight him with. Lady Naga, said the stranger, I'm just in time, I see. Inoni cringed against Hester as the stranger walked toward her, putting one booted foot on the gangplank. In the dim light from the humbug's hatchway, his face looked stern, but not unkind. He held out a hand. I am Kriegsmarschall von Kobold. You must come with me to Murnau. Quickly, please. Hester gripped the gangplank rail and glared at him. You'll have to get past me first. Von Kobold looked respectfully at her. Her scarred face did not shock him, nor did the blood that matted her hair and dripped from her chin. He gave her a little bow. Forgive me, young woman, but that does not seem too great a challenge. I take it you are an agent of the storm, come to free your empress? Even if you were not wounded, you could never get her away from here. A dozen cities stand between you and your own territory and not all of their leaders are as understanding as I. Come with me to Murnau, and I shall find a way to send you and your mistress home to General Naga. A blurt of noise from the docking ring made him look around. Someone was shouting. Running figures showed against the lighted windows of an all-night kaplunk parlor. We have to trust him, whispered Inoni, and helped Hester down the gangplank. But by the time they reached von Kobold, it was too late. The deck plates were thrumming with the stamp of booted feet. Along the strut toward them came six red-coated men with drawn swords, 
and behind them, urging them on, the podgy, hopping shape of Nimrod Pennyroyal. There they are, Pennyroyal shouted. They're escaping. Stop them. Who are you? barked Kriegsmarshal von Kobold, in such a military voice that the men stopped short. Up on the main street, passers-by began to gather at an observation platform to see what was happening down on Strut 13. We, sir, are officers of the Manchester Civic Guard, said the tallest and most sober of the newcomers. We have been informed that a dangerous mossy is concealed aboard this airship. Blimey, said one of his comrades, pointing. It's her, Naga's wife, just like the old man said. What, in that get-up? asked another. It's her. I seen a picture in the evening news, blimey. You're under arrest, said the leader, striding toward Inoni. Stand back, sir, snapped von Kobold, and drew his sabre. The lady is my prisoner, and I will not deliver her into the hands of your warmongering mare. Now, steady on, called Penny Royal, who didn't want a squabble between Murnau and Manchester to ruin his chance of some favourable headlines. But before he could say more, the light of a flashbulb blinded him. A small man in formal robes walked out onto the increasingly crowded strut. There was a girl behind him fumbling a new flashbulb into place on the top of her camera. Mr. Penny Royal, the newcomer called out pleasantly. Samford Sparney of the Probe. Been looking for you everywhere. Do you have any message for your many disappointed fans? His voice was affable and faintly snide. It faded into silence as he saw the Mancunians with their drawn swords, von Cobalt with his sabre, and Inoni supporting Hester, who had crumpled to her knees at the foot of the humbug's gangplank. I say, he murmured excitedly, what's all this? but the leader of the Mancunians was tired of talking. He raised his sword and tried to barge past von Kobold, but the Kriegsmarschall barred his way. Sparks flew as their swords met, directly contravening Airhaven's strict fire prevention laws. Up on the main street, people screamed. The Manchester swordsman screamed too, stumbling away with blood running down his arm. Von Kobold turned to face the others. Defend yourselves, he shouted and most of them started to edge back, frightened of this fierce old soldier who seemed ready to take on five of them at once. Only one held his ground. He was a young man, red-cheeked and running to fat. In addition to his uniform sword, he had a revolver. He pointed it straight at von Kobold and fired twice. Theo, waiting aboard the shadow aspect, heard the shots. He ran to the hatch. He tried to tell himself that those bangs had not been gunfire, but he knew that they had, and he knew that they had come from the direction of Strut 13. An alarm bell began to jangle. Theo jumped down onto the mooring strut and started to run toward the docking ring. A squad of men in the sky-blue uniforms of Airhaven were storming down a stairway from the main street, crossbows held ready. From a docking pan near the town hall, a red firefighting dirigible was lifting off, ready to train her hoses on any blaze that broke out. Theo stood helpless, halfway between the shadow aspect and the docking ring. What could he do? How could he help? A horrified scream reached him, blowing on the wind. Another. More shots. 
he turned and went hammering back to the shadow. As Kriegsmarschall von Kobold fell, the man who'd shot him sprang forward, reaching for Lady Naga. Hester heaved herself up to face him, and suddenly, although she had done no more than glare at him, he dropped his gun and shouted, Yah! Looking down, Hester saw the sharp blades that had been driven up through the deck from beneath. There were five of them, and two had gone through the Mancunian's boot and through the foot inside it. He screamed again, wrenching himself free, and the blades slid back through the deck, leaving ragged holes. Get this, Miss Kropotkin, Spiny was ordering his photographer. The deck plate heaved, an armoured fist punched up through the key from beneath, clawed fingers widened the hole, and Shrike scrambled out. He flared with light as another flashbulb fired, silvering his armour, his fingertips, and his gruesome metal grin. Stalker! screamed the Mancunian gunman, trying to hop away. Shrike picked him up and flung him off the edge of the strut. He flailed at the empty air for a moment and then fell with a terrible shriek and landed, bouncing, in the safety net. Shrike hurled one of his friends after him. The rest turned to run and collided with the first squad of Airhaven militia arriving from the main street. Hester fainted again and fell down on the hard key, waking a few seconds later when the Airhaven fireboat swung overhead, dousing everyone with freezing water. There seemed a general belief that whole squads of stalkers had been landed on Strut 13. Dozens of alarm bells were ringing, making horrid discords. At the end of the strut, the Mancunians were fighting with the Airhaven men, who had somehow got the idea that they were Green Storm Raiders in disguise. No, 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 Penny Royal was yelling. Below the strut, the Mancunians that Shrike had thrown off it were scrambling up the mesh of the safety net to the neighbouring quay, where aviators from a Florentine highliner leaned out to haul them to safety. Below that, dark against the cloud layer, the plump shape of an airship moved, rising upward. The Jenny Hanover, said Hester, looking down at it through the holes in the deck plate. Then she realized that it couldn't be. It wasn't Tom coming to rescue her this time, but Theo, in the shadow aspect. Shrike had seen it too, or heard the mutter of its engines. He picked Inoni up under one arm, as if she were a parcel. He turned and reached for Hester, but Hester was dragging herself away from him toward von Kobold. In the scrum at the far end of the strut, one of the Mancunians was yelling, It was Penny Royal! Penny Royal lured us here, into the claws of the storm stalkers! That's not true! Penny Royal shouted, skipping backward as an airhaven soldier made a grab at him. I'm the victim here! What about my money? The shadow aspect came up like a surfacing wail at the end of strut 13. Hester saw Theo inside the gondola as she turned von Kobold over. The fat Mancunian's gun had made two charred holes in the front of von Kobold's coat. But he was only winded. Beneath his coat she saw the dull sheen of old tech body armor. He raised a hand to cup her face. They breed you brave in the green storm's lands, he whispered. I'm not, said Hester but there wasn't time to explain. Tell Naga 
that not all of us want this war, she heard von Kobold say. Then she passed out, and Shrike swept her up and loped toward the shadow with the bolts from Airhaven crossbows rattling against his armoured back. Penny Royal scurried away from the scrum of men at the end of the strut and ran into Spiny. The journalist had been directing Miss Kropotkin while she took the pictures that would appear on the front of the next day's papers beneath the headline, Manchester Men Battle Bravely Against Naga's Raiders. He flung himself at Penny Royal with a vulpine grin. What's your part in all this, then, Nimrod? How long have you been working for the Green Storm? Penny Royal shoved him aside. An airship was manoeuvring away from the strut with a deafening howl of engines, and he had a sudden, terrible fear that it was the humbug taking off with his gold still aboard. What about my money? he shouted at it. How much have they paid you, Penny Royal? called Spiny, stepping into his path again and flapping at Miss Kropotkin to bring her camera. Penny Royal gave a feeble roar of rage and pushed Spiny hard with both hands. Spiny fought back, flailing at Penny Royal's face, grabbing him by the collar. So much was happening on Strut 13 that no one saw the two writers stumble across the quay and plunge off the edge. Their screams harmonized for a brief moment as they fell. On the Shadow's flight deck, Theo pushed all the engines to full power, preparing to shove the airship out into the open sky beyond Airhaven's shadow. But as he reached for the steering levers, a steel hand clamped his wrist. There are two anti-aircraft harpoon batteries on Airhaven Main Street, the stalker Shrike announced. As soon as we clear their airspace, they will fire on us. But we can't stay here, shouted Theo, waving at the windows. The glass was already starred by hits from a dozen crossbow bolts, although no one had dared to fire anything more dangerous yet for fear of igniting a blaze that might engulf the whole of Airhaven. Go down, said Shrike. Drop into the clouds. They will hide us. Theo nodded, angry that he'd not thought of that for himself. A moment later, the shadow swung its engine pods upright and forced itself down into the white billows beneath Airhaven. Ah! wailed Penny Royal and Spiny, and then, oh! as the safety net beneath Strut 13 caught them and held them safe. They bounced together, as if they had dropped into a giant's hammock. Great posket! <laughs> whimpered Penny Royal, thrusting the journalist away from him and trying to stand upright. He had forgotten the net's existence until its thick, yielding mesh broke his fall. I thought we were done for, he gasped. You're done for all right, Nimrod, Samford Spiny cackled. He had been just as scared as Penny Royal, but he wasn't about to show it. Consorting with the storm, taking part in a brawl, accessory to the attempted murder of a Kriegsmarshal? Here, was that really Naga's wife on the strut? That's what your Manchester friends are saying. Excited at the thought of all the startling reports that he would soon be filing, the journalist began to bounce happily up and down. Do stop doing that, old man, pleaded Pennyroyal. You're making me feel all queasy. 
Not half as queasy as you'll be when you see the next edition of the probe, Spiny chuckled, bouncing harder. Odd noises started to come from the net, faint creaks, small twanging sounds. Spiny, I really think you should stop. This net looks old, and it's already taken the weight of a brace of fat Mancunians tonight. With a sound like plucked harp strings, the bolts that attached one edge of the net to the underside of strut 14 started to come free. Spiny stopped bouncing and let out a strangled yelp. Help! shouted Penny Royal as loudly as he could. But although Strut 13 was crammed with people, the only one who heard him was Spiny's photographer, Miss Kropotkin. Her face appeared over the edge of the strut. She stretched down toward the stranded men with one hand, but she could not reach them. Pennyroyal started trying to claw his way up the steep net toward her, but only succeeded in pulling some of the bolts on that side free as well. Oh, posket! Miss Kropotkin! Spiny shrieked. Fetch help! Fetch help at once, or I'll make sure you end up photographing pet shows and garden parties for the rest of your worthless... And with a presence of mind that ensured she would never have to photograph another pet show as long as she lived, Miss Kropotkin raised her camera as the net gave way and took the picture that would appear on page one of the next edition of The Probe beneath the headline... Writers perish in airhaven death plunge horror. Chapter 28 Stormbirds As the shadow aspect sank into the clouds, Shrike strode aft. In the curtained-off cabin at the stern of the gondola, Inoni was crouching over Hester, using her fingers to try and stop the blood that was pouring from the gash on Hester's scalp. She looked up at Shrike. Is there a medicine chest? Just a first aid kit, even? Shrike stared at Hester's grey, shocked face. Let her die, he wanted to tell Inoni. Then use your skill to resurrect her. In place of that scarred and ruined face, give her a steel mask more perfect than the stalker fangs. In place of her breakable body, build her a body as strong as this one. She would forget her life, but Shrike felt certain that her spirit would survive. Over the millennia that they would have together, he would help her to recover it, his immortal child. Medical chest, shouted Inoni. Quickly, Mr. Shrike! Shrike turned and found the Shadow's first aid kit in the locker above the bunk. As he handed it to Inoni, a blow shook the airship. He went forward onto the flight deck again. Theo was clinging to the controls, staring out of wet windows. We are under attack, Shrike said. What? The boy looked around at him, wide eyes white in his dark face. We were hit, a projectile. Theo turned to the window again. I can't see another ship. I can't see anything. This cloud. And then the shadow aspect dropped out of the belly of the clouds, and they both saw the flanks of cities rising all around them, the sky between filled with the running lights of dozens of airships. It was raining, 
and the drops flecked the windows and blurred everything into a kaleidoscope of glowing specks, but Shrike could tell by their trajectories that the other ships were not searching for the shadow aspect. They were not military ships at all, but freighters and liners heading west. Murnau is evacuating its women and children, he said. Preparing for war, whispered Theo, and then, remembering his plight, what about us? Word of our departure may not have reached the other cities yet. Well, it can't be long, said Theo. It seemed pointless to turn the shadow eastward, for he did not believe they could escape from the Murnau cluster now. But he turned her anyway, peering out through the rain as she flew through a steep-sided canyon whose walls were the towering sides of Manchester and Traction Bad Braunschweig. He took the shadow low so that the city's tall wheels slid past on either side of the gondola. Other ships poured through the canyon high above, most of them flying west. Ahead, across a few miles of mud, crawling with small, fierce-looking suburbs, stood Murnau. The great fighting city had shut its armor. Theo started to steer the shadow aspect around its northern flank, still at track level. The rudder controls were sluggish. I think the steering vanes are damaged, he said, tugging irritably at the levers. Remembering the blow that he had felt as the ship dropped away from Airhaven, Shrike went aft again. Hester was conscious, groaning as Inoni cleaned her wound. Tom, oh, Tom... Shrike caught the sharp whiff of medical alcohol. He climbed the companion ladder, stooping as he stepped out onto the axial catwalk that led along the centre of the envelope. At the sternward end was a small hatch, built for once born and almost too small for him to squeeze his stalker's bulk through. Outside, the shadow's rain-wet tail fins shone silvery in the light from the passing windows of Murnau's skirt forts. Holding tight to the ratlines, Shrike made his way out onto the lateral fin. At the rear of the fin, something had wedged among the control cables. Beneath the howl of the engines and the drumming of rain on the steep curve of the envelope above him, Shrike picked up another sound, a rhythmic clatter. Was this some new weapon? He let go of the ratlines with one hand and unsheathed his claws. The shape in the control cables shifted suddenly, reacting to the flick of wet light from the blades. A white, frightened face gaped up at Shrike. Great Posket! it wailed. Shrike realized what had happened. This once-born must have fallen from Airhaven as the shadow aspect departed. He sheathed his claws and reached out to drag him to safety. But the once-born misunderstood. Terrified, he let go his tight grip on the cables and began to fall again, shrieking as he tumbled into the sky. Shrike lunged forward and grabbed him by the collar of his coat, swinging him around and safely up onto the fin again. The shadow aspect tilted, engines caterwauling, as Shrike heaved the man over the aileron flaps and started to drag him along the fin toward the open hatch. The airship's sudden uncertain movement drew the attention of lookouts in Murnau's skirt forts. As Shrike and his dripping, barely conscious burden regained the flight deck, the fort's gun slits started to prickle with light. It looked quite pretty, 
until the first bullets began tearing into the gondola. Windows shattered, pressure gauges wavered as holes were torn in the gas cells, the engines howled, still driving the ship eastward past towering jaws out across rain-swept shell-torn mud. The gunfire stopped. Theo checked the periscope. Astern, three points of light were pulling clear of the immense bulk of the armoured city. Three bat-black shapes growing against the grey underbelly of the clouds. High above, Orla Twombly wiped rain from her goggles and pushed her flying machine, Combat Wombat, into a dive that would bring it up on the shadow's tail. Behind her, the ornithopter Zip Gun Boogie and a rocket-propelled triplane called No More Curried Eggs For Me followed suit, wings slicing the wet air like blades. Theo shouted out in fear and frustration. He knew that his sluggish, wounded shadow could not outrun the flying ferrets. He saw Shrike turn toward him and thought the stalker was about to warn him of the pursuing machines. I know, he yelled. But Shrike said, There are stalker birds ahead. What? Theo tried to peer out through the rain-spattered forward window, but he could see only darkness and his own terrified reflection. Then a rocket from the pursuing machines tore past the gondola and exploded ahead, and he realized that the darkness was largely made of wings. Across the empty skies of no man's land, from the direction of the green storm's lines, an immense flock of resurrected birds was flapping toward him. Christ! cried Theo, and slammed the steering levers over, trying vainly to turn the ship about, for he would rather face rockets than the claws and beaks of the storm's raptors. But the shadow's rudder controls had been hit. She responded slowly, and long before she could come about, the sky outside the gondola windows was filled with beating wings and the green pinpoints of the dead bird's eyes. Astern, wind-lashed and drenched in the open cockpit of the combat wombat, Orla Twombly saw the cloud of wings. Cursing inventively, she swung her machine about and signaled to her companions to do the same. She had lost enough people to the stalker birds at Cloud Nine. Nothing would make her engage them in such numbers. She checked that her men were with her, then soared back toward the fastnesses of Manchester, while skeins of birds, like the fingers of some gloomy god, closed around the shadow aspect. On the flight deck, Theo waited for beaks and claws to start tearing through the thin walls. Over the rumble of the shadow's engines, he could hear whooshing wing beats, the flutter of feathers as the birds turned, matching the little airship's course and speed. They're not here to attack us, said Inoni softly, coming to stand behind Theo, her hand touching his shoulder. I think they're an escort. Theo leaned forward looking up past the bulge of the envelope. The wounded airship was flying inside a dark nebula of wings, where the eyes of hundreds of birds glowed like green stars. The birds were immense, resurrected kites and condors, eagles and vultures. As the gas vented from the shadow's shredded cells, hundreds of birds gripped her airframe with their claws and bore her up, their wingbeats carrying her eastward across the track scars and shell craters of no man's land. In through one of the shattered starboard windows came a smaller bird, 
It had been a raven when it was alive. It perched on the handle of a control lever and turned its head, its green eye whirring as it focused on Theo. It opened its beak, and the faint, crackly voice of a distant Greenstorm commander came out of the tiny radio transmitter inside its ribs. He was speaking in a battle code that Theo did not recognize, but Inoni did. She replied in the same harsh language, and the raven spread its wings and flew past her through the window and away. Inoni looked at Theo. One of the storm's forward observation posts saw us come under attack. They assumed we must be their agents. I have told them the truth, that I am Lady Naga coming home. The bird gave me the coordinates of the landing field where they want us to set down. Theo listened to the numbers she quoted, but he barely needed to alter course. The birds were already shepherding the shadow aspect in the right direction. He flopped down in his seat and looked at Shrike. He was too wrung out with shock to feel more than mildly surprised when he saw that the wet, whimpering man the stalker clutched was Nimrod Pennyroyal. What's he doing here? he asked. It was an accident, said Pennyroyal fearfully, as if he thought he was about to be accused of boarding the shadow aspect by stealth. I fell. Spiny and I, we fell out of Airhaven and landed on your tail fin. Well, I did. Spiny carried on down, poor devil. Still, it serves him right. The thought of his enemy's death seemed to restore his spirits slightly, but only for a moment. His eyes wandered past Theo to the storm of birds outside. Ngoni, am I a prisoner? I think we're all prisoners, Professor. But your green storm, they won't harm you. I was mayor of Brighton. You'll tell them, won't you? I was always an anti-tractionist at heart. I only accepted high office so that I could subvert the system from within. And I treated captured mosses well, didn't I? You can vouch for me. You had it easy on Cloud Nine, didn't you? Three good meals a day, and you never had to carry anything heavier than a sunshade. Inoni said, I will tell them to treat you well. You will? Thank you. But I don't know if they'll listen to me. It all depends on whether the units who control these birds are loyal or whether they want me dead. Oh, Poskit! Inoni squeezed Theo's shoulder and said, I must go and check on your friend. How is she? asked Theo, ashamed to find that he had completely forgotten about Hester. Inoni looked solemnly at him. She'll be all right? I hope so. She has a serious head injury. I'll do all I can. Who is Tom? She keeps asking for him. Her husband... Tom Natsworthy, Wren's father. Inoni nodded owlishly and went aft again. Shrike dumped Pennyroyal on the deck and followed her. Left alone with the old man, Theo wondered if he should tie him up or lock him in the lavatory or something. But Pennyroyal looked too trembly and sodden to try anything, and the host of stormbirds just outside the window were surely enough to keep him in his place. Theo lay back in his seat tasting the blood that had trickled into the corner of his mouth from a small cut on his forehead. He thought of Zagwa and his family, and wondered if he would ever see them again. Whatever happened when he landed, he must try and get word to them. Letter for you, 
said Penny Royal, rather sheepishly. Theo looked over. Penny Royal was holding out a filthy, crumpled envelope. She left it with me to send on to you, but I must confess I forgot. Found it in my greatcoat pocket earlier, when I was looking for a scrap of paper to jot down the humbug's birth on. Thought you might as well have it. Better late than never, eh? Theo turned the envelope over and recognized Wren's careful handwriting. He ripped it open and pulled out the letter, hissing with frustration as the wet paper tore. Her photograph smiled at him, the same picture that had been in the newspaper, that long, clever face, not as beautiful as he remembered her, but real and lovely. He spread the letter on the control desk and tried to read it. The rain had fogged and buckled it until only a few phrases were legible. I am starting on a journey, loading provisions, didn't even know that London had any ruins. A few lines above was a word that might have been survivors. Then, at the foot of the page, look for me in London. London, he said. He tried not to cry, but he couldn't stop himself. She has gone to London. What? asked Penny Royal, startled. No, no, you've misread it. They set off on some job for Wolf Cobalt, the Kriegsmarshal's son. London? Nobody goes to London. It's a ruin. Haunted. There was only one more line that Theo could read. With love, it said, from Wren. The sleeping quarters smelled thickly of blood and antiseptic oils. Hester lay with her head thrown back, her face whiter than the pillow it rested on. Looking down at her, Shrike hoped that she would die without waking. When she was a stalker like him, he would not have to suffer so much worry. Once born were so fragile, so disposable. Loving one was agony. Inoni knelt to check her patient's pulse, then looked up at Shrike. In all the chaos of the fight on Strut 13 and the flight from Airhaven, there had not been time for her to say, Mr. Shrike, what are you doing here? Or, Mr. Shrike, how nice to see you again. And it was too late now. Instead, she said, She is Hester Shaw, isn't she? You know of her? Of course. I studied your past before I reawakened you. Shrike sensed the airship descending. He went to a side window and looked out. Through the darkness of the bird's wings, he could see long strings of lights flickering on the land ahead, lanterns and torches on the green storm's front line. City traps and concrete sound mirrors poked out of the mud like tombstones. Knowing that there might not be time for conversation once they landed, he spoke to Inoni's reflection in the glass. Why have you made me like this? Like what? she asked guiltily. Do you not have all your memories back? I erased nothing. When you had destroyed the Storker Fang, I meant you to become yourself again. I cannot fight, said Shrike. He turned to face her, feeling his claws twitch inside his steel hands. A spark of his old Storker fury ignited inside him somewhere, like an ember glowing in a cold hearth. 
he wanted to kill her for what she had done to him. But what she had done to him meant that he could not kill her. You made me weak, he said. The ghosts of all the once-born I killed before hang in my head like wet sheets. I hate the things I have done. Why did you make me feel like this? Inoni moved closer. Her hand touched his armor. I did not do it. I would not know how. These feelings come from inside you. When the once-born Natsworthy killed me on the Black Island, I remembered things. They faded as soon as you repaired me, but I think they were memories of the time before I was a stalker, when I was alive like you. Is that where this weakness comes from? I suppose it's possible. Dr. Popjoy had a theory about the origins of stalkers. She smiled. Shrike saw her white, crooked teeth, the first thing he remembered noticing about her when she dug him out of his grave. I think it's more likely that you have developed feelings and a conscience of your own. You are intelligent and self-aware, and you have had long enough to do it in, after all. I think you began the process long before I met you. I know how you saved Hester as a child, and how long you sought for her after she left home. That was one of the things that made me realize you were no ordinary stalker. You have loved Hester since you first found her, haven't you? Shrike looked away. He was still a stalker, and it was hard for him to talk about things like love. He said, Will those memories of my once-born life ever return? Perhaps. Perhaps next time you die. But that won't be for a long, long time. I built you to last, Mr. Shrike. The ground was close now. Shrike looked down at Hester, thinking that he did not care how long he lived as long as she was with him. He said, I want to keep her safe and strong forever. Will you help me? Inoni did not understand what he meant. Of course I will, she promised. She stood on tiptoe and kissed his face. Dabs of his preservative slime came off on her lips and the tip of her nose. Congratulations, Mr. Shrike. You've grown a soul. Chapter 29 Fun, fun, fun on the Auber Rung in the argon-lit rain, Harrow-Barrow heaved itself out of the mud off Murnau's starboard side, like a gigantic submarine surfacing in a very dirty sea. A boarding bridge was run out, and Wolf Kobold strode across and vanished into the larger city, where an express elevator carried him quickly up to the Oberang. A bug was waiting for him there, along with an officer who began shouting at him as soon as he stepped off the elevator. Sir, sir, come quickly, your father is hurt. Yes, I got your radio message, said Kobold, wearily, settling himself into the bug's rear seat. How stupid to be dragged all the way up here just so that he could pretend to be concerned about an old man he cared nothing for. Already he was longing to be aboard Harrowbarrow again, free of these mawkish conventions. 
He listened half-heartedly to the driver prattling about air haven and green storm spies as the little vehicle went swerving along Uber den Linden to the Rathaus. Outside, young officers were saying farewell to their sweethearts, and workers were heaving shut the last open sections of the city's armour, but Wolf barely noticed them. He stared at his own gaunt face reflected in the bug's hood and thought of the long trek he had just made across the storm's territory, the sentry he'd strangled as he crept back through their lines into no man's land, where good old Hausdorfer had kept the barrow waiting. He thought proudly of London and of the fantastical machines that would soon be his. At the Rathaus, the servants led him to the main drawing-room. His father sat in an armchair, his chest bandaged, being fussed over by frock-coated medical men. Adlai Brown stood close by, having come across from Manchester with flowers and grapes, and a disclaimer he wanted the Kriegsmarshal to sign, absolving the Manchester militia of any liability for his injuries. Beside him stood the commander of his mercenary air force. Wolf had found Ms. Twombly attractive once— but now she struck him as rather brassy, all that pink leather and mascara. He thought wistfully of Wren Natsworthy, her innocent beauty and bright, malleable young mind. Wolfram, cried his father, waving the doctors aside and struggling up to hug him. They told me you were away somewhere. Just a little business trip, said Cobalt disgusted by the liver spots on the old man's arms, the white curls of hair that showed above the bandage on his chest. I got home to Harrow Barrows the day before yesterday. His father studied him. You look thin, my boy. Thin, unshaven, fever-eyed, Wolf waved his words away. It's yourself you should be worrying about. They told me you're hurt. Just a few bruises, some broken bones. I got home just in time, it seems. What do you mean? Great Thatcher, the Mosses tried to kill you, father. It was an act of war. We must retaliate immediately. Just what I've been telling him, boomed Adlai Brown, with the air of a man who had been waiting impatiently to resume an interrupted conversation. We mustn't let them get away with it. Nonsense, Brown, snapped von Kobold wincing with the pain as he slumped back down in his chair. It was one of your drunken louts who shot me. Youthful exuberance, protested Brown. If you'd not been so keen to keep the prisoner for yourself, he appealed to Wolf. Have you heard the news? Naga's missus herself was loose on Airhaven, with a gang of stalkers to protect her, hatching some plot with that renegade Penny Royal, apparently. I see. Usually Wolf would have scoffed at such talk, the panicky, exaggerated stuff that flew about whenever fat city men got a whiff of real war. But tonight a little panic suited him. The sooner war broke out, the sooner Harrowbarrow could begin its journey to London. They got away alive, I take it? Brown turned to the aviatrix at his side. You tell them, lass. Orla Twombly bowed and said, The airship was met over no man's land by more stalker birds than I've ever seen in one place. There must have been someone or something of value aboard. There was nothing I could do to stop it from escaping.
It seemed to Wolf that there was plenty she could have done had she not valued her life more than her duty, but he simply nodded and said, This sounds bad. Who knows what plots the Mosses have set in motion, or what they've learned about our plans? There's only one thing for it. You mean, attack? asked Adlai Brown, hopefully. It's the best form of defense. The Mosses struck first. We must retaliate. Attack at once all along the line. Von Cobalt rubbed his eyes. Surely there must be another way. If you don't feel up to commanding this place, said Brown, all mock solicitude. I shall do my part, the old man promised wearily. You'll not call me a coward, Brown. If the other cities advance, Morna will come too, and I'll command her. Unless my son would care to take his place on the bridge. He looked at Wolf, who shook his head firmly. Sorry, father. I must get back to Harrowborough. When the attack begins, I'll gnaw a nice big hole for you in the Mossy's defenses. He shook his father's hand, bowed to Brown and Ms. Twombly, and went out of the room leaving silence behind him, and a feeling of sadness like a lingering smell. Well, said Adlai Brown, clapping his hands together, I must inform the other mayors and Krieg's marshals, Miss Twombly, you'll need to get your machines aloft. The obliteration of the green storm starts at dawn. Chapter 30 She is risen. Fulfill the vision of the windflower, airfield, was an oblong of flat ground bulldozed out of the mud a few miles behind the storm's front line. It was ringed with landing lights and bunkers and big, whale-backed barns of airship hangars. Anti-aircraft cannons squatted watchfully in emplacements made from earth-packed wicker barrels. Searchlights stretched out their colourless fingers to brush the shadow aspect's envelope as the cloud of birds steered her toward her docking pan. Soldiers came running as she touched down and crowded into the gondola when Theo opened the hatch. White uniforms, crab-shell helmets, guns. Inoni emerged from behind the curtain at the back of the flight deck, and they recoiled from her and raised their weapons, alarmed by her filthy, blood-stained clothes and the stalker who stood behind her. She held out her hand, letting the light glint on her signet ring. Before you shoot me, she said politely, I would like you to take care of my companions. Mr. Ngoni and Professor Pennyroyal are not enemies of the storm. The sub-officer at the head of the boarding party bowed low, placing his right fist against the palm of his left hand in the old league salute. You are safe now, Lady Naga. Inoni returned the bow, nervous, still not quite trusting him. There is a woman in the cabin who needs care. Is there a field hospital here? The soldier pointed toward a hummock of camouflaged bunkers on the horizon. Shall I call stretcher-bearers? I will carry her, said Shrike. He pulled the curtain aside and lifted Hester easily and carefully in his arms. Theo and the others made to follow him as he carried her to the open hatch, but the sub-officer, feeling things sliding out of his control, moved quickly to stop them, barring their way with a raised hand. She will be well looked after, ladyship, he promised Inoni, 
but you and these other foreigners must come with me. I have orders to bring you before the sector commander. The part of the line where the shadow aspect had landed was commanded by the motherly General Sao. Sleepy-eyed but smiling, she welcomed Inoni and her followers to the dugout where she had her headquarters. It was a pleasant place, as dugouts went, not too damp, the floor flagged with slates, the wooden walls whitewashed and hung with pictures. In the general's private quarters, photographs of her dead family stood among the statues of her household gods on an elaborate shrine. A pot-bellied stove gave out a dry heat that made Pennyroyal's soggy clothes steam so much the general suggested he take them off, and made one of her plumper staff officers lend him a spare uniform and an elegant grey cloak. Inoni had also changed into a greenstorm uniform, and had washed her face and hair. She still did not look like an empress, but at least she looked less like a street urchin. The general's servants brought rice wine, steamed rolls, tea. Theo pulled off his flying jacket and tried to stop himself from falling asleep on the folding chair that another servant set out for him. After the things they had been through that night, it all seemed impossibly luxurious. Although he had grown to hate the green storm, he had never doubted the strength or courage of their army, and it was a relief to think of all those brave soldiers and powerful guns standing between him and the city folk. He was not even worried about Hester, now that she was safe in the field hospital. The general said, My people are preparing a ship to carry you home to Tianjin, my lady. Her captain is a friend of mine, a supporter of General Naga. Her crew can all be trusted. A stalker bird has gone east already to take the good news to your husband. I hope that it will restore his spirits. He is ill, asked Inoni, alarmed. General Tsao looked glum. There have been no clear orders from Tianjin for weeks. We have warned your honoured husband about the build-up on the other side of the line and the harvester suburb that raided track mark 16 last month. We have told him that we cannot hold these positions if the cities attack. He does not seem to care. It is as if, when he heard word of your death, he gave up all hope. Inoni looked for a moment as if she would cry. She said hoarsely, can't we contact him more quickly? I could talk to him by long-range radio. Sao shook her head. I dare not risk it, Lady Naga. The barbarians could intercept your message and try again to kill you. It was not the barbarians who tried to kill me the first time, said Inoni. It was barbarians who saved me with Theo's help. Indeed, nodded the general, smiling at Theo and then at Pennyroyal. We have heard of Professor Pennyroyal's bravery. Professor Pennyroyal's bravery? Theo almost choked on the roll he was munching. He wondered if the general was slightly drunk. First, her defeatist talk about not being able to hold the line, and now this. What have you heard? he asked. We have listening posts deep in no man's land that eavesdrop on the townies' radio transmissions, explained the general. She reached for some papers on her desk. This is a news bulletin that went out on Murnau's public screens a few hours ago. She skimmed the transcript's first two paragraphs, then cleared her throat and read. 
The raiders were helped by an agent within Airhaven, the notorious author, charlatan, and former mayor of Brighton, Nimrod B. Pennyroyal. As the Green Storm spy ship left, several eyewitnesses saw the traitor Pennyroyal running after it, shouting, What about my money? A traitor? Me? Pennyroyal looked outraged. Only to the tractionist barbarians, said General Tsao. To our people, you will be a hero. But, gosh, will I? To think that the mayor of a barbaric raft town could come to see the error of his ways so clearly that he would risk his own life to free a green storm prisoner, the general went on. Your statue will stand in the hall of matchless immortals in Tianjin. Naga will reward you richly. He... A junior officer entered, bowing nervously and murmuring something in Chan Guanese. The general frowned, standing up. Forgive me, I am needed outside. What is happening? asked Inoni. Our sound mirrors are detecting engine noise from the cities. We have been expecting an attack, but not so soon. Great gods, I've still not had the reinforcements I asked for last month. A bell began to ring on the bank of field telephones in the next room, then another, and another. General Tsao snapped an order at her underling and said to Inoni, Excellency, you must take ship at once. I will not risk... An enormous roll of thunder drowned out the remainder of her words. The floor shook, and dust sifted down between the planks of the low roof. Pennyroyal started to call on his peculiar gods again. Theo looked at the table where he had set down his teacup, and the cup was dancing, dancing to the boom, boom, boom of the thunder. A soldier came scrambling into the bunker, and although he was shouting his report in Shan Guanese, Theo and his companions knew what it meant, even before General Tsao turned to them and said, It is beginning! All their cities are on the move! Dozens of cities! Hundreds of suburbs! They stood up, indignant at being plunged into another adventure before they'd had a chance to recover from the last. What about Hester and Mr. Shrike? I will have your friends meet you at the airfield! shouted General Tsao. Now go, quickly, and gods preserve us all! They followed a sub-officer out of the headquarters and through trenches where hundreds of soldiers were hurrying to their positions. The thunder from the west was shockingly loud. The sky above the front-line trenches pulsed with light. Pennyroyal looked terrified. Theo, wincing at the noise of the blasts, kept reminding himself that most of it was probably the Green Storm's artillery firing at the cities. Any attack would soon be beaten off. Only Inoni had been in the front line before. She recognized the complex shudderings of the earth in the same way a city person would understand what each movement in their deck plates meant. She knew that somewhere, not far away, fighting suburbs were advancing at high speed behind a rolling barrage of snout-gun shells. She prayed as she ran, wondering if even God would be able to hear her above all the din. They zigzagged through a communications trench, and there, ahead of them, was the airfield. A corvette was waiting on a central pan, while pods of fox spirits went snarling into the primrose sky from hangars dug into the hillsides behind her. 
She was called the Fury, and her engines were already in takeoff position, the propellers a blaze of silver. As they crossed the muddy docking pan, a half-track marked with the caduceus symbol of the medical corps came speeding up, slewing to a halt near the foot of the Fury's gangplank. Shrike swung down out of its belly and reached back to help the bearers bring Hester's stretcher out. The sub-officer started urging Inoni toward the ship, and Pennyroyal, needing no encouragement, trotted alongside. Theo was about to follow them when he remembered Wren's letter, which was still in the pocket of his flying jacket, on the chair by the stove in Tsao's headquarters. I have to go back, he shouted. Only Shrike heard him as he carried Hester up the gangplank. He looked around to see Theo plunge back into the maze of trenches. Theo Ngoni, he shouted. Sometimes he could barely believe the folly of the once-born. Stalker, get her aboard, called an aviator from the Fury's open hatchway. We must wait, Shrike insisted. The once-born Theo Ngoni is not with us. A snout-gun shell burst near the western perimeter of the field, crumpling a rising fox spirit and spraying mud and gravel against the Fury's envelope. Shrike looked toward the trenches, but could see nothing but smoke. Explosions were going off steadily, and he made out another noise beneath and between the slamming of the guns, the deep note of city engines and the high, squealing counterpoint of rolling tracks. "'Come aboard, stalker!' Or we'll take off without you, yelled the frightened aviator, holding his helmet in place as blast waves chased each other across the docking pans. Shrike bellowed, Theo Ngoni, once more into the storm of sound, then turned reluctantly, carrying Hester up the gangplank and through the hatch. Inoni ran to meet him in the corridor. Where is Theo? I thought he was with us. The fury jolted and leaped quickly into the air. Shrike carried Hester to the medical bay and laid her on a bunk. Look after this once born, he told the orderlies, and strode across the cabin to a window. Flying machines were swerving through the air outside, bullets from their machine guns pummeling the Fury's armor. Below, shell bursts speckled the ground. All up and down the Greenstorm's line, the heavy guns were firing while steam trebuchets flung up their long arms and lobbed their bombs into the screens of drifting smoke that curtained no man's land. Naga, it has begun! General Naga sits slumped in his favorite chair beside the window of the quarters that he used to share with Inoni. The spiral stairways of the Jade Pagoda rumble like organ pipes as a gale blasts around the old fortress, blowing snow upward past Naga's windows. His old friend, General Ju, waits in the doorway, shifting awkwardly from one foot to the other, unhappy at delivering such bad news. We have reports of heavy fighting in a dozen sectors. The Rustwater Marsh Forts are under attack, and we've lost contact with Cao's command post. Ah, says Naga, without looking up. On the low table beside him stand a teacup and a pot of green tea. The girl Rohini brings it to him every morning at this hour and plays to him on the Shudaga. But today, Ju sent her packing, insisting he must speak to Naga privately. A pity, 
She is a good girl, and sometimes Naga thinks that her kindness is all that keeps him alive. The music she plays reminds him of his boyhood, hunting duck in the flooded atomic craters of South China, joining the League's air fleet that summer before London came crawling east. At the training college on Seven Tiger Mountain, there was a girl named Satya, whom he had fancied, but she'd been in love with the windflower. Whatever happened to Satya, he wonders. Do you think she's still at that hermitage we found for her on Zanshan? Naga, we are at war, his friend shouts. What are your orders? Do I tell our commanders to stand or withdraw? Whatever you think necessary, Ju. Ju sighs. Turns to go, turns back. There is another thing. It seems minor, but but Gompa is reporting a lot of activity inside the wreck of London. Naga flaps his words away. London? A few poor barbarians, Jew. We've known about them for years. They're harmless. Are we sure of that? What if they are a fifth column waiting to assist the enemy as he advances? I have ordered increased surveillance. Naga tries to shrug, but his mechanical armor isn't made for shrugging. I'm ill, old friend. I ache all over. I can't sleep, but I'm never properly awake. My head buzzes like a nest of bees. You should take over command. The people want you, Naga. You smashed the barbarians last spring, and they know you can do it again. They won't trust me. I miss Zero, murmurs Naga. I miss her so much. Jew stares at him. I'll tell Cao to make a stand, if I can reach her. As he leaves the chambers, he sees Cynthia Twight waiting outside, watching him from the shadows. He forces her down a narrow stairway and out onto a balcony. Snowflakes flail at them, and the wind blows their hair about. What's happening to him? hisses Jew. I thought once we got rid of the Zero girl, he'd come to his senses and lead us to a victory. But he just sits there. Is it just grief? Is he dying? Tell me. Cynthia smiles. Green tea, she says. A pot every morning, like his poor wife used to make him. You're poisoning him? Just a little. Not enough to kill him. Just enough to keep him helpless. But we need him. No, we don't, you fool. Zhu is astonished. In the mountain kingdoms, women respect men, and young people respect their elders. But this girl talks to him as if he's a child. Haven't you heard the rumours, Jew? A stalker killing lost boys aboard Brighton, an abandoned limpet found under a waterfall in Snowfan Province, the murder of Dr. Popjoy. It all adds up. It's all connected. Are you too blind to see what it means? Jew just stares at her. The snow's so thick that her face keeps breaking up like a bad goggle screen picture. She is risen, Cynthia hisses triumphantly. 
soon she will reveal herself to us and save us from the barbarians. Until she does, we must make sure that Naga is weak. When he has let the barbarians smash his divisions and devour our western settlements, the people will be ready to abandon him and welcome back their true leader. You're insane, says General Jew, turning to go and warn his friend of her. One of the long pins that holds Cynthia's hairstyle in place is tipped with venom. She's been saving it for just such an emergency. The sharpened tip makes only the tiniest scratch on Jew's neck, but he's dead before he can even cry out. Grunting with effort and cursing his fat belly, Cynthia heaves the body off the balcony and watches it plummet through the snowflakes to the sharp mountainside hundreds of feet below. She's always had her doubts about Jew, and she has forged his suicide note already. It will be the work of a moment to plant it in his desk. She thinks of her mistress, the stalker Fang, out there in the mountains somewhere, waiting. If only she would show herself. Cynthia understands why the stalker would want to punish the weaklings who flocked to Naga's banner, but surely she knows that she can still rely upon her faithful private agents. For a moment, as she slips back inside and strolls toward General Ju's quarters, she feels almost angry at her old mistress. The feeling quickly passes. Whatever the stalker Fang is planning will be dreadful and wonderful, and it is not Cynthia's place to judge her. Theo had always had a good sense of direction. He found his way quickly through the maze of trenches and was almost in sight of the dugout, when an explosion went off just beyond the wire, kicking fans of earth and smoke high into the dawn sky. He crouched as the mud came spattering down. A sea of smoke filled the trench. Scared, fleeing soldiers blundered through it, throwing down their weapons as they ran, pulling off packs and bandoliers. Their mouths were open as if they were shouting, but Theo couldn't hear them. He had been deafened by the blast of the shell. Dazed, he scrambled up onto a fire-step to see what they were running from. Beyond the bramble hedge of wire outside the trench, mountainous shapes were moving. Now and again, as the gusting wind hooked swags of smoke aside, he could see Murnau, only a few miles off, munching its way through the shell-battered city traps, while a dozen harvester suburbs probed for mines or pitfalls. A nearby fortress was firing rockets toward it, but as Theo watched, the ground began to tremble sluggishly, and up from the mud at the fort's base an enormous, blunt, steel nose came shoving, lifting to expose giant drills and complicated mouthparts, knocking the fort to pieces and gobbling them down. Welcome to Harrow Barrow, said a crude white slogan painted on the armoured flank. Theo had plenty of time to read it as the weird suburb went grinding past him, crushing bunkers and wrecked gun emplacements beneath its tracks. Signal lamps blinked on Murnau's upper tier, as if trying to call it to heal, but the suburb ignored them. It settled itself deep into the muddy earth again and went grinding on into Greenstorm territory. Theo jumped down from the step and stumbled on, confused by the smoke and the steep walls of earth that had been thrown across the trench by the explosions. Fresh blasts went off, spattering him with mud and muddy water, but it all happened in hissing undersea silence, like a dream. He barely understood what was going on, 
How could the cities have broken through so easily? Where were the indomitable air destroyers and thousand tumbler quick response units that he had been told of in the Greenstorm's propaganda films? An airship drifted overhead, burning so fiercely that he could not tell which side it had belonged to. By its light he saw the dugout entrance and ran gratefully through it. The command post had already been evacuated, but Theo's coat still hung on the back of the folding chair where he had left it. He pulled it on, feeling Wren's letter crinkle in the pocket, her photograph pressing against his heart. He didn't hear the scream of the snout-gun shell descending. The first he knew of it was when the hot hands of the explosion lifted him off his feet. Then everything turned into light. Chapter 31 The House at Erdene Tess The stalker Fang pauses at the edge of the docking pan where Popjoy's air yacht is tethered and turns her bronze face toward the west. What? asks Fishcake. What is it? He looks westward too, but he can see nothing, just the mountains. How sick he is of mountains! They stand guard like frost giants all around this high green valley, and their reflections shimmer in the windswept lake below the docking pan. Gunfire, the stalker whispers. You mean the war is on again? Fishcake strains his grubby, once-born ears to try and hear what she can hear. I must work quickly. Come. She starts limping toward the causeway, and Fishcake follows her, carrying on his shoulder one of the cases of equipment that she made him bring from Dun Resurrectin. Overhead, the dead birds that followed her from Popjoy's place soar past, keeping watch for movements in the sky or on the steep pass at the valley's western end. The causeway is two hundred paces long. At its far end is a rocky island where a house stands, dark and cold as a tomb. It was a monastery once, sacred to the gods and demons of the mountains, whose faces still leer out of niches in the outer walls. Later, it was Anna Fang's home, a place of light and laughter, where she relaxed between missions for the Anti-Traction League. She had planned to retire here and raise horses in the steep green pastures before Valentine's sword unraveled all her plans. In the first years of the Green Storm regime, there had been talk of turning Erdenetes into a museum, where schoolchildren could come to see relics of the windflower and tread the same floors that she had trodden. But the stalker she had become forbade it. She had the house locked, and let it fall into ruin. The gate winds as the stalker heaves it open. Fishcake crunches after her through the gateway, where patches of snow lie blue in the shadows. Safe in the loop of the thick stone wall is a garden, dead trees and dead brown grass, a fountain lacy with icicles. Fishcake trots after his stalker up the frosty path to the house. She does not smash the door down as he has been expecting, but extends one of her finger glaives, inserts it into the keyhole, and moves it carefully about in there until the lock clicks. As she opens the door, she looks back at Fishcake. Home again, she whispers. He follows her into the shadows. 
He can't be sure anymore if she is Anna or the stalker Fang. He thinks she may be both, as if Popjoy's tinkering blended the two personalities somehow. She has not been unkind to Fishcake, and she still shares her memories with him, but she does not play with him anymore. She no longer takes his hand or tousles his hair or comes to hold him at night when he wakes from a bad dream. All he has left of that Anna is the carved toy horse, which he clutches tightly when he goes to sleep. Whoever she is, the stalker seems happy to be home. Ah, she sighs, passing through a reception room where the ceiling has collapsed and bird droppings lie thick on a fine tiled floor. Oh, she says, crossing the atrium and peering into a long chamber whose shattered windows stare out across the mere to the white heights of the Erdene Shan. She had such parties here, such happy times. The wind hoots through holes in the walls. Beyond the party room lies a bedroom, a canopied bed sinking like a torpedoed ship into a sea of its own mouldering covers. At the far side of the bedroom is another locked door, and beyond the door... The room exhales stale air when she unlocks it. Fishcake, creeping in behind her, guesses that this part of the house has been sealed. It smells a bit like Grimsby. The walls and floor are covered in metal, with rubber mats to walk on. Cobwebs and plastic swathe a curious mountain of machinery, wires and tubes, screens and boxes, valves and dials and coloured cords, keyboards torn from typewriting machines. Engineers were not the only ones who knew how to build things back in the good old days, the stalker whispers. Anna was clever with machines, just like you, Fishcake. She even built her own airship out of odds and ends. She was attempting to make a long-range radio transmitter here. It never worked very well, and others since have had much more success. But it's a start. With what we brought from Popjoy's workshop and the radio set from his yacht, I am certain we can boost the signal. Who are you signaling to? asks Fishcake. The stalker lets out her hissy laugh. She takes him by the arm and drags him into the ruined bedroom, points through a hole in the roof straight up at the deep blue in the top of the sky. Up there, that's where the receiver is. We are going to send a message into heaven. Part 3 Chapter 32 London Journal 19th of June Seventeen days have passed since Wolf Kobold ran away. Everybody seems to be forgetting him, even me most of the time, even Angie, now that her headache has faded and the lump is going down. Most people think that there's no way Wolf could cross all those miles of green storm territory and get back to Harrow Barrow again. Even if he could, he would never be able to bring Harrow Barrow back east to eat New London, at least not unless war breaks out again. But work on New London is going ahead even faster, just in case. When I first found out what they are building, I thought they were all a bit mad, to be honest. 
But when you see how hard everyone works here and how much they all believe in this crazy new city the engineers have dreamed up, you realize what it must have been like in Anchorage when Freya Rasmussen decided to take it across the ice to America. That was a mad idea too, and I'm sure there were a lot of people who thought it would never work. My mum was so sure of it that she betrayed the whole place to Archangel when she couldn't persuade Dad to leave. But she was wrong, because it did work, didn't it? And I don't want to be like Mum, so I've decided to believe that New London is going to work too. Anyway, Dad's been very keen to do his bit. At first he seemed intent on trying to help the engineers, but the Childermass machines are so different from any technology he's seen before that I think he just got in the way. So he started helping the men lug bits of salvage up to the hangar, but I had a quiet word with Dr. Childermas and explained about his heart trouble, and she had a cue word with Chudley Pomeroy, who took Dad aside and said, what New London really needs is a museum, so that even if it roams to the far side of the world, the people who live aboard it will never forget the old London and what became of it. And since none of us have the time, Tom, he said, perhaps you wouldn't mind putting together a collection. So, Dad has been appointed Head Historian and spends his days scouring the rust heaps for artifacts that will say something to future generations about his London. Everything from old drain covers and tear support ties to a little statue of the goddess Cleo from somebody's household shrine. Meanwhile, I've been out patrolling with the other young Londoners. Mr. Garamond was V-opposed to it at first, but Mr. Pomeroy told him not to be such a B-Y fool, and Angie and her friends are all very friendly, and most impressed when I told them I'd been in an actual battle and seen stalkers and tumblers and stuff. I didn't tell them how completely terrified I was, as it might be bad for morale. Anyway, I've been right across the main debris field several times. It's very spooky, esp at night. But Angie and Cat and the rest are good company, and I've been given a crossbow to use if we're attacked. I'm not sure I could actually shoot anyone, but it makes me feel a bit braver. What I'd really like is one of the lightning guns the engineers built to deal with stalkers, but there aren't very many of those, and only Mr. G's most trusted fighters get to use them, Saab and Cat and people. The Greenstorm stalker birds have been getting very nosy these past few weeks, and the danger bell at Crouch End is forever ringing, telling everyone to get under cover because some flea-bitten old dead buzzard is circling overhead, having a good look at us. Mostly, we've just taken to ignoring them, but when one gets too close to the womb, the boys on duty in the crow's nests there shoot it down with their lightning guns. There are half a dozen hanging outside Crouch End now, all singed and charcoaly. There is one other way of getting rid of them. It's much more dangerous, and Angie and her friends treat it as a sort of sport. Last week, when we were out patrolling, a stalker bird came flying over us. We're supposed to hide when that happens, but Angie said, let's have a spot of molly hawking, and jumped right out into the open. So I followed her. We went along one of the paths that winds between the wreckage heaps, and the bird came after us. I was worried it was going to attack, but Angie said they never do, they're just spies, and she meant to serve it right for snooping. We went on, walking quite fast, and soon I began to realise that we were heading toward the middle of the debris field, the bit they call Electric Lane. Till then I tended to agree with Wolf about the sprites, that they were just a fairy tale, 
But up there, in the middle of London, where everything looks kind of scorched and melted, I suddenly wasn't so sure. I asked Angie if it was safe, and she said, safe-ish, which wasn't very reassuring. But I didn't want her to think I was a coward, so I kept going. After a bit, we came over a rise, and there in front of us was a sort of valley stretching right across the middle of the debris field. It looked quite peaceful, with ponds and trees on its floor, but the wreckage on either side was all charred and twisty-looking. Angie says that it's the place where the core of Medusa fell, having melted its way right down through the seven tiers of London, and that's why Medusa's residue is strongest there. I don't know if it's true. Anyway, I only got a quick glimpse before Angie shoved me into a hollow of the wreckage, all overhung with ivy. Hide, she said. The stupid old stalker bird didn't see us and went soaring out over the valley. It hadn't gone fifty feet before a great snaggly fork of electricity came crackling out of the wreckage and roosted it. There was nothing left but a puff of smoke and some singed feathers that blew away on the wind. I got a bit shuddery afterward, thinking what would have happened to the Jenny if we'd flown into Electric Lane that first day. P.S. Saab Peabody asked me out. I said I'd have to think about it, and he said he supposed I had a boyfriend on the bird road somewhere, and I said I supposed I did. Silly, or what? And now, because it's late and tomorrow is a big day, the first test of the new city, I am going to go to bed. Chapter 33 The Test the morning of the test dawned dull and cloudy, threatening rain. The wind came from the west in indignant squalls, scattering a confetti storm of petals from the blossom trees that had taken root among the debris of London. Not wanting to impose himself on Wren, who was going up to the womb with her new friends, Tom made the trek from Crouch End alone. He scanned the mounds of wreckage beside the track as he walked, for he had fallen into a habit of looking everywhere for fragments that might fit into the new London Museum and give the children who would one day be born upon the new city some notion of what old London had been like. When you knew where to look, the rusting ruin heaps were full of relics, street signs and door handles, hinges and tea-urns. He spotted a pewter spoon with the crest of the Historian's Guild on its handle and slipped it into his pocket. He had eaten with spoons like that Every day of his childhood, it was like a shard of memory made solid, and he liked to think of those future Londoners looking at it and imagining his life. Of course, they would never know the details, how he'd felt and what his dreams had been, his adventures on the bird roads, in the ice wastes, and America. You couldn't expect a pewter spoon to convey that sort of detail. Lately, watching Wren writing in her journal of an evening, Tom had wondered if he shouldn't try and write down some of the things that had happened to him before it was too late. But he was no Thaddeus Valentine. He wasn't even a Nimrod Pennyroyal. Writing did not come easily to him. Anyway, it would have meant writing about Hester, and he didn't think he could do that. He'd not even spoken his wife's name since he came to London. If his new friends ever wondered who Wren's mother was, they kept it to themselves. Perhaps they assumed that she was dead, and that Tom would find it painful to speak of her, which was not so far from the truth. How could he write about Hester for future generations when he did not understand himself why she had done the things she had, 
or what had made him love her. Drawing close to the womb, he caught up with a crowd of his fellow Londoners, all heading in the same direction. Clytie Potts was among them, and she greeted him warmly, glad of his company. Her husband was aboard New London with the engineers. Dr. Childermas is afraid her magnetic levitation system might work too well, she explained. She wants an aviator on hand to steer New London down again if it goes too high. Really? It's a joke, Tom. Oh, Tom laughed with her, although he didn't find it funny. I'm sorry, so much has changed since we were young. So many new inventions. I don't really know what New London is capable of. He thought of the maglev prototypes that Dr. Childermas had shown him. Platforms the size of dinner tables, which manoeuvred around the womb as if by magic, hanging several feet above the ground. If the new city survived, the engineers were planning to apply the same technology to actual tables next. Floating chairs and beds as well, and hovering maglev toys, which they would trade as curios to other small cities. Tom had even heard talk of maglev vehicles, which made him feel oddly sad, because if they worked, They would surely bring an end to the age of airships, and his dear old Jenny Hanover would be obsolete. The thought made his heart ache, or maybe that was the result of the climb from Crouch End. He swallowed one of his green pills and went with Clytie through the entrance to the womb. Inside the shadowy hangar, New London waited, squatting heavily on its oily stanchions and looking less likely to take to the air than any object Tom had ever seen. Small figures were running about on its hull, gesticulating at each other. The engineers seemed to be having trouble with one of their magnetic repellers. Tom scanned the crowd of onlookers for Wren and saw her standing near the front with Angie and Saab and a few other young people whose names he could never remember. He felt proud of her and glad that she was settling in here and making friends. Seeing her from a distance, he was reminded of Catherine Valentine. She had something of Catherine's grace and liveliness, the same quick, dazzling smile. It had never struck him before, but then he had not given much thought to Catherine before he returned to London. Now that he had noticed it, the strange likeness was inescapable. Wren seemed to sense him staring at her, She turned and saw him, standing on tiptoe to wave at him over the sea of heads. Tom waved back, and hoped it was not bad luck to compare her to poor, ill-fated Catherine. A handbell started to ring. This is it, said Clytie. Engineers bustled through the crowd, warning people to stay back near the hangar walls. Everyone fell quiet, looking up expectantly. In the silence they heard Dr. Childermas, who was aboard the new city, Call out, Ready, everybody? Now! There was a humming sound that rose quickly until it was too high to hear. Nothing else happened. One of the stanchions near the new city's stern gave a long groan as if it shared everyone's disappointment. Then the other stanchions began to creak and squeak as well, and Tom realized that it was because they were relaxing. New London, whose dead weight they had supported all these years, was no longer pressing down on them. Scraps of rust came whispering down like November leaves. A forgotten paintbrush fell from a gantry and clattered on the womb floor. The magnetic repellers swiveled slightly as engineers in the city's control rooms realigned them. 
but they still looked like big, misty mirrors. No crackling lightning, no mystical glow, just a faint flicker in the air around them, like a heat haze. Slowly, slowly, like some ungainly insect taking flight, New London rose from its scrap metal cradle and turned a little, first to one side, then the other. It edged forward, and again Tom sensed that faint hum. It works, people started to whisper, glancing at each other's faces, making sure that they were not imagining this. This was how it must have felt when the first airship flew, thought Tom, or when the divine quirk first switched on London's land engines. Lavinia Childermas's machines were going to change the world in ways he could not imagine. Perhaps by the time Wren's grandchildren were born, all cities would hover. Perhaps there would be no need for cities at all. There was a sharp crack. Smoke squirted from some of the vents in New London's keel. The heat haze ripple around the repellers vanished, and the hovering city dropped gracelessly back onto its stanchions with a bellow of straining metal. The spectators groaned in disappointment, pressing themselves against the walls of the womb as the stanchions swayed and workers ran forward to steady them. It don't work, complained a woman standing close to Tom. He said dud, said another. Lavinia Childermas appeared among the unfinished buildings at the edge of New London's upper hull. The womb's acoustics and her own nervousness made her speech almost impossible to hear, but as Tom pushed his way to the exit, he caught a few fragments of what she was saying. A small problem with the Kleist coils. They mustn't give up. Uh, much work still to do. Uh, Fine-tuning. Uh, adjustments. Uh, wait a few more weeks. But do we have a few more weeks? Tom wondered. For as he stepped outside, he heard the drone of green storm airships heading west, and another sound, which he thought at first was thunder, and then realized was the rumble of immense guns somewhere beyond the western horizon. Chapter 34 Displaced Persons I see you're feeling better. This is better? Well, conscious, that's an improvement. Hester rubbed her eye, and tried to bring the ceiling into focus. She felt as thin as water, as if her whole body was just a damp stain drying slowly on this hard horsehair bed. A ghost leaned over her, and solidified into someone she ought to know. She began to remember Airhaven, the girl she'd sprung from Varley's freighter, Lady Naga. She remembered the blow on her head, the fight on Strut 13, You've been very ill. Inoni talked like a doctor and had changed her sackcloth dress for some kind of white military tunic, but she still looked like a schoolboy. Hester stared at her taped-together spectacles and crooked teeth. You'll be all right now. The wound is healing well. Hester remembered airships, the shadow aspect, and then that big green storm job, taking off into thunder people yelling at each other, her yelling, Shrike holding her. Shrike must be disappointed that she'd survived. She raised her head from the pillow to look for him, but he was not there. 
she was alone with Inoni in a square ivory-colored room. Metal shutters had been folded open to let afternoon light in through a big window. On a chair in the corner, her clothes were piled up, neatly folded, her pack and boots beside them on the floor. A couple of her larger guns were propped against the wall, solid and somehow reassuring in this unfamiliar space. What is this place? We're at forward command, Inoni said. It's an old traction city that the storm took years ago. Not in Shanguo, then? Not yet. The fury was badly damaged when we left the line. The cities broke through faster than anyone expected, and their flying machines were everywhere. We limped this far, and we've been stuck here ever since. General Cao is here, too. She's trying to organize a second line of defense, and she's promised to send us on our way as soon as the fury can be repaired. But at the moment, her mechanics are too busy keeping fighting ships airworthy to work on the fury. There's heavy fighting going on north and south of here. This place is just an island in an ocean of hungry cities. Hester half-listened, trying to order her vague memories of her illness and the journey east. She knew now how Theo had felt after she rescued him from Cutler's Gulp. She wished she'd shown him more sympathy. What about the others? she said. Mr. Shrike is here, quite undamaged. He sat with you all the time you were ill. But today General Cao has persuaded him to go out to the front-line trenches to help build the defenses. Manchester and a dozen other cities are closing in on us from the west, so she needs all the help she can get. I've sent word to him that you were stirring. He's bound to be here soon. He'll be delighted that you've pulled through. I doubt it, said Hester. What about Theo? Inoni hesitated. Professor Pennyroyal is here too. He's been flirting shamelessly with General Tsao. Theo! What about Theo? Inoni looked down, hiding behind her annoying black bangs. Gods and goddesses! Hester heaved herself sideways off the bed. She tried to stand, but her head swirled. Something tugged at her arm, and she looked down and saw a transparent plastic tube emerging from the flesh beneath her elbow, attached to an upturned bottle on a stand beside her bed. She cried out in horror and disgust. It's all right, Inoni promised, stopping her as she reached to tug the tube out. It's an ancient technique, a way of getting fluids into you. You've been unconscious for days. We had to... Shaking. Hester sat on the bed's edge, staring out the window. Her sick room seemed to be on the topmost tier of the disabled city. Outside, rooftops and chimneys dropped steeply to a grey-green plain where clumps of soldiers were moving about, half-tracks dragging big guns into position. She came for him, didn't she? Lady Death. Behind her, Inoni said, He went back into the trenches for some reason. She came around the bed. Her hand brushed Hester's bony shoulder. By the time we knew he had gone, it was too late. He must have run straight into the city's bombardment. Hester reached out and grabbed the cord around Inoni's neck, on which her cheap Zagwan crucifix dangled. She pulled it tight, dragging the younger woman's shocked face down to hers. You should have gone after him. You should have saved him. He saved you. But it was herself she blamed. 
She should never have let Theo begin his hair-brained rescue mission. Now he was dead. She let go of Inoni and covered her own face, frightened by the tears that were spilling out of her, the horrible moaning noise she couldn't stop. She had promised herself she would never care about anyone again, and she should have stuck to it. But no, her stupid heart had opened up for Theo, and now he was dead, and she was paying the price for having loved him. She shouted at Inoni, You should have prayed to that old god of yours, to keep him safe, to bring him back. Down on the plain below the city, General Tsao's troops were digging frantic foxholes and city traps. The blades of their spades and picks glinted rhythmically like a shoal of bright fish turning. Up through the sick-room floor came the sounds of marching feet and bellowed orders from the lower tiers, where tired sub-officers were trying to forge new fighting units out of the drabbles of survivors who kept stumbling in from defeats in the west and north. Inoni and Hester sat side by side on the bed. After a while, Inoni said, If God could do things like that, the world wouldn't look the way it does. He can't reach down and change things. He can't stop any of us from doing what we choose to do. What use is he, then? Inoni shrugged. He sees. He understands. He knows how you're feeling. He knows how Theo felt. He knows how it feels to die. And when we die, we go to him. To the sunless country, you mean? Like ghosts? Inoni shook her head patiently. Like children. Do you remember what it was like to be a tiny child, when everything was possible and everything was given to you, and you knew that you were safe and loved and the days went on forever? When we die, it will be like that again. That's how it is for Theo, now, in heaven. How do you know? Did one of those corpses you resurrected tell you this? I just know. They sat side by side, and Inoni put her arm around Hester, and Hester let her. Something about this earnest, humorless young woman touched her, despite her best efforts. It was her goodness and her silly, indomitable hope. She reminded Hester of Tom. They sat on the bed waiting for Mr. Shrike, thinking about Theo in heaven. Outside the window, the day faded to a steel-gray dusk. The lights of advancing cities twinkled all along the western horizon. Theo was not in heaven. He was trudging on foot across an immense, wind-whipped steppe somewhere northeast of forward command. He had been walking for so long that his boots were starting to disintegrate, and he had tied them together with strips of cloth, which kept coming undone, trailing in the mud. He was not alone. Around him the remnants of the Greenstorm's forward divisions were spilling eastward, spurred on by tales of hungry harvester suburbs and mercenary aviators raiding deep into storm territory behind them. When he clawed his way out of the ruins of General Tsao's dugout on the first day of the war, Theo's first thought had been to get home somehow to Zagwa. But cities had been pushing through all along the line. Running from them, he had fallen in with this mass of defeated fleeing soldiers and been swept along in the only direction that seemed safe, east. He had found a place on a half-track, 
but after a few days towny airships bombed the bridges on the road ahead, and he had been forced to get off and hobble along with the stragglers, the walking wounded, the ones deafened or driven mad by what they had seen on the line. Theo felt half mad himself sometimes. Often in the night he woke shaking, dreaming of his time under the city's guns. Mostly, though, he just felt miserable. The landscape didn't help. It had been storm territory for more than a decade, but the storm had never known quite what to do with it. One faction had tried to nurture the natural growth of weeds and scrub that filled the old track marks, and then another had attempted to bulldoze the track marks flat and plant wheat. The result was an undulating, thinly wooded country that turned quickly into a quagmire under the boots of the routed army. From time to time they passed wind farms or small static settlements, but the buildings were all empty, the settlers fled, the fields and houses stripped by soldiers at the front of the column. Theo wondered about Hester and Inoni and Professor Pennyroyal and whether they had managed to escape, and first he hoped that they might come looking for him, but as the scale of the storm's defeat became clear, he stopped hoping. How would they know where to look? If even half the rumours he heard were true, whole armies had been smashed, and the eastern hunting ground must be filled with straggling columns of refugees like the one he'd joined, all trying to reach safety before the hungry cities caught them. He reached the crest of a long slope and saw, away to the north, a jagged smear upon the plain. Some of his companions, he couldn't call them friends, they'd been too stunned and weary even to ask each other's names, had stopped to look at it, pointing and talking. "'What is it?' asked Theo. "'London,' said a Shanguanese sub-officer, "'a powerful barbarian city that the gods destroyed "'when it tried to breach the walls of Batmungompa.' "'The gods were with us then,' said another. "'Now they have turned their backs on us. "'They are punishing Naga and his whore "'for overthrowing our stalker Fang.' A signals officer, his eyes swathed in bandages, said, I am glad I cannot see London. It is a bad luck place. Even looking at it brings misfortune. You think our luck can get any worse? sneered the sub-officer. A shout of airship went up from farther down the column, and everyone fell flat, some crawling under bushes, some trying to scrape holes for themselves in the wet earth. But the ship that came rumbling overhead was just a Zheng Chen hawk moth, with the green lightning bolt of the storm on its tail fins. It settled on the plain a few miles ahead. The troops around Theo went quiet. This was the first storm ship they had seen for many days, and they were wondering what it meant. But Theo was more interested in London. He stared through the mist at its spiny, unwelcoming skyline, trying and failing to imagine it as a moving city. Was Wren really in there somewhere? He dug in his pocket and took out the photograph, studying her face as he had studied it many times on this March East, remembering their long-ago kiss. Love, she had written at the bottom of her letter. But did she mean it? Or was it just one of those loves you end letters with, carelessly, not trying to suggest longing or desire? Still, it gave Theo hope to think that Wren might be so close. London's ghosts didn't scare him. Well, not much. He'd survived the rust water and the line and Cutler's gulp 
and he could not imagine any ghosts more terrifying than that. Like his Shanguanese comrade, he didn't believe his luck could get any worse. An officer in a motorized mud sledge came roaring along the line, stopping at each cluster of soldiers to bellow through a bullhorn, Fresh orders! We are moving southwest! General Cao is making a stand at forward command! Theo heard the soldiers around him muttering doubtfully. They did not believe the enclave at forward command could hold out for long. They wanted to push on to the safety of the mountains. Maybe in Batmont Gompa, which had stood for so long against the cities, there might be hope. Move! the officer was shouting as his sledge went slapping and growling on along the column. Take heart! We are to join with General Cao and smash the barbarians! Food and supplies are waiting on the road to forward command! Even he didn't sound as if he believed it. But everyone knew the penalty for disobeying an order from the storm. Wearily, the soldiers grabbed packs and guns, some grumbling, some cursing, others excited and vowing this time to stop the barbarians forever. Not Theo. He was glad to hear that General Cao was still alive, but this was not his war. Beneath his stolen greatcoat, he was not even in the storm's uniform. He stowed Wren's picture safely in his pocket and slid away from the others, creeping unnoticed down into a flooded track mark as they started to move off. It was almost nightfall by the time he judged it safe to show himself again. He waded across the floor of the track mark and scrambled up the far wall onto flat ground. Nothing was left of the army he had travelled east with, except for a few abandoned packs, a dead horse, some litter blowing about in the wind. The guns in the west were booming again as he started to pick his way across the plain toward the distant outline of the destroyed city. Look for me in London. Chapter 35 Uplink The house at Erdene Tesh hums with the power of the old machines. Driven by a hydroelectric generator in the basement, lights gleam, needles quiver, and components stripped from antique stalker brains tick and chitter to themselves. The room is webbed with cables. In the middle of this nest of machinery, the stalker fang stands, tapping at ivory keyboards. Bright little fireflies dance for her behind the glass of an old goggle screen. She whispers to herself, strings of numbers, letters, cryptic code words culled from her memories of the tin book, the forgotten language of Odin. None of it means anything to Fishcake. When his stalker does not want him to fix or carry something, he wanders the dead rooms, or goes out into the garden and looks at the fish frozen in the ice on the pond, or simply sleeps, clutching his beloved wooden horse. He is sleeping a lot now, as his mind and body withdraw from the hunger and the cold. He has not had much to eat, for although he brought a bag of food with him from Batmungompa, it is running low. His stomach aches with hunger. He has mentioned the problem to his stalker, but she ignores him. Now that her transmitter is finished, she is no longer interested in fishcake. Sometimes he dreams of escaping from this place. He casts hopeful glances at the keys to Popjoy's air yacht, 
which for reasons of her own she has hung around her neck on a cord. He does not dare to snatch them, though. He knows he wouldn't get more than three paces before she cut him down. Tonight, because the rest of the old building is so cold, Fishcake has made his way to her room again, hoping to curl up in the faint warmth of her machines. She is still at work, still typing her chains of numbers. The clatter of her steel fingers on the keys sounds like Lady Death playing dice with dead men's bones down in the sunless country. Hydraulics grizzle up above the ceiling somewhere, sending down a snow of crumbled plaster. Outside, where the real snow whirls around the roof and the stalker birds keep watch for snooping airships, a saucer-shaped aerial turns and tips to focus on a point high in the northwestern sky. Far, far above, something large and old and cold rides the long dark, frosted with space dust, pocked by micrometeors. Solar panels give off a tired gleam, like dusty windows. Inside the armoured hull, a receiver listens patiently to the same wash of static that it has been hearing for millennia. But now something is changing. Inside the static, like flotsam washing ashore in the surf, comes a familiar message. The ancient computer brain detects it and responds. Many of its systems have been damaged over the long years, but it has others, fail-safes and backups. Power cells hum. Glowing ribbons of light begin to weave through the coils of the weapon chamber. Ice crystals tumble away in a bright, widening cloud as heavy shields slide open. Odin gazes down into the blue pool of earth and waits to be told what it must do. Chapter 36 Intruders 22nd of June, I think. I'm writing this in a very dismal spot on the western edge of the ruins of London, listening to the guns in the west. How far does the sound of gunfire travel? No one here is sure, but it's pretty clear that the war is on again and the green storm are losing. Already a few refugees have wandered through the edges of the debris fields. They've moved on of their own accord, or with a bit of prompting from Londoners hiding in the debris and making spooky noises. But what if more come? And what if suburbs and cities come behind them? And what if Wolf Cobalt is already on his way here aboard Harrowbarrow? I'll say this for the Londoners. They don't give up easily. It's been decided that New London simply has to be ready to leave by the end of this week. And although Lavinia Childermas and her engineers look doubtful, they know there's no alternative. While the engineers get busy in the womb, everyone else is starting to crate up the things that will be needed aboard the new city and extra patrols have been sent out to keep watch on the western edges of the field for signs of approaching trouble. That's what leads me to being out here in the wet, instead of tucked up snug in my bed at Crouch End. We've made a camp among the rust heaps, and we'll sleep under the stars tonight, or at least under a sort of rusty overhang, which we are glad of since it will keep the drizzle off. Cat Luperini, who's in charge of our little band, says we should take turns to do guard duty. She's having first go, 
and I'm due to take over it. Wren dropped her pencil and closed the book. Through the steady patter of the rain, she had clearly heard the sound of a bird calling, the signal that the patrols used to communicate with one another across the wreckage. She went to tell Cat about it, but the other girl had already heard. It's Hodge's lot, she said. They need us. The other members of the patrol, Angie Peabody, and a small shy boy named Timex Grout, were waking up, wriggling out from under their blankets and reaching for lanterns and crossbows. Wren's heart beat quickly. It seemed to be wedged somewhere in the region of her tonsils. This could be it, she thought. What if Ron Hodge's patrol on the southwestern edge had seen the lights of Harrowbarrow? What if advance parties from Harrowbarrow were already sneaking through the debris fields, ready to kill anyone they met? She fumbled a bolt out of the quiver on her belt and fitted it into her crossbow. The bird call came again. Cat called back, and the patrol set off quickly through the drizzle. The moon shone half-heartedly behind the clouds. Wren was glad of its light, but she was still terrified that she would lose the others and be left wandering in this insane rustscape all alone. Stories that she had scoffed at in Crouch End seemed very real out here in the night shadows. She started remembering all the scary scraps of London folklore she had picked up from her father, the dark, supernatural shapes that haunted the nightmares of the old city, the ghosts of Boudicca and Spring-Heeled Jack, the awful, salvage-stealing Wombles. She almost screamed when a silhouette rose up in the path ahead, but it was just Ron Hodge, the rest of his patrol behind him. "'What's going on?' asked Cat. Intruder, said Ron shakily. We got a glimpse of him, then lost him. He's round here somewhere. Just the one? Dunno. Cat took charge, ordering everybody to fan out and search. They called to each other as they crept through the spires and angles of the wreck, and they used words now as well as bird sounds. Sometimes just the sound of voices emerging from the dead scrap piles was enough to make intruders turn tail and run. There was no sign of anyone. What's that? yelped Timex. Wren ran to him, scrambling through drifts of rust flakes as crunchy as breakfast cereal. There! he hissed as she reached him. And she saw it too, just for an instant. A movement between two nearby blocks of wreckage. She tried to call out for Cat and the others, but her mouth was too dry. She fumbled for the safety catch of her crossbow, telling herself that if the stranger was one of Wolf's men from Harrowbarrow, she would have to kill him before he killed her. "'Who's there?' shouted a voice. A familiar accent. Theo's accent. It made Wren feel shivery with relief. This wasn't an attacker, just some lost African airman, another deserter from the retreating Greenstorm armies that the lookouts had sighted passing by. Cat had said that half a dozen had stumbled into the fringes of the debris field over the past few days, and it had been easy enough to frighten them away. Wren wondered what would be the best way to convince this one that the wreck was full of restless spirits, should she leap out, waving her arms and going, Woo! Just then, a lot of things happened at once. The stranger, who was closer than he had sounded, appeared suddenly around the corner of an old engine block, 
Cat and Angie, coming over the crest of the wreckage behind him, unveiled their lanterns, the dazzling ghost lights that had driven off so many previous interlopers. The stranger, alarmed, ran straight toward Wren and Timex, and Timex barged backward, crashing into Wren, whose crossbow went off accidentally with a startling twang and a kick that nearly broke her arm. The stranger fell in the splay of light from the lanterns, and Wren, catching sight of his face, saw that he did not just sound like Theo. He was Theo. Ow! he said weakly. There was a sound of slithering rust flakes as the other Londoners came running. Wren stood, shaking her head, rubbing her wrenched arm, waiting to wake up. This was a dream, and a pretty poor one. Theo could not be here. Theo was in Zagwa. That was not Theo, lying there, dying on the metal in front of her. But when she edged closer and Cat held up her lantern, there was no mistaking his good, handsome, dark brown face. Theo, she said. I didn't mean to. Oh, Quirk, she started to claw at his soggy coat, looking for the crossbow bolt. Ron Hodge arrived, keen to assert himself now that the intruder had turned out harmless. Leave him, Wren, he ordered. Oh, go away, yelled Wren. He's a friend, and I think I've shot him. But there was no hole in Theo's coat, no blood, no jutting bolt. Her shot had gone wide. I just slipped, Theo said weakly, looking at Wren as if he did not believe it could really be her. He half sat up and stared warily at the young Londoners crowding around him. Wren couldn't take her eyes off him. How thin and pained and tired he looked. And how glad she was to see him. Theo tried out a smile. I got your letter, he said. They made their way back to their camp, where Angie lit a small fire and heated up some soup for Theo, who was shivering with cold and exhaustion. Wren sat by him as he drank it. It felt strange to be with him again. She had been imagining him safe in sunny Zagwa. How did he come to be caught up in the green storm's defeats? She had asked, but he just said, It's complicated, and she hadn't liked to press him. She wondered if he still remembered kissing her at Komombo Airkey, and supposed that he must. He'd come all the way to London to find her, after all. We shouldn't be mollycoddling him, said Ron Hodge, grumpily, pacing about at the edge of the firelight. He's Greenstorm. He's not, cried Wren. He's in a Greenstorm uniform. Only the coat, said Theo, lifting it open to show his flyer's clothes beneath. I stole it from a dead man on the way east. I'm not Greenstorm. I don't know what I am. He's a Zagwan, said one of Ron's group. Zagwans are anti-tractionists. We can't let an anti-tractionist into London. Wren and her dad have already brought one spy among us. Now she's asking us to take in a mossy. So what do you think we should do with him? asked Cat Luperini. Kill him? The boys looked sheepish. When daylight comes, me and Wren will take him over to Crouch End, Cat decided. Wren slept fitfully, curled up beside Theo. The wreckage made an uncomfortable bed, but even without the rivets and rust flakes digging into her, she could not have slept. 
she had to keep studying his sleeping face to make quite sure she had not dreamed him. And then she suddenly woke to daylight, and it was time to leave. They walked eastward, Wren and Theo together, Cat following with her crossbow. As they went, Theo told Wren his story, and she learned how he had met her mother, and how they had travelled together all the way to the Greenstorm's lines. And after that? asked Wren. I don't know. I think she's safe, probably in Shanguo by now. Wren was not sure what to feel. She'd grown used to thinking that Mum was dead. It was unsettling to find out that she was still alive, and to hear the way Theo spoke of her as if he admired her. And that she should be travelling around with that horrible stalker, Mr. Shrike. Wren didn't like to think about it, and she was almost relieved when Cat suddenly shouted, Down! And she was able to concentrate on dragging Theo off the path and into cover. A stalker bird coasted low over the ruins, so close that Wren heard the sound of its wing feathers combing the air. Its too big head swung mechanically from side to side. Cat scrambled over to join Wren and Theo. I saw it circling up high when we left the camp, she said. I've been keeping my eye on it while you two nattered. I hoped it would go on its way, but it's watching us. Must have seen that fire we lit last night. Wren peeked out from under the slab of deck plate that hid them. The bird had gone higher, circling. As Wren watched, it flapped its raggedy wings and swooped off across the debris fields in the direction of Crouch End. They're definitely getting nosier, said Cat. Spy birds, said Wren to Theo, thinking he looked scared. They come over and take pictures of us for General Naga's album. Theo shook his head. That wasn't a spy bird, Wren. That was a Lamagaya. We had a flock of them aboard my carrier when I was with the storm. They're used for armed reconnaissance. The girls looked blankly at him, as girls so often did when he slipped into the storm's military jargon. They're attack birds, Wren. I think your friends are in danger. The Green Storm's birds were certainly taking a great interest in the debris fields that morning. As Tom worked away, wrapping and packing the treasures he had found among the ruins, ready for their transfer aboard New London, he kept hearing the clang, clang, clang of the danger bell, warning any Londoner who was out in the open to beware. By lunchtime, the still smouldering carcasses of three more spy birds were hanging outside the canteen, displayed as trophies by the keen lookouts who had shot them down with lightning guns when they showed too much interest in the womb. Tom felt pleased by the way the re-killing of the birds lifted his fellow Londoners' spirits, but he could not help wondering whether shooting them had been wise. Might it not just make their masters even more suspicious about what was happening inside the wreck? Chudley Pomeroy told him not to fret. Those birds have seen nothing that would make the storm think we're anything but a rabble of squatters. Even if they had, the storm have bigger worries than us. By the time they get around to sending airships over, New London will be gone. Tom surreptitiously touched wood. He knew the engineers were working as hard as they could to perfect the Childermas engines, but he could not help thinking of the failed test yesterday. What if the next test was a failure too? He wished he could do more to help. 
He had been moved when Chudley Pomeroy asked him to become head historian, and he took his relic collecting seriously, but he knew that it was a made-up job, not really necessary. New London was about the future, not the past. With lunch over, Pomeroy announced that he was going to the womb, and Tom volunteered to go with him. He had repaired the Jenny Hanover often enough, after all. He was sure the engineers could find some small welding or wiring task to entrust him with aboard their new city. But they had not gone more than twenty yards from Crouch End when the danger bell began to ring again. Merciful quirk! exclaimed Pomeroy, turning back toward the entrance. How are we supposed to get anything done at all with these incessant interruptions? I've a good mind to write a stiff letter to General Naga and tell him it just ain't neighborly. Tom had grown quite used to the sight of distant stalker birds, but those new carcasses strung up outside the canteen made him uneasy. He glanced at the sky as he hurried Pomeroy toward shelter, and he was glad he had. The birds had returned in force, and they were not circling dots this time, but hurtling black shapes, dropping like missiles out of the sun. Get down! he shouted, shoving Pomeroy to the ground just as a bird swept over, its steel claws whisking past a fraction of an inch above the old man's head. The danger bell was jangling again, and on the road to the womb people were scattering and shouting. Saab Peabody, who downed a spy bird earlier, came running out of Crouch End with his lightning gun at the ready, keen to add another to his tally. A bird came down on him, flailing its razor claws at his face, and he dropped the gun and fell blinded and screaming. Other birds were crashing through the bean poles in the vegetable gardens, harrying a small terrified group of children as their teachers tried to herd them into the safety of Crouch End. Even in there, among the cosy huts, the dead wings flapped. Tom watched it all, trembling, doing his best to shelter Pomeroy. Saab seemed to have passed out. His lightning gun had fallen only a few feet away, and in his younger days Tom might have tried to reach it and do something heroic. But he was terrified of having another seizure, and so scared of the birds that he could barely move. Wren, Theo, and Cat had just emerged out of the rust hills west of Crouch End when the attack began. They all heard the bell clanging, and the two girls stared without really understanding as the people below them scattered before the swift, swooping shapes of the birds. That's Dad, said Wren, seeing Tom pinned to the ground beside Pomeroy, about thirty feet away. She turned to Theo, but Theo had already seen Tom for himself, and he was sprinting toward him through the bird-scoured sunlight. Cat started to sob with panic. Wren snatched her crossbow and clicked the safety catch off. They acted very military, these young Londoners, but it had always been a game for them till now. They'd never seen real violence before. Wren had, and although she knew she would shake like a jelly later, for the moment she was very calm. She took aim at a bird as it plunged toward Theo and put a bolt through its body just before it reached him. One crossbow bolt would not re-kill a stalker bird, but the blow was enough to throw it off course, and Theo ran on without even knowing the danger he had been in. The bird's attention had been drawn to Wren. It swerved toward her. She grabbed another bolt from Cat's quiver, but the bird would be upon her long before she could reload. She dropped the bow, snatched up a twisted length of iron drain pipe from the mounds of wreckage beside the path, 
and smashed it out of the air as its claws came reaching for her. Then Cat grabbed a shard of metal too, and together they beat the thrashing bird to pieces. Theo was halfway to Tom before he realized that he hadn't a plan. He had only started running because he wanted Wren to see that he was brave, and because he had always thought that Mr. Natsworthy really couldn't look after himself. Bird shadows whisked across the ground. The reflections of wings flashed up at him from puddles. He wasn't even armed. A little way beyond Tom and the old man, a silvery gun lay on the ground. Theo threw himself at it, feeling claws rip the air above him as he dived. He rolled over, fumbling with the gun, feeling for a trigger among its complicated array of wires and tubes. He wished it had been something simpler. All soldiers knew that you couldn't rely on that sort of reverse-engineered old-tech garbage. But he told himself that beggars can't be choosers, and pointed the gun at a passing bird. When he squeezed what he hoped was the trigger, a bolt of pure lightning dropped the bird limp and smouldering at his feet. Startled, he stood up, swinging the gun toward another bird. When he had brought down four of them, the others started to notice him. But by then, Londoners were shooting at them too, gaudy crackles of energy leaping from other guns like his, smoking birds and showers of feathers falling all around. And then, quite suddenly, the attack was over. A lone bird soared eastward, too high to be touched by the bolts of lightning that crackled up at it. The danger bell clanged on and on and on, until someone went to tell the girl who was ringing it that she could stop now. People appeared nervously from the holes and clefts where they had been hiding, brushing rust flakes from their clothes, silent and pale with shock. The injured moaned, their friends shouted for help. Why did they attack? people were asking. Why now, after all these years? That wasn't a real attack, said Theo, starting to shiver a little, as he imagined what could have happened to him if those had been heavy assault birds instead of a reconnaissance flock. That was a probe. They want to test your strength. He stared about, getting his first real look at this unlikely settlement. The Londoners stared back at him, wondering where he had sprung from, this young man in the uniform of their enemy. Tom stood slowly, and started to help Chudley Pomeroy stand too. His heart was beating very hard, but he did not feel ill. His only worrying symptom was a hallucination that would not fade. He seemed to see Theo Ungoni standing before him, clutching a lightning gun. "'Hello, Mr. Natsworthy,' said the hallucination." with a nervous wave. And then Wren came running, dirty and with a cut on her forehead, but otherwise unharmed, thank Quirk, running to hug him and ask if he was all right, and say, It's Theo, Daddy. Theo's here. You remember Theo? Theo's come all the way from Africa to find us. Chapter 37 Love Among the Ruins it was not a good time for a young anti-tractionist in a green storm greatcoat to arrive in London. People were frightened and angry, shaking their fists toward Shan Guo and asking what they had ever done to make the mosses attack them. Things might have gone badly for Theo if it had not been for the fact that he had shot down five of the nightmare birds. That don't signify anything, insisted Mr. Garamond. 
That could all be part of their plan, to make us accept him, so he can murder us all in our beds. But Pomeroy told him to put a sock in it. The young man had saved him, and a lot of other people besides, and he, for one, was ready to welcome him. Tom and Wren joined in, explaining how Theo had flown with them for a time aboard the Jenny, and visited the traction city of Komombo without showing any desire to murder anyone. And slowly, grudgingly, people started to admit that Theo might not be an agent of the storm after all, only a lost stranger who should be offered hospitality. The injured were treated, the lookouts redoubled, the lightning guns recharged. Chudley Pomeroy, who looked badly shaken but insisted that he was quite all right, asked Theo a lot of questions about how the war was going, very few of which Theo could answer, because Chudley Pomeroy had a historian's notion of battles, all about tactics and the plans and decisions of generals, none of which Theo had really noticed while he was fleeing through the mud. In the late afternoon, when the slanting sunlight shone right into Crouch End and through the windows of their little shack, Tom and Wren were finally able to get Theo to themselves. Over cake and nettle tea that Wren scrounged from the kitchens, they told him the story of their adventures and listened to his own. And it was there that Tom first learned of Theo's meeting with Hester, of how she had rescued him in the sand sea, and of what had followed, right up to the moment when she boarded that corvette with Lady Naga. Wren took her father's hand as they listened. There were tears in his eyes. But all he said was, Where is Hester now? Theo shook his head. It was such chaos on the line. I think her ship got away safely. But wherever she is, she'll be all right. I've never met anyone as brave or as tough as her. And Mr. Shrike will look after her. Shrike? said Tom, and shook his head. So it was him you two met on Cloud Nine. I thought I'd finished him forever on the Black Island. I hate to think of the old brute up and about again. I wouldn't be here now if he wasn't, Mr. Natsworthy, said Theo. He's changed since Inoni re-resurrected him. Tom didn't doubt what Theo said, but he still couldn't shake off his memories of the old Shrike. Vicious and insane, who had hunted him through the rust-water marshes twenty years before. And now Shrike and Hester were together again, just as they'd been when she was a young girl. A rare, bitter feeling filled him. He was jealous of the ancient stalker. In the evening, when the sun had gone down into the haze of the west, and the sky above the debris fields was turning lilac, Wren took Theo up to the womb so that he could see for himself what the Londoners were doing there. She felt nervous, for although he was a moderate, civilized sort of anti-tractionist, he was still an anti-tractionist, and had been brought up to hate and fear all moving cities. But New London had become so important to her that she had to show him. She had to know what he felt about it. When they reached the hangar, he stood looking up for a long time at the new city, while Wren nervously explained how it had come to be and what those funny mirror things were supposed to do. She couldn't tell what he thought or whether he was even listening. But it hasn't got any wheels, he said at last. I told you, it doesn't need any, said Wren. So you needn't look so old-fashioned at it. It isn't going to churn up your precious green earth or squash any flowers or bunnies. It's barely a traction city at all. 
Think of it as a very large, low-flying airship. They walked through the shadows under New London. Above their heads, engineers clambered about like spiders on the city's belly, making adjustments and repairs. All around them, on the hangar floor, kegs of water and crates of salted meat were waiting to be loaded aboard, along with coops filled with clucking poultry, and stacks of tinned food unearthed by salvage teams from lost groceries and storerooms deep in the debris fields. Even the shacks where the people of London had lived for so long were being dismantled and loaded on handcarts and scrap metal sledges for transport to the holds of the new suburb. As Wren led Theo outside, they met a whole line of them coming up the track from Crouch End, filling the twilight with dust and rust flakes. From the northern end of the womb came the voices of Len Peabody and his mates, busy clearing wreckage from in front of the hangar entrance and setting the demolition charges that would blast the doors off when the time came for New London to depart. "'So what do you think?' asked Wren, worried by Theo's silence. She drew him off the track into a narrow cleft of the wreckage where apple trees grew. She thought a mossy might feel more at ease there amid the gentle whisper of the leaves. She thought he would be heartened by the way nature was reclaiming the ruins of London. "'Tell me,' she said. "'You are set on going with them?' Theo asked. "'Yes,' said Wren. "'Dad wants to. I want to, too. I want to stand aboard New London and feel it moving, racing off to new places. Hunting? Trading? The way Anchorage used to. Bigger cities will hunt you. They won't catch us.' A bird fluttered in the undergrowth. Only a black bird, but it made them both flinch and they moved closer together. "'The thing is,' he said, "'I didn't expect any of this. "'I thought you were just exploring here.' "'That's Penny Royal's fault,' said Wren, "'who always talked too much when she felt nervous. "'If he hadn't let my letter get all soggy, "'you'd have known about Wolf's theory. "'Hush!' Theo touched his finger to her lips to quiet her. "'He said, "'I thought you'd be in danger.' now that the barbarians are driving east again. I hoped I might find you and take you and your father home with me somehow to Zagwa. Oh, bother, thought Wren, because she had been pretty sure that he was about to kiss her again, and now she saw it wasn't going to work. He was a mossy, and she was a city girl. He was never going to approve of New London. And then she thought, Well, what does it matter? The way things were going, they might both be eaten by Harrowbarrow or pecked to bits by stalker-birds before tomorrow night. So she kissed him instead. A single electronic eye focused for an instant on Wren and Theo, zooming in on the smudge of their body heat amid the cold sprawl of the wreck. A computer brain considered them for a fraction of a fraction of a second then forgot them. Odin swung its gaze westward, pulling back, struggling to make sense of the incomprehensible world it had awoken to. Where were the sprawling cities of its masters, New York and San Angeles, that it had been put in orbit to defend? Where had the new mountain ranges come from? All those new seas— and what were those huge vehicles creeping across Europe, trailing their long, sooty smears of exhaust smoke behind them? The old weapon 
clung to the one familiar thing that this changed world could offer it, the stream of coded data rising like a silken thread from somewhere in the uplands of Central Asia. Chapter 38 The Million Voices of the Wind The city's war was going well. Panzerstadt Winterthur had been lost, and Darmstadt and the Dortmund conurbation were bogged down in the rustwater somewhere, but the rest had found resistance surprisingly light. Up in the smoky skies, their flying machines wheeled and swerved, harrying the withdrawing shoals of Greenstorm airships, while their own ships, airborne gun platforms hung from armoured gas bags, lured flocks of stalker birds in close and hammered them into tornadoes of slime and feathers. When it was quite clear that the storm's armies had been shattered, Adlai Brown decided that the time had come for Manchester to do its bit. Within a few weeks, the good old days of municipal Darwinism would return, and he meant to see to it that Manchester was at the top of the food chain when they did. His city gathered a guard of harvester suburbs around it and rolled eastward with its jaws open, filling its gut with the rubble of watchtowers and fortresses barns and farms and wind turbines. By the time Wren kissed Theo in the ruins of London, Manchester was shoving its way through mile upon mile of lately planted forest toward the static settlement called Forward Command. Around it swooped the flying ferrets, strafing mossy rocket nests. The armoured suburbs of Werwolf and Evercreech raced ahead of their mother city like well-trained dogs. A flight of fox spirits rose from somewhere in the mossy citadel and tore toward Manchester. All her Twombleys signalled the rest of her squadron and the ferrets pulled together, rising in a howling flock toward the ships, which broke right and left, scattering air-to-air -air rockets. Orla cursed as a machine on her starboard wing, the wicker gyrocopter Big Blue Plymouth, ran into an oncoming rocket and blew apart, blinding her with its smoke. She got onto the tail of the fox spirit that had fired the rocket and chased it westward, tearing chunks out of its steering vanes with the combat wombat's cannon. She stitched incendiary bullets along its flank and watched as the gas cells started to burn. White escape balloons blossomed around the gondola as the crew bailed out. Some aviators regarded escape balloons as good target practice, but Orla had always insisted that the ferrets shoot down ships, not people. So she swung around the collapsing airship and started back to help her comrades deal with the rest. She was about three miles from Manchester when the sky split open. There was a shriek and a roar, struggling to keep the wombat's nose up as it dropped toward the ground. She watched a lance of white fire lean across the sky. The wombat's canvas wings began to smolder. Orla called on various gods and goddesses and trained her fire extinguisher on the burning patches. The sky was filled with smoke and light. She thought she saw the fire lance sweep northward, swerving toward one of Manchester's suburbs. As it moved away and the shrieking, roaring sound faded, she realized that the wombat's engines had failed and she could not restart them. Surfing on the thermals above the burning forests, she turned toward Manchester, but Manchester was motionless its armour holed, its tracks destroyed, tear upon ruined tear leaking flame into the scorched sky. 
Orla had never imagined that there could be so much fire in the world. She circled the carcass once, weeping, aghast at the thought of so many dead and dying. There was nothing she could do to help them. She steered northwest, searching for somewhere to set down. The light in the sky had gone out, but it had drawn a sweeping line of brush fires across the plains, and at points along the line great pyres were burning where suburbs and cities had stood. At last, as the combat wombat began to lose height in the cooler air, an armoured city loomed ahead. It was Murnau, motionless but whole, and its lookouts recognised Orla's machine and opened a portal in the top-tier armour to let her inside. As the wombat touched down on the Uber den Linden, she felt the wheels buckle, and then the whole undercarriage gave way. She slewed to a standstill in a storm of splintering wood and snapped string, a flapping of seared canvas. She hadn't realised how badly the poor old kite had been burned, hadn't realised how badly she'd been burned, until she saw the men who ran to help her staring. Her pink flying suit was charred black, her face black too, except for the patches around her eyes where her goggles had protected her. Smoke trailed from her gauntlets as she waved the medical crew aside and staggered, coughing, toward the Rathaus. She had to tell someone what she had seen. For all she knew, she was the only one who had escaped alive. I must see the Kriegsmarschall, she spluttered. Von Kobold met her on the Rathaus steps. Mzdwombly, that's light, those fires. We have lost contact with Manchester, Breslau, Moloch Maschinenstadt... What the devil is going on out there? Manchester's gone, said Orla Twombly. She collapsed, and von Kobold caught her, smudging his white tunic with soot and blood. They're all gone, she said. Turn your city about. Retreat. Run. The storm have a new weapon, and it destroys everything. A messenger, sir. A messenger from the front. The voice of Naga's aide booms and echoes around the inside of the war room in the Jade Pagoda, echoes and booms around the inside of the general's head. He can't imagine what the man is so excited about. All week long there have been nothing but messengers from the front, and they have brought nothing but bad news. Naga isn't even certain where the front is any longer. Whatever luck he had has deserted him. Maybe it died with Inoni. General Naga! Well, here he is, this famous messenger, and nothing much to look at, a moon-faced sub-officer from one of the listening posts in the western mountains. Well? The boy bows so low that pencils shower out of his tunic pockets and rattle on the floor. A, a thousand apologies, General Naga. I had to come in person. All our stalker birds have been reassigned to the front, and there is something interfering with radio signals. What is it? Barks Naga. At least he tries to bark it. It comes out as a tetchy sigh. The Lady Naga, sir. How bright his eyes are, this boy. Was he even born when the wars began? She is alive, sir. A stalker bird came in from General Tsao's division. It was badly damaged, but we deciphered the message. Lady Naga is on her way home. The boy, who seemed so porridge-featured and uninteresting a few moments ago, is actually remarkably handsome, brave, intelligent. 
What is the storm thinking of, making a young man of his caliber carry messages for outlandish listening posts? Naga lurches to his feet and lets his armor carry him toward the map table. Promote this man to lieutenant. No, captain. He feels almost young again. Inoni is alive. A hundred new strategies bloom in his head like paper flowers dropped into water. Surely one of them will halt the towny advance. She is alive. She is alive. She is alive. He is so overjoyed that it is almost a whole minute before he stops to wonder about the young woman who came to him out of the desert with such graphic stories of Inoni's death. He snatches a sword from one of his generals. Officers and stalkers scatter before him as his armor marches him out of the war room, up the stairs. General Naga, sir, shouts one of the men behind him. The girl, Rohini, you fool, he yells, or tries to yell. The truth is starting to dawn. What has she done to me? Fetch the guard! But he doesn't really want the guard to deal with her. He wants to deal with her himself, with this good sword. He wants to split her head like a melon. He doesn't bother knocking when he reaches the door of her chamber, way out in the western wing. His armor carries him through it, and shards and splinters of antique wood rattle off him as he climbs the five stairs to her living space. She is rising from her seat to greet him as he reaches the top step. Lovely and demure as ever, a big window behind her opening onto a moonlit balcony. My wife is alive, says Naga. She is flying home. Are you going to keep up the mute act, or do you have any final words? For a moment she stares at him, hurt, frightened, confused. Then, realizing it just won't wash any more, she laughs. You old fool. I'm glad she's alive. Now she'll see where her peace has brought us. To the edge of destruction. Not even you will listen to her tractionist lies now. What do you mean? You still don't understand. Rohini laughs again, a little wildly. She's working for them. She's always been working for them. Why do you think she married you? You're not exactly the answer to a young girl's dream, Naga. Half a man, wrapped up in clanking armour. Not even that soon. I'm going to kill you, General. And your people will rise up and kill your traitor wife. Then they will be ready to welcome their real leader back when she reveals herself. What are you... Naga starts to say, and pauses because at this point Rohini pulls off her hair, which turns out to be a wig, beneath which two things are concealed. Short, blonde hair, which clashes oddly with her umber face, and a small gas pistol, with which she shoots him. Naga's breastplate saves him from the bullet, but the impact makes him take a step backward, and he goes crashing and slithering down the stairs. Talking about... he asks the ceiling, as he lies in the splinters of the wrecked door, dazed. Rohini, or whoever she is, appears at the top of the stairs. The gun is still in her hand. This time she aims at his face, not his armor. She is still smiling. She says, Cynthia Twite, of the Stalker Fang's Special Intelligence Group. 
A few of us kept the faith, General. We knew she would rise again. You've been poisoning me. The tea, you... That's right, says the girl chirpily. And now I'm going to finish the... Except she doesn't even finish the sentence. Because just at that moment, a shaft of light outside stabs in through the window, so bright that it looks solid, so hot that it sets Cynthia and everything else in the room instantly on fire. A roaring, shrieking noise drowns out her screams. In the shadows of the stairwell, Naga feels the heat on his face like the breath from an open furnace. Above him, Cynthia Twite is a black branch, burning. There is a sound of crashing masonry. The jade pagoda heaves sideways as if it's having second thoughts about perching here on the mountainside. Naga tries to stand, but his armor won't obey him. Cinders of Cynthia rattle down around him as the light fades. Help! he yells into the smoke. Help! Behind him, an ancient stone wall is tugged aside like a curtain. The main part of the Jade Pagoda is gone. He is looking down into the valley where Tianjing has stood, the capital of anti-tractionism for a thousand years. There is nothing there but fire and the million mournful voices of the wind. Chapter 39 Firelight Ren began to feel embarrassed as she and Theo walked down to Crouch End. They had been alone in that nook in the wreckage for much longer than she'd intended. She was pretty sure she had finally gotten the hang of this kissing business, but she couldn't help but feel that everyone would know what she had been doing. Even when she let go of Theo's hand, there was a sort of electric feeling in the air between them, and they couldn't stop glancing at each other. But although half of London seemed to be standing about in the open space outside Crouch End, none of them so much as looked at Theo or Wren. They were all staring westward, and as Wren joined them, she saw that the sky above the dinosaur spines of the wreckage was glowing red, as if a huge fire were burning just beyond the horizon. "'What is it, Mr. Luperini?' asked Wren, spotting Cat's father standing nearby. "'Is it the war?' Luperini shook his head, shrugged. Faint, eerie noises blew in on the wind, shriekings and roarings. A ghostly wing of light lit up the western half of the sky, blanching the stars. Wren took Theo's hand again. "'Reminds me of the night we zapped old Bayreuth,' someone said. "'Wren!' Tom came hurrying over to them. "'I was wondering where you'd got to. "'What do you make of this, Theo?' Theo shook his head. How long has it been going on? About a half hour. Surely you must have noticed that first flash. Um, said Wren. Theo frowned at the sky. If it's gunfire, it's not like any I've seen before. Dr. Abrol came hurrying down the track from the listening post on the edge of the debris field, where he spied on the Green Storm's radio messages and on those of the approaching cities. Londoners gathered around him, calling out to ask what he had heard on the airwaves. It's, it's hard to be sure, he said nervously, his spectacles flickering with reflections of the sky. 
something keeps interfering with the signals. But it seems, it sounds as if... What? What? the people around him urged. He swallowed hard, his Adam's apple making a neat little bob. Whole cities have been destroyed, he said, and had to raise his voice to make himself heard over the cries, the curses, the hisses of indrawn breath. Manchester, all sorts of tracks and stats, and suburbs. Old tech, cried Chudley Pomeroy, who had come wandering out in his dressing gown to see what all the fuss was about. It has to be the green storm have some sort of old tech weapon. But why wait until now to use it? wondered Clytie. Who knows? Perhaps even they are scared of it. It must be horribly powerful. But where did they find it? other voices asked. What on earth is it? Lurpak Flint stood behind Clytie, his arms wrapped around her. Perhaps it is not anything on earth at all. Remember the ancients left weapons in orbit. What if the green storm have found a way to wake one? There are distress calls on the green storm's airwaves too, Dr. Abrol said. Reports of an explosion at Tianjin. It's very confused. Sorry. Maybe the traction stats have sent airships to Tianjin to try and blow up the transmitter that controls this weapon. Pomeroy suggested. Another pulse of arctic light lit the sky. Doesn't look like they hit it, said Len Peabody. This is bad, ain't it? I mean, what's to stop the Mossies from turning their toy on New London as soon as they see us leaving the debris field? Pomeroy sighed, shrugged. Why, nothing, he said. It is a problem, as you say, but it is not one we can do anything about. All we can do is pray to Quirk and Cleo and all the other gods that the green storm will not think us worth wasting a blast of their spiffy new superweapon on. New London is small, after all. Quirk willing, we may yet slip away, go north out of this horrible world the cities and the storm have made. I fancy seeing the ice wastes before I die. He raised his voice a little, so that everyone else stopped staring at the sky and turned to listen. This does not alter our plans. It may even help us in a dreadful way. It may delay Harrow Barrow's arrival. So go to your beds and try and rest. There's nothing to be gained by watching this fireworks party. And we have hard work ahead of us tomorrow. I, for one, could do with the snooze. <laughs> the clumps of Londoners began to disperse, wandering away in ones and twos to their homes. Tom recognised the look on the faces of those who passed him. He had seen it at Batmont Gompa nineteen years ago. It was the look of people who have just learned that a civilization quite opposed to their own has just become the most powerful on earth. Despite Pomeroy's brave words, they were afraid. Only Wren and Theo, walking with heads together and their arms writhed around each other's waists, looked calm. They did not believe that some ancient weapon could come between them. 
they imagined the feelings they shared were stronger than the storm and the cities and all the old tech in the world. Tom let them go past him and watched them as they walked on ahead, remembering how he had once felt like that with Hester. He walked toward Crouch End beside Chudley Pomeroy. The old man was moving slowly, as if the stalker birds had shaken him more badly than he was admitting. But when Tom offered him an arm to lean on, he waved it away. I'm not quite incapable yet, Apprentice Natsworthy, though I must say things have been getting jolly exciting since you and your daughter arrived. Birds and burbs and doomsday weapons, there's barely a minute's peace. Another pallid flicker of light came from the western sky. It seemed brighter this time, and Tom thought he saw a white blade of light slice across the stars, striking down at the earth from some immeasurable height. Again, faintly, he heard that roaring, shrieking sound. Great quirk, he whispered. They didn't muck about, those ancients. Was Lurpak right? Is it really up in orbit somewhere? It's possible, said Pomeroy. There is all sorts of stuff still circling up there. The old records list a few weapons that the ancients were supposed to have hung in heaven. The diamond bat, Jinju fourteen, the nine sisters, Odin. Most of them must have been destroyed in the sixty-minute war, or fallen out of the sky in all the millennia since— but I suppose it's possible that one's still up there, and Naga's people have managed to awaken it. Odin, said Tom. I've heard that name somewhere. Quirk Preservus! You must have actually been paying attention during one of my lectures, Natsworthy, <laughs> chuckled Pomeroy. But he sounded weary, and Tom started walking again, thinking that it could not be good for the old historian to be hanging about here in the chill air. The white light had gone now, anyway. There was nothing to see but a sinister reddish glow in the west. The name stood for Orbital Defense Initiative, Pomeroy said as they strolled on together. It was part of the American Empire's last furious arms race with Greater China. I wonder where on earth our mossy friends dug up the access codes. Quirk almighty, Tom said suddenly with such concern in his voice that Pomeroy stopped again and turned to peer at him. Everything all right, Natsworthy? Yes, said Tom, but he was lying. He had remembered why the name Odin sounded familiar. That had been the only legible word among the thousands of numbers and symbols scratched on the pages of the Tin Book of Anchorage, the relic that Wren had helped the Lost Boys steal from Vineland. Tom had almost forgotten about the book, he had assumed it was destroyed when Cloud Nine fell. Naga's people must have taken it with them to Shanguo and used it to arouse the dreadful weapon in the sky. Please, he said, don't mention any of this to Ren. Pomeroy chuckled again and nudged him. Don't want to spoil her romance, eh? <laughs> don't blame you, Natsworthy. It's good to see that our young people are getting on with the serious business of falling in love with each other, despite all these trivial distractions. And I like that Theo and Goni. They'll be good for each other. If they live through this, said Tom, if any of us do. 
the forces of history will decide that, said Pomeroy. I've studied history all my life, and the one thing I've learned for certain is that you can't stand against it. It's like a river in flood, and we are just swept along in it. The big people, like Naga or those Traktionstadt fellows, may try to swim against the current for a time, but little people, like us, the best we can hope for is to keep our heads above water for as long as we can. And when we go under? asked Tom. What then? Pomeroy laughed. Then it's someone else's turn. Your daughter and her young man, for instance. A London historian's daughter and an anti-tractionist. Maybe they're the future. They were drawing close to his comfortable little book-lined hut. As he turned and took Tom's hand, Tom said suddenly, Mr. Pomeroy, if anything happened to me, you would look after Wren, wouldn't you? Pomeroy frowned. He seemed about to say something flippant, but then realized how serious Tom was, and nodded instead. Wren has Theo to look after her, he said. But, yes, I'd do my bit if she needed me. So would Clytie. So would every other Londoner. You needn't worry about her, Tom. Thank you. They stood for a moment side by side. Then Pomeroy said, Well, good night, apprentice Natsworthy. Good night, Lord Mayor. You're sure— Don't fuss, said Pomeroy amiably. I'm perfectly capable of putting myself to bed. And don't worry too much about the storm or Harrow-Barrow or any of the rest of it. London can take it. He shambled off, and Tom went slowly home to his own hut, where Theo was to be staying now as well. But as he reached the door, he heard Wren's and Theo's voices from inside, where they must have been waiting for him to return. They were talking too softly to make out any words, but he knew what they were saying. They were telling each other all the things he and Hester had told each other once, all the things that lovers had always said to one another, imagining that they were the first people ever to say them. Not wanting to interrupt, Tom turned away and went out into the open air again. He walked up into the rust hills, going slowly to spare his heart. The western sky looked bruised. I ought to do something, he thought. I have done so little for New London, just brought trouble, really. I should try to do something about this. It's my responsibility in a way, a family matter. But how could I hope to stop Odin? I don't even know where the storm control it from. And then he thought, I might not be able to stop Odin, but perhaps I could stop them from using it on New London. General Naga was a good man. Wren had often spoken about how he had treated her on Cloud Nine, how fair and civilized he'd been. Perhaps he was only using the weapon because he was scared and desperate. Perhaps he was the sort of man who would listen to reason. If he could meet a Londoner and hear firsthand about New London, surely he would understand that the storm had no cause to fear it. Tom was shaking so much that he had to sit down. Could it be done? He supposed it could. There was fuel enough in the Jenny Hanover's tanks to reach Batmungompa, 
and then he remembered Theo telling him how Hester had rescued Lady Naga. Was she in Shanguo even now? Might she be able to help persuade General Naga to listen to what Tom had to tell him? He walked back to Crouch End. He had been gone far longer than he'd realized. Wren and Theo had fallen asleep waiting for him. Tom went quietly past them to his pack, found paper and a pencil, and wrote a letter for his daughter. He left it beside her, and stood looking down at her for a while, listening to her breathe, watching the small sleeping movements of her fingers, just as he used to when she was a baby. He kissed her forehead, and she smiled in her sleep and snuggled closer to Theo. Night-night, little Wren, Tom said. Sleep tight, sleep tight. Then he went out of the hut and shouldered his pack and left Crouch End, heading for the Holloway Road and the place where the Jenny Hanover was moored. On the plains west of London, Wolf Cobalt stood on his favourite observation post up on Harrowbarrow's armoured spine. The harvester was stationary, buried in a long hill of loose shale, with just a few well-camouflaged gun emplacements and watchtowers protruding. It had travelled only by night since it broke away from the Murnau pack, for although the Green Storm's armies were collapsing, these lands were still enemy territory. Wolf did not want his trip to London interrupted by any foolish battles. But tonight, as the suburb prepared to move, a different sort of interruption had occurred. Wolf swung his field glasses and counted seven, nine, twelve immense bonfires blazing in the west. He was too young to remember Medusa, but that was the name that came into his mind. His lookouts, trusted men, had reported a blade of light striking down from the sky and setting off those firestorms. He tilted his head, staring at the stars. They looked innocent enough now. A nearby hatch squeaked open. Hausdorfer emerged. Well? Talk to the radio boys, said Hausdorfer. They've been trying Manchester, Winterthur, Koblenz. Nothing. Some kind of distress signal from Dortmund. Then they went dead, too. Wolf stared at the burning horizon. What of Murnau? Can't say. There's interference on every frequency now. But it looks like the Mossies have found themselves a new toy. He waited for an order. None came. Do you want us to turn back, or what? Turn back? The notion was mildly surprising to Wolf. He considered it for a while, then shook his head. You know what survived best after the Sixty-Minute War, Hausdorfer? Rats and roaches. It's true. I read it in a history book. Cockroaches and rats. So let the old cities burn. It's Harrowborough's time now. A time for cunning, creeping things. Fire up the engines. Steer straight on to London. Part 4 Chapter 40 What have they done to the sky? Hester and her companions had watched from the gunslits of General Tsao's new headquarters as the fire from the sky reached down and touched the cities that were closing in on forward command turning them one by one into plumes of blazing fuel and incandescent gas. 
Shrike was with them, but saw nothing. The pulses of energy from the mysterious weapon upset the equally mysterious machines inside his head, making his eyes go blank and his armored body shudder helplessly. Lesser stalkers who did not have Shrike's strength or Inoni Zero on hand to tend to them fared even worse. At dawn, the defenders of forward command found their battle stalkers scattered in the trenches like fallen lead soldiers. But by then it did not matter, for on the western plains where cities and suburbs and flocks of airships had been massed, there was now nothing but smoke. What have they done to the sky? asked Hester, looking from the window at breakfast time. She was still feeling weak from her head wound. She thought at first that the marbled haze that hung over the rooftops was the first sign of a relapse, something gone wrong with her eye or her brain. But a glance at the frightened faces of Inoni and Pennyroyal told her that they could see it too. The sun rose, pink and shrunken. Flakes that looked like snow were drifting down everywhere. Snow? Pennyroyal complained. In summertime? It is ash, announced Shrike. The sky is full of ash. General Tsao took advantage of the lull in the fighting to have the fury repaired. We cannot make contact with Shanguo, she told her guests. The new weapon seems to have interfered with our radio sets. So I am sending you home to Naga with a message. We need orders. Are we to advance, recapture the ground they took from us, or do we simply wait for them to surrender? Inoni looked at the columns of smoke rising from the dead traction cities. She said, I can't believe Naga had such a thing and never told me of it. I can't believe he used it. All those lives gone. It's horrible. Tsao bowed. Personally, I agree. But let's not say it too loudly, Excellency. My people are most impressed with the new weapon. And it was true. As they walked to the docking pan where the fury lay, the four companions could hear the cheers and songs of victory rising from the lower levels of forward command and from all the trenches and fortifications around about. Gunshots popped like champagne corks as relieved Greenstorm soldiers loosed off some of the ammunition they had been saving for the cities at the sky instead. When a bullet skipped off the metal pavement a few feet ahead of them, they assumed at first it was a spent round falling. Sweet posket, cried Penny Royal indignantly. They'll have somebody's eye out in a minute. Only when a flushed, furious-looking soldier lurched out into their path, working another round into the chamber of his carbine, did they understand that the bullet had been aimed at Inoni. Alyoshan, the soldier shouted. He pointed her out to his comrades, who were hurrying up behind him. There she is, friends, the Alyoshan traitor who tried to destroy the Windflower and set up Naga in her place. Shrike stepped in front of Inoni and unsheathed his finger glaives. The soldier's companions drew back hastily, but he held his ground, still shouting, Your time is over, Alyushan. She is risen. We have all heard the stories. A stalker killing a thousand townies aboard Brighton. An amphibious limpet found on the sacred mountain. 
The stock of Fang has returned. Hester pulled out her gun, but Inoni caught her wrist before she could shoot the angry soldier. No, leave him. Who knows what he's been through? Already some of General Tsao's men were hurrying from the docking pans to pull the troublemaker away. As they seized him, the man screamed, Naga could not have made the cities burn like this. This is her victory. The stalker Fang has returned to Jianjing and killed the crippled coward. Fly home, Aleutian, so she can kill you too. Tao's men bundled him away. Inoni was shaking. Hester took her arm and guided her quickly toward the docking pan. Don't worry, he's mad or drunk. I have heard the same rumors from other once born here, said Shrike. The idea that their old leader had returned was a comfort to them when defeat seemed inevitable. But Fang is dead, isn't she? Penny Royal said, trying to shield himself behind the stalker. You smashed her. She is dead, said Inoni. She must be. But she was still trembling slightly half an hour later as the fury carried her into the stained sky and began the journey homeward to Tianjing. London. The night giving way to lightless dawn. Fog everywhere. Fog on the edge of the wreck where the debris merges into green scrub country. Fog in the wreck's heart where it rolls among the steep mounds of corroded deck plate. Fog on the womb road. Fog on the rust hills. Fog creeping into the cabins and huts of Crouch End. Fog hovering around blind lookout posts and lifeless windmills. Fog drooping on the steering vanes and rigging of the archaeopteryx in her secret hangar. Fog piled so deep over the plain that stalker birds on watch above can see nothing of London beyond a few tall spires of debris that rise out of the vapour like jagged islands breaking from a white sea. Wren woke from unsettling dreams to the drip, drip, drip of moisture falling from the eaves. Theo beside her, so at least he hadn't been a dream, her father still not home. She slipped reluctantly away from Theo's warmth and roamed through the chilly hut, peeking into each room. Dad? Daddy? His letter crunkled beneath her feet as she came back to Theo. Her head was still stuffed with sleep. She had to read his short message twice before she started to understand. Her cry woke Theo, and she thrust the letter at him. My dear Wren, by the time you read this, I shall already be in the air. I'm sorry to leave without saying goodbye, but as you wrote once to me, you would only try to stop me. I don't want to be stopped, and I don't want to remember you crying and upset or angry at me. I will remember you always as I saw you tonight, safe with Theo. I am going to try and explain to the Green Storm that New London is not a threat to them. This new weapon has changed everything, but I believe General Naga is a good man, and perhaps if I can make him understand that we Londoners are not so very different to his own people, he will let us go in peace. 
Perhaps I can even persuade him to stop using the weapon. I have to try. I hope I shall be back in a few days to see New London leave. But if I die, it really doesn't matter. The truth is, Wren, I am dying anyway. The doctor I saw in Peripatetiapolis told me that. I have been dying for a long time, and I shall soon be dead, with or without any help from the green storm. The strange thing is, I don't mind too much, because I know that you will live on and see marvellous things, and one day I hope have children of your own who will be just as much of a worry and a joy to you as you were to me. That's what history teaches us, I think, that life goes on, even though individuals die and whole civilizations crumble away. The simple things last. They are repeated over and over by each generation. Well, I've had my turn, and now it's yours, and I mean to try and make sure that you live in a world that is free of at least one threat. Wren had her coat on and was halfway to the door before Theo even finished reading. He was glad of an excuse to stop. The letter was private, and he felt wrong for looking at it. Where are you going? he asked. The hangar, of course. He'll be gone. He says, I know what he says. But we don't know when he wrote that, do we? He's ill. It probably took him longer than he allowed for, going all along the Holloway Road. She wasn't tearful, just very angry at Tom for keeping such secrets from her. And how on earth did he hope to fly all the way to Shanguo without her to help? She and Theo ran off together, stopping only to catch a flask of water from the kitchens. Angie was helping make breakfast. Wren pushed the letter at her and said, Wake Mr. Pomeroy and show him this, and ran off before the other girls started asking questions. The day was grey and cheerless. It seemed to Wren to smell of ash, as if the immense pall of smoke from all those slaughtered cities had drifted east overnight to blanket London. As they ran on, the murk grew thicker, fog hid the deeper parts of the debris field, and the spires and blades of wreckage that towered on either side of the trackway took on a ghostly look. "'Is what your father said true?' asked Theo as they ran. "'Is he really that sick?' "'Of course not!' Wren replied. He's just saying that because he thinks I won't feel so bad then about him going off to Shanguo. His heart hurts him sometimes, but he's got pills for it, green ones. The fog grew deeper. By the time they reached the terminus at the eastern end of the Holloway Road, they could not see ten feet in front of them, and when they finally emerged from the old duct, they found themselves in a white world where they could barely see each other's faces, even though they stood side by side, holding hands. At first they thought both airships were gone, but when Theo collided with the Archaeopteryx's underside, Tailfin, they realized that only the Jenny Hanover was missing. "'Who goes there?' shouted a nervous voice. "'It's me, Wren!' A greyish stain appeared in the fog and condensed into Will Hallsworth and Jake Henson. It is, you know, said Jake. Pass, friend, said Will. Where's my dad? demanded Wren, who didn't have time for games of soldiers. He came by early this morning, said Jake. Very early, agreed Will. Said Mr. Pomeroy had asked him to take the Jenny on a reconnaissance trip and he'd be back soon. 
I expect he's circling up there now, delayed by all this fog. It's a real London particular, said Jake. Why didn't you stop him, you idiots, screamed Wren. Well, steady on. He said it was orders from the committee, but we couldn't argue with that. Was he armed? asked Theo. Will and Jake looked sheepish. Not when he got here, no. But he made us give him one of our lightning guns. He said he might need it if he ran into any of those stalker birds up above all this pea soup. Wren turned to Theo, almost fell against him. She was tired by their journey along the Holloway Road, and she felt that she would never see her father again. She was ready to cry. He's gone. He's gone forever. Echoey sounds came out of the dank throat of Holloway Road, footsteps and voices. Someone was approaching, and the sound of their coming was rolling ahead of them down the tunnel. Theo held Wren and tried to comfort her while they all waited for the newcomers to emerge. The hard beams of electric lanterns poked through the fog, lighting up all the little individual water droplets without illuminating anything. Zagwan said a tetchy voice from behind the lantern glow. Me? asked Theo. Put your hands up. Step away from the airship. I'm nowhere near it, protested Theo. No, that's me, said Will Hallsworth. Is it? A shape blurred out of the fog. It was Garamond, holding the revolver he had taken from Wolf Cobalt. Where's Wren? Here, said Wren. What is all this about? We caught you just in time, I see, said Garamond. Just in time for what? Other figures were appearing behind Garamond. They surrounded Wren and Theo in the fog like a circle of stones. Wren thought she recognized Ron Hodge and Cat Luperini among them. They were going to steal the Archaeopteryx, said Garamond, loud and triumphant. Natsworthy has taken his own airship east, and now he sends his daughter and their green storm accomplice to take the Arche. They planned to leave us with no way of escape when the storm's stalkers march in. What are you talking about, you silly little man? shouted Wren. My dad's gone to try and talk to Naga. Exactly. To betray us to his green storm paymasters, yes. We have read the letter. I thought it was a little too neat, your African friend turning up at the very moment the bird struck. You arranged that attack just so that he could appear to save us, thinking it would make us trust him. Well, Wren Natsworthy, I have news for you. I don't trust him, I don't trust you, and I don't trust your traitor father. Wren's fist caught him full on the nose. He went backward into the fog with a muffled squeal. Oh, by dose, by dose. Theo held Wren back as she tried to fling herself upon him, though she couldn't even see him anymore. Sobbing, she screamed at the fog that hit him. What were you doing reading my letter? That was private, from my father. I told Angie to show it to Mr. Pomeroy, nobody else. Wren said Cat, coming to help Theo restrain her. Wren! Wren! It's Garamond who's the real traitor. When Mr. Pomeroy hears you tried to arrest Theo, he'll... Wren! What? Cat hung her head, fog water dripping from her hair. 
Mr. Pomeroy is dead. What? Angie found him when she took your father's letter to his hut. All yesterday's excitement must have been too much for him. He died last night, in, in his sleep. Garamond lurched out of the fog, one hand clutching his nose, blood dribbling down his chin. Take them both, he ordered nasally. Tie their hands. Bring them to Crouch Ed. The emergency committee can decide what to do with them. Chapter 41 Back in Batmunk Gomper The Jenny Hanover purred eastward through the poisoned sky, toward the wall of mountains that marked the eastern borders of Shanguo, and the broad pass through them that was barred and guarded by Batmunk Gomper. As he drew close to the fortress city, Tom opened the general channel on his radio set and sent out again the message he had been repeating ever since he left London explaining that he came in peace. There was still no reply. He turned the knobs on the front of the set, scrolling up and down the airwaves. Static spat and popped like a fur-cone fire, and some kind of interference shrilled. Faintly behind the gales of white noise, someone was speaking Shanguanese, fast and panicky. Ten miles more to the mountains. Tom had flown through these skies before with Hester, flying from Batmungompa to London in an attempt to stop another ancient weapon. He tried not to think about how that voyage had ended, but he could not keep the memories from welling up. Doubts started to gnaw at him. He had failed then, and he would fail again. His scheme of pleading with Naga, which had seemed so promising to him last night, began to feel more and more like madness. He should not be here. He should have stayed with Wren. He started to put the jenny about, but as he did so, he saw three arrowheads of dark shapes waiting for him in the sky astern. He felt his heart clench like a fist. Memories of yesterday's attack and the birds on the long stair at Rogue's Roost wheeled around him. He snatched Jake Henson's lightning gun from the co-pilot's seat, trying to ready himself for the attack. The birds would make short work of the jenny, but at least he would take a few dozen of them with him. The birds held their position. He started to realize that they were not attacking, just keeping watch on him. Perhaps they had been there ever since he rose out of the fog banks over London. It was so hard to see anything in this hazy, tar-brown light. And then, at last, the voice he had been waiting for came rustling out of the radio set, a stern voice speaking in Shanguanese. He looked eastward and saw the white envelopes of two fox spirits glowing in the gloomy sky. The voice translated its order into English. Barbarian airship, cut your engines. Prepare to be boarded. We are the Green Storm. Tom had just time to stow the lightning gun in a hiding place high in the envelope before they came aboard. They were as unfriendly as the Greenstorm soldiers he remembered from Rogue's Roost, but they were not arrogant any more. They seemed afraid. How did you know General Naga is at Batmungompa? They demanded angrily when Tom tried to explain what he was doing here in the air approaches of their city. I didn't. Is he? I thought he'd be in Tianjin. That's your capital, isn't it? I thought from Batmungompa you would be able to take me to Tianjin. Tianjin is gone. 
said the leader of the storm patrol, pacing about nervously on the Jenny's flight deck. Gone? What do you mean, gone? The young officer didn't answer. Then she said, Anna Fang's ship was called the Jenny Hanover. I saw a film about her life in basic training. This is the same ship, said Tom eagerly. Anna was a friend of mine. I inherited the Jenny when she was... when she... Quiet! screamed the officer in Shan Guanese, wheeling around to quell the whispering that had broken out among her men. They seemed to come from half a dozen different countries and were busy translating Tom's words for each other. The officer barked more orders, and two of them came forward to hold Tom and manacle his hands. You will come with us to Batmung Gompa, she said. I just want a chance to talk to General Naga, said Tom, hopefully. I have something important to tell him. About the new weapon? Well, partly, I suppose. More whispering, more orders, none in any language that Tom could understand. Some of the men returned to their own ship and reeled in their spidery boarding bridge. The officer took control of the Jenny Hanover, and Tom peered over her shoulder as they flew on toward Batmung Gompa, remembering how he had first come here with Anna and Hester all those years ago. The wall was as sheer and black as before, and still armoured with the deck plates of dead cities, vast discs of metal like the shields of ancient warriors. But on the summit, where the oak-leaf banners of the League had blown, long lightning-bolt flags hung limply in the reddish sun, and between them an immense statue of Anna Fang stood pointing westward, summoning the people of the mountains to battle against the Traction cities. As the Jenny descended past her, Tom noticed that she was a lot prettier than the real Anna Fang had been, and that a lot of bird droppings had drizzled down her face. Then they were over the wall and sinking past the vertical city on its eastern side, the pretty laddered streets and swallow's nest houses, all just as Tom remembered them, except that extra docking pans had been constructed on the lower levels and hundreds of concrete barrack blocks now covered the valley floor at the western end of the lake. The jenny flew over them, making for a cluster of buildings outside the city proper, on a crag that jutted out from the northern wall of the pass. Tom saw an old nunnery perched on the flat summit surrounded by what looked like an encampment of tents. The lightning-bolt flags were everywhere, interspersed with giant-sized portraits of General Naga. On the pan at the crag's foot where the jenny sat down, someone had scrawled big Chinese letters in whitewash, and then underneath, in shaky English ones, she is risen. What does that mean? asked Tom. It means nothing, snapped his captor. The lies of anti-Naga troublemakers. She was a grim young woman, and not in any mood to chat, but she did at least allow Tom to keep his green heart pills when her men hustled him across the pan to one of the squat blockhouses behind it, and then into a tiny lime-washed concrete cell. All the time he was being ordered about or marched around, all the time someone else was in charge of him, Tom had felt quite fearless. What happened next was not up to him and barely seemed to matter. But as soon as the iron-bound door slammed shut on him and he was left alone, his fears came crowding in. What was he doing here? How was Wren coping back in London? 
And what had that green storm girl meant when she said Tian Jing had gone? Had he misheard her? Had she used the wrong word? It was very quiet in the cell, strangely so, for when he was last in Batmungompa, one of the things that had hooked in his memory were the sounds, the puttering motors of the balloon taxis, the cries of street vendors, the music from the open-fronted tea-houses and bars. He stood on the bunk in the corner of his cell and looked out of the small, barred window. The city stretched away from him, a scarp of stairs and houses, where nothing moved but the flags. No smoke rose from the chimneys, no airships waited in the harbour. Only a few scurrying figures could be seen on the steep streets. It was as if the city had been abandoned, and the people who remained had all pitched tents on the crag above. A mystery. Footsteps, voices, out in the narrow entryway beyond his door. He jumped down, surprised. He'd expected to wait hours or days for the storm to deal with him. But the door opened. Armed guards in white uniforms took up positions on either side of it, training their guns on Tom, and with a clank of armour, a tall, yellowish man, whom he recognised as General Naga, came in, stooping as his exoskeleton carried him through the low doorway. Tom was relieved that his request for an audience had been taken seriously, but astonished by the speed, panicked too, for he had not quite finished working out what he was going to say to this fierce-looking soldier. Naga's narrow eyes narrowed even more as he looked Tom slowly up and down, taking in his travel-stained clothes and unkempt hair. His armour looked scraped and battered, and servo-motors inside it whined and crunched unhealthily when he moved. There was a wound on his face, freshly dressed with lint and bandages. You are the barbarian's envoy? Tom was taken aback. What was the man talking about? You came in the Windflower's old ship, and claimed to bring word of the weapon. But you look like a sky tramp, not even in uniform. Are the traction stats so certain of victory now, that they expect me to surrender to a buffoon? Surrender? But the new weapon— Yes, yes, shouted Naga. The new weapon! You have destroyed Tianjing. You have destroyed Batmungtsaka. You almost destroyed me. Tom felt as if a chart that had been guiding him through treacherous territory had suddenly turned out to be upside down all along. A bad dream feeling. If Naga did not control the Odin weapon, who did? The cities? But those fires in the west last night, had the storm not seen those cities burn? Had the news not reached them? He closed his eyes and breathed deeply for a moment. This was all beyond him. But he could still do what he had come here for. I'm nothing to do with the traction stats, he said. I come from London. London? I came to ask you, to beg you, the survivors there. I know you know of them. They are building something, have been building something for many years. They are making a new city, a city that hovers and will not harm the earth and has no wish to eat any static city of yours. I'm here to tell you that they, we, mean you no harm. We have no quarrel with the storm. If you could call off your birds and let us go in peace when we leave the debris fields. Naga was frowning. A hovering city, 
It's called magnetic levitation, said Tom. It sort of floats. He waved his hands about, trying to demonstrate, and then remembered something Lavinia Childermas had said. It's not really a city at all, more a very large, low-flying airship. My daughter is there. Naga turned to one of the officers behind him and barked out something in Shanguanese. Tom didn't know many of the words, but he recognized the tone. The general was asking, Is this fellow mad? Why are you wasting my time with him? A moment later, without another look at Tom, he stalked out of the cell, his guards behind him. Please, Tom shouted, your wife will vouch for me. Is she here? Are her companions here? It had suddenly occurred to him that if Tianjin had been destroyed, Hester might have been destroyed with it. He said, Please, I am a friend of Theo Ungoni and Hester. My wife? Naga turned, glaring at him. She is on her way home. I will certainly tell her all about you when she arrives. But he made it sound like a threat, not a promise. The door slammed shut. Tom was left alone again. Outside, Naga stopped for a moment to think. His men clustered together, glancing fearfully toward the misty heights of Batmungompa. He knew what they feared. It seemed inconceivable that after destroying Tianjin, the barbarians had not turned their devil weapon on the shield wall and opened a path for themselves into the mountain kingdoms. And yet, when the few airships he had managed to salvage from the disaster at Tianjin flew here at dawn, they found the place untouched, although the populace and half the garrison had already fled into the hills. What were the townies waiting for? Naga had already discounted the report saying that Traction cities had been destroyed last night too. They must be mistakes, or lies put out by the enemy to add to the storm's confusion. And what did the appearance of this madman, Natsworthy, mean, aboard the Flower's old ship? London, he muttered. Poor Jew told me something about London. One of his officers, a captain from the Batmungompa garrison, saluted smartly and said, There has been increased activity among the squatters there, Excellency. We have been watching them with spy birds. You have records? There is a file in the intelligence office on Thousand Stair Avenue. Hurry there and fetch it. The captain saluted and ran off, grey-faced with fear, and clearly expecting the fire from the sky to fall on Batmungompa at any instant. Naga watched him go. He thought wistfully for a moment of Inoni, and then crushed the thought and muttered, London. He remembered the night after the windflower died, how he had stood on the top of the shield wall while the smoke of the burnt northern air fleet drifted up from the hangars below him, and faint and far away the lights of London glittered. It seemed to General Naga that all the troubles of the world began with London. Chapter 42 the Funeral Drum That afternoon, as the fog thinned and dirty sunlight broke over the debris fields, the people of London buried their Lord Mayor. Bareheaded and with black mourning bands tied around their sleeves, eight members of the emergency committee carried the shrouded body of the old historian 
along a winding, little-used path between the rust hills, while the rest of London followed, and Timex Grout beat out a solemn, steady rhythm on a drum made from an old oil can. Boom! 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 The echoes rolled away, across the wreckage, out across the plains beyond, up into the mottled sky where a few stalker birds still circled, very high, watched all the time by lookouts with charged lightning guns. In Putney Vale, a mossy space between the masses of debris where trees grew thickly and shaded the graves of all the other Londoners who had died since Medusa night, they laid him to rest and piled the earth over him and marked the place with a metal marker carved with the symbol of his guild, the eye that gazes backward into time. Lavinia Childermas offered up a prayer to Quirk, asking London's creator to welcome the old man when his soul reached the sunless country. She did not believe in gods or afterlives, being an engineer, but she had been Pomeroy's friend as well as his deputy, and she understood the need for this ritual. Then Clytie Potts stepped forward and sang in a thin, uncertain voice a paean to the goddess Cleo. He should have been here to steer new London out of the debris fields, said Len Peabody, angry at the unfairness of it all. Now, said Mr. Garamond, it's time we elected a new Lord Mayor. Lavinia will be the new mayor, said Clytie Potts. That's what Mr. Pomeroy wanted. Mr. Pomeroy is dead, said Garamond. The committee must decide, and then we must discuss what's to be done with the prisoners. Wren had not been allowed to attend the funeral. Other Londoners had pleaded her case, but Garamond, his nose swollen to twice its usual size and the colour of an aubergine, stood firm. She and Theo were dangerous agents of the Green Storm, and he insisted that they should be locked up. And so they were put in two old cages, salvaged from the wreck many years ago, that had once held animals in the zoological gardens in Circle Park, and were now kept in a dank corner of Crouch End to confine intruders, murderers, and lunatics whom Garamond imagined might threaten the security of London. They had never been used before, and he looked very pleased with himself as his apologetic warriors shoved Wren and Theo inside, padlocking the barred gates behind them. There, in the shadows, on the mattress that was her only furniture, Wren said her own prayers for Chudley Pomeroy, as the muffled boom, boom, doom of the funeral drum came echoing across the debris like a heartbeat. What now? asked Theo from his cage. Dark as it was in this part of the end, Wren could see him looking out at her through the bars. If they both reached out, they could touch just their fingertips. What will happen to us now? Wren didn't know. It was hurtful to be accused and imprisoned like this, but she found it hard to be scared of silly old Garamond and all her London friends. Sooner or later, it would all be sorted out, she felt sure. She barely had the strength to think about it, though. She was too busy mourning Mr. Pomeroy and worrying about her father. They slept a little, talked a little. Wren made patterns with the straw on the floor of her cage. The day crept by. 
At evening time, when the dinner gong was summoning everyone to the communal canteen, Angie Peabody arrived with food and fresh water for them. She poked the tin bowls in through the bars of the cage and would not meet Wren's eye. Angie? Wren asked. You don't believe what Garriman says about us, do you? You know I'm not any sort of spy. Don't know what to believe any more, the girl replied gruffly. There's been nothing but trouble ever since you got here, I know that. Them birds coming yesterday and your friend turning up. Saab got hurt badly, Wren. We don't even know if he'll see again. And he'll always have the scars and you don't care a bit. You just went off yesterday evening with your boyfriend or whatever he is. It don't look good, does it? Wren felt dazed with shame. It was true she hadn't spared much thought for Saab or the others hurt in the attack. She'd been too taken up with thoughts of Theo. That was wrong of me, she admitted. But it hardly makes me a Greenstorm spy. Angie, a week ago Garamond was saying we were in league with Harrow Barrow. It was me and my dad who brought Wolf Kobold here, remember? How do we even know Kobold was what he said he was? Angie retorted. You say he went off to find this Harrow Barrow place. He might be Greenstorm too and safe in Batman Gomper or somewhere now. That made Wren think of her father. She reached out through the bars trying to touch Angie, who backed quickly away. Angie, you've got to get me out of here. I have to find a way of going after Dad. Angie took another step backward, disappearing into the shadows. Mr. Garriman said we ain't to talk to you. Wren threw herself down on her mattress, which rewarded her by bursting and poking her in the side with a sharp, rusty spring. I'm sorry, Theo, she said. It's not your fault. It is. If I hadn't written you that letter, you'd have stayed with your own people. You'd never have come here. And if you hadn't talked to me that afternoon by Penny Royal Swimming Pool on Cloud Nine, I'd have been killed or captured when the storm attacked and you wouldn't have to worry about me at all. Wren reached out of her cage and touched his fingers. She traced the hard, warm curves of his nails, the little rough bits of skin beside them, the walls of his fingertips like contour lines on a tiny braille map. Late that night they were awoken by the last person Wren had expected to come visiting them. Wren? a voice asked and she opened her eyes to see Lavinia Childermas hunkered down outside the gate of her cage. The engineer had an electric lantern with a blue glass shade. In its dim light, her bald head shone like an alien moon. Wren scrambled up, spearing herself on the mattress spring again, and heard Theo moving in the neighbouring cage. Wren, my dear, are you awake? Sort of. What's happening? Is it Dad? He has not returned, child. Then? We have a new Lord Mayor, said the engineer. The committee elected him this evening. But I thought you were Mr. Pomeroy's deputy. I thought the committee decided that it would be unwise to have an engineer as mayor, Dr. Childermas said calmly. They still remember Crome's regime, and with the war drawing closer... They thought it wiser to elect someone with a security background. You can't mean... 
Mr. Garamond is Lord Mayor of London now, Wren. He played on the fears of the committee to make them support him. I am sorry to say that he has turned a lot of people against you. I think most of London believes that you and Theo and your father had something to do with those birds and the death of poor Chudley. But shh, I think they will forgive you, Wren. You are a Londoner's daughter, after all. But Garamond is going to propose that Theo be killed, and from the talk at the canteen this evening, I think a majority of the committee will side with him. He argues that we cannot allow an anti-tractionist to live here, learning our secrets. He's mad! Perhaps he is, a little. Paranoid, certainly. Poor Garamond. He was no older than you on Medusa night. He survived because he was in one of the deep-gut prisons where Magnus Crome had sent him for being an anti-tractionist sympathizer. The day after the disaster, he led a band of survivors east, imagining that the anti-tractionists he had always admired would help them. But the soldiers they met upon the plains just gunned them down. Poor Garamond only escaped by playing dead, hidden under the bodies of his friends. You can see why he wouldn't trust anti-tractionists, said Theo. But it doesn't give him an excuse to start killing people, Wren complained. And it certainly doesn't give everyone else an excuse to let him. I agree, said the old engineer. But they are scared. The birds, the war, the new weapon. Even the prospect of leaving the debris fields is enough to unsettle them after so many years. And when people are scared, it can bring out the worst in them. That is why I am going to let you go. I am sure that Theo will be able to find you shelter at one of the storm's settlements. I don't imagine the war will last much longer now that the storm have this orbital terror weapon, so you will be in far less danger there than with us. She reached inside her rubber coat and brought out some sort of old tech device, the type of thing engineers presumably kept in their pockets all the time. It looked like a can opener and buzzed like a horsefly and made the padlock on Wren's cage clack open. I brought your pack with me, Wren, Dr. Childermas said as she moved across to Theo's cage, and Wren, still not quite believing that they were going, fitted her arms through the shoulder straps and heaved it on. I should carry that, said Theo, scrambling out of his cage. I can manage. We'll take turns. Lavinia Childermas led them to a small backway out of Crouch End, a hole in the roof plate at its lowest point where it sloped down to touch the ground, scrambled out with them and stood watching them as they set off together into the wreckage, moving closer as they went away from her, as if they thought an old engineer would not approve of people holding hands and wanted to be safely hidden in the shadows before they finally touched. Lavinia smiled. She'd had a child of her own once, but in those days the Guild of Engineers had taken all infants straight to the communal nurseries, and she had never known her little Bevis. Dead long ago, she thought, and the sudden sadness made her remember the funeral drum and Chudley Pomeroy lying cold under the earth in Putney Vale. If she had not been a logical, disciplined engineer, she would have found the world too sad a place to live in. She watched Wren and Theo until the shadows and the wreckage swallowed them. Well, she thought, 
that is one less thing to worry about. And she went quickly through Crouch End and up the Womb Road, returning to her work aboard New London. Chapter 43 Homecoming The Fury reached Backman Gomper shortly after sundown, crossing the shield wall by the light of a smudged and blood-stained moon. She had been heading for Tianjing when the master of a passing freighter advised her captain to reroute. Tianjing is burning. The barbarians have a new weapon, a lance of fire that strikes from the sky. Batman Sucker is gone too. Naga has fled to Batman Gompa, but not even Batman Gompa can stand against the fire from heaven. Save yourselves. What's happening? grumbled Hester, tired and crotchety after the long flight, one hand pressed to her aching head. Surely the cities can't have a super weapon too. Typical, said Pennyroyal. You wait years for an all-powerful orbital heat ray thingy, and then two come along at once. Perhaps the storm do not control the new weapon, said Shrike. But it blew up cities. We watched it. Who else would want to do that? A third force, suggested Shrike. Someone who hates the cities and the storm and wants to sow confusion. Like who? asked Hester. The stalker Fang. But she's dead, said Pennyroyal. Isn't she? Perhaps the rumours we heard from the once-born at forward command are correct, said Shrike. I was re-resurrected. What if someone has re-resurrected her? And you think she is behind these calamities? asked Inoni. She sounded afraid but faintly hopeful, too, as if it would be a relief to learn that her husband was not responsible. Shrike said, When the new weapon struck, I remembered something that the stalker Fang said before I disabled her. She spoke of a thing called Odin, the greatest of the weapons that the ancients hung in heaven. I believe she has awoken it, just as she planned. She struck at Chenjing because Naga would be there, and at Batmungtsaka in the hope of killing you, Inoni Zero. But she's dead, insisted Pennyroyal. He's got a point, for once, Hester agreed. You pulled her head off, Shrike, through the rest of her off Cloud Nine. That should have done the trick. But Inoni looked troubled. She had looked troubled all the way from forward command, and now she said, Maybe not. She was a very advanced model, Dr. Popjoy had put in experimental systems that even I may not have understood. It's possible that if someone had gathered the body parts, they might have been able to... Her voice faded away. She shrugged unhappily. Oh, fantastic, said Hester. I might be wrong. Inoni went to the window, looking south into the haze of dirty smoke from Tianjing. I hope I'm wrong. We must ask Dr. Popjoy. As soon as we dock at Batmungompa, I'll send for him. Popjoy will know. The city behind the shield wall lay in silence, only a few dozen lamps burning in its dark streets. More lights shone on the valley floor, 
a river of lanterns pouring eastward, reflecting in the waters of Batmunk Nor. The population was fleeing, just as they had fled the threat of Medusa the last time Hester was there. She thought what an odd place it must be to live if you had to keep packing all your belongings into carts and running away, and then reminded herself that Medusa had been nearly twenty years ago, and that a whole generation had grown up since she and Tom left this city in the Jenny Hanover. Gods, she said grumpily, rubbing her head again, I'm getting too old for this. Fox spirits guided the fury to a temporary airfield below an old nunnery on a crag. The ancient building was surrounded by what looked at first like giant lichen, a shapeless mass of grey and brown and white. It was people, refugees from the city, and survivors of Tianjin brought in aboard the ragtag fleet of freighters and military transports that was moored along the edges of the field. They huddled together against the cold, wrapped in furs and blankets, sheltering under awnings and tents. As Hester, still limping slightly, led her companions past them, they started to stand up and shuffle aside, forming an avenue of staring faces. A whispering, like the wind in trees, ran through the crowd, as people pointed out the Lady Naga and her stalker to their neighbours and their children. Maybe they were saying that she was to blame for their disaster, that if she had not destroyed the stalker Fang, it would be the townies suffering instead. Maybe they had heard she was dead. Maybe, seeing Shrike and Hester walking beside her, they thought she was a phantom come here from the halls of shadow with two demons to guard her. Inoni barely noticed the stir that she was causing. She kept thinking of the stalker Fang. I must speak to Popjoy, she thought, and looked east toward the lakeshore, where the old stalker builder had his retirement villa. But the evening mist lay thick above the lake, and she was not even certain that Popjoy's place could be seen from here. At the door of the nunnery, a tired-looking sub-officer greeted them. Lady Naga, you are safe. Gods be thanked. Safe, thought Inoni. Yes, even if Fang had returned, Naga would sort everything out. She was safe at last. She returned the boy's salute, remembering him from her husband's staff at Tianjin, a friendly boy with a flop of black hair always falling across his eyes. She was glad he had survived. She said, My husband is here. The general will be overjoyed. I shall take you to him. Inoni followed him through the tall, carved doorway. Hester, Shrike, and Pennyroyal went with her, not knowing what else to do. I shall need to see the scientist Popjoy, Inoni told their guide. Can you find him for me? The sub-officer seemed nervous. He is dead, Lady Naga, murdered at his house by the lake about three weeks ago. We think one of his stalkers went wrong, and... He shrugged. I heard what had been done to him. No human being could have had such strength. Inoni looked at Hester. Shrike said, Did you find the stalker that killed him? The boy looked startled at being spoken to by a stalker, but he recovered and said, No, but Popjoy's sky yacht was stolen. Perhaps if the killer was an experimental model, it might have had the wit to escape. Apparently Popjoy's house was full of horrible things. He addressed his words to Inoni, 
but he was looking past her at her companions, as if wondering for the first time who they were and whether he had been right to admit them to Naga's emergency headquarters. These are my friends, said Inoni hastily, and introduced them. Mr. Shrike, Professor Penny Royal, Mrs. Natsworthy. The boy frowned. Natsworthy? He took Inoni aside, and they spoke for a moment in Shanguanese. Hester heard the name Natsworthy mentioned several more times. She reached for the big gun on her shoulder and eased the safety catch off, asked Shrike, What are they saying? Before the stalker could translate, Inoni came back to join them, smiling. Hester, she said, your husband is here. She might as well have carried on talking in her own funny language, Hester thought, for what she said made no sense at all. Tom Natsworthy, said Inoni. She took Hester's hands in hers and smiled into her face. He arrived this morning aboard Anna Fang's old ship. No, said Hester, not believing it, not wanting to. He is being held in a cell down by the docking pans at the foot of this crag. But don't worry, I shall tell Naga to free him at once. You should go to him, Hester. Me? No. Go to him. Inoni pulled off the ring she wore and pressed it into Hester's hand, folding Hester's fingers over it. Take this. Tell the guards I sent you. Mr. Shrike can translate for you. They will let you talk to him. Tell him that orders will soon be coming from my husband to let him go. But he won't want to see me. Send someone else. You are still his wife. You don't know about the things I've done. Inoni stood on tiptoes and kissed her. Nothing that can't be forgiven. Now go while I talk to Naga. Hester turned and went, Shrike at her side, everyone in the passage turning to stare, wondering who she could be. Penny Royal lingered. So, Tom's here, eh? he said. These Natsworthies do pop up in the most unlikely spots, but I'll stay with you, if I may, Empress. There's the small matter of the reward you mentioned. Of course, Professor, said Inoni, and let him go with her as she followed the sub-officer through the maze-like corridors. The god that was worshipped in this place went by a different name than hers, but she still felt calmed by the old incense smells and the centuries of prayers that had sunk into the carved ceilings and lime-washed walls. Nuns in nasturtium-coloured robes clustered in doorways, watching. Green storm officers hurried by, staring at her. Most of them did not look happy to see her, but she did not care. Thank God she had been able to come here. She felt glad that she had been able to reunite Hester with her husband and looked forward happily now to her own reunion with Naga. Up three stairs to an ancient door, the sub-officer knocked, then held the door open for Inoni to walk through. Pennyroyal went with her. In his grey cloak he looked the part of a high-ranking Greenstorm officer, and the guards inside saluted him smartly as he followed Inoni into General Naga's makeshift war room. Around a big table, covered in charts, stood several dozen people, the ragged remnant of Naga's government. Some of them looked pleased to see Inoni. Naga, raising his eyes from his charts, just gazed at her. There were bruises and cuts on his face, and dents in his armour, 
and his good hand was mittened in dirty bandages, but he was alive. Thank God, Inoni said happily. She wanted to hug him, but it would not be seemly for the leader of the storm to be embraced in public in front of his captains and his counsellors, so she controlled herself and lowered her eyes from his and bowed low and said, Your Excellency. Naga said nothing. Around him, wise people who knew how much he had longed for her nudged their moonstruck, staring comrades and started gathering up charts and swords and helmets and edging toward the chamber's various doors. But Naga called them back. He still had not spoken to his wife. I heard about Tianjing, said Inoni. It came from the sky, said her husband, watching her face. From one of those old devil weapons in high orbit, we think. A finger of light, of energy. It destroys all it touches. I am not the man to ask. When it struck Tianjing, I was flat on my back at the foot of a staircase. He tried to gesture, but the gears in the shoulder of his battered exoskeleton grated and seized. Damn it, he muttered. Let me, said Inoni, glad of an excuse to touch him. The watchful officers drew aside to let her go to him. But when she reached out to unscrew the bolts that held his shoulder piece in place, his bandaged fist caught her across the side of the head. She fell sideways, hit the table, and crashed to the floor amid a rattle of fallen teacups and compass dividers. Some of Naga's officers cried out, and she heard one say, General, please. Naga, Inoni said. She could barely believe what was happening. She thought his exoskeleton must have gone wrong and made him lash out without meaning to. But when she looked up at him, she saw that the blow had been deliberate. This is all your fault, he shouted. His mechanical hand swept down and grabbed a handful of her hair. He heaved her upright like a sack. Look what your peace has led to. You told me to treat the barbarians like human beings, and now they are destroying us. Inoni had never imagined this. She did not know how to cope with his anger. No, 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 she said. Traction cities have been destroyed too. I saw them burning. You must have heard reports. Lies. Naga, the stalker Fang is back. She controls this thing. A murmuring in the room, cries of alarm, of disbelief. Think, begged Inoni. The reports from Brighton, the limpet found in Snowfan province. She wants us to think the townies have the weapon so that she can use it against us all. She is insane. We have to find the transmitter she uses to speak with it and... Lies, said Naga. I have already discovered where the thing is controlled from. It is the London engineers again, just like Medusa. Those harmless squatters we have ignored for so long started busying themselves like ants a few weeks ago. And now this happens. He snatched a photograph from the piles on the table, an aerial view of London taken by a spy bird. Look! You can see their bald heads. They infest that wreck like maggots in a corpse. And today, 
A Londoner came here with some wild tale to try and put us off the scent. It is Medusa all over again. It all begins and ends with London. Then what about Dr. Popjoy? babbled Inoni. Fang must have needed him to repair her, and when he had done it, she killed him. Popjoy was another engineer. We thought he had come over to our side, but he was working for his old guild all along. That body they found in his villa was so mangled it could have been anyone. Your former master faked his death and escaped to London to help his old engineer friends deploy the weapon. No, whispered Inoni, but his theory made a sort of sense. How could she hope to show him he was wrong? Naga stared at her, breathing hard. And you were part of their plan, too, weren't you, Zero? he said. His voice had grown softer and colder. You were their creature all along, you Aleutian sorceress. It was Popjoy who first brought you to the Jade Pagoda. How shy and sweet you seemed. But you destroyed Fang, and then distracted me, whispering about peace, about love. He drew his sword. And all along, you were just buying time for the townies, until their new weapon was ready. Inoni tried to control her helpless trembling. She stretched out her hands toward her husband. Please, believe me. I would never betray you. All I ever wanted was peace. Naga struck her again, a stunning blow from his mechanical fist. She went down on her knees, keening, her hands cupped to catch the blood from her nose. He shoved her head down and drew his sword. But the thin stalk of her neck, bared in the lantern light, looked so fragile and ivory pale that he could not bring himself to sever it. She had a scurf of grime along her hairline, dirt behind her small ears, like a child. Naga slammed his sword down, burying the blade deep in the wood of the chart table. As Inoni dropped sobbing at his feet, he wheeled around and bellowed at his officers, Take her away! Lock her up! I'll hear no more talk of peace! He tried not to watch as they dragged her to the door. A few hardliners, old opponents of the truce, shouted out, Kill her! One drew his own sword and would have butchered Inoni there and then if his friends had not restrained him. No! Naga shouted. The heavy door swung shut behind his wife. It was easier to be strong now that he could not see her frightened face. I will behead the traitor Zero myself, in public in the main square of Batmungompa. A few of his listeners looked almost as woeful as Inoni had, but most were pleased by his announcement. Some even cheered. First, Naga told them, we must gather what ships we can and fly to London. We shall capture the barbarian's transmitter and turn the new weapon upon their own cities. This war is not lost. Follow me, and we shall make the world green again.
Chapter 44 Pillar of Fire Nothing that cannot be forgiven, Inoni had said, but it seemed to Hester, as she went in the cold wind down those long stairways to the docking pans, that she had done things that no one could forgive. She did not know what she could say to Tom, and did not like to think what he might say to her. But she hated to think of him cooped up in one of those little buildings whose roofs she could see below her in the glow from the big lamps around the pans. There was a lot of activity down there. Airships were being fueled and filled, and one of them was the Jenny, a familiar rusty red envelope among the white of the storm's warships. Everything went blurry, and Hester had to wipe her sleeve across her eye. She was glad Inoni and Pennyroyal weren't there to see her snivelling, only Shrike was with her. She could hear the heavy, comforting tramp of his feet on the stairs behind her, and Shrike had seen her weep before. The narrow alleys behind the pans were full of loud confusion. The storm seemed punch-drunk, and the simple business of preparing ships was leading to squabbles and rows between the remnants of different units who spoke different languages and dialects. Pushing through them, Hester felt a tightness in her chest and throat, a building panic at the thought of seeing Tom. She stopped a passing aviator to ask the way to the cells, and was pleased at how he started bowing and saluting when she showed him Lady Naga's oak-leaf ring. But as she climbed the stone steps to the building he indicated, she heard running footsteps behind her. "'It is the once-born Penny Royal,' announced Shrike. "'What does he want?' grumbled Hester, though secretly she was glad of a reason to delay her reunion with Tom. Pennyroyal came panting up the steps to her. She knew as soon as she saw him that something had gone badly wrong. "'Hester! Shrike!' he gasped. "'Thank Poskett! We've got to flee! I mean fly! That villain Naga!' "'What's happened?' demanded Hester." Penny Royal waved his arms about, trying to find a gesture big enough to express the disaster. I didn't know what was happening. Don't know the lingo, but some of the men in there were speaking English to each other, and they were saying she was a traitor. Who's a traitor? Hester grabbed him by the collar of his cloak and shook him. What's happened, Penny Royal? Where's Inoni? That's what I'm telling you. She's in prison. He broke her little nose, the brute. He blames her for this terror weapon. They're saying he's vowed to cut off her head once the cities are defeated. Oh, the poor child. Oh, merciful Cleo. Pennyroyal was genuinely upset, and Hester felt a pang of grief and pity too as she began to understand what he was saying. She hid it in her usual way by growing angry. You mean it was all for nothing? All that trouble and travelling, losing Theo. We just got her out of one prison and into another. Can't the silly cow be left alone for a minute without getting herself locked up? She looked at Shrike, who was staring silently at the buildings above. Reckon we can do something? Get her out? No way, said Penny Royal instantly. He's locked her in some high turret, stalkers and men with hand cannon to guard her. There are many once born there, agreed Shrike. I would have to kill dozens of them. I could not do that. 
and Dr. Zero would not want me to. She'd want us to save our own skins, Penny Royal said firmly. What if someone seeks us out? They're running about like mad bees up there, getting ready to fly off and attack some poor city or other, and they're hardly going to leave us on the loose, are they? If they think Inoni is a traitor, they must think we are, too, and they'll want our heads to complete the set. He pawed at Hester's back, sniveling with terror as she turned away from him. Hester, your ship's here. You've got to get me away. Hester turned and shoved him. He went backward with an indignant yelp, rolling down the steps. We've traveled far enough together, she shouted. I told you in Airhaven, I don't want you on my ship. You can make your own arrangements. Penny Royal shouted something after her, but she did not look back. Above the noise from the docking pans, she could hear other sounds, cheering and trumpet blasts coming down from somewhere above her as the remnants of the storm celebrated Inoni's arrest. The guard on the cell block door heard it too, and Hester was relieved to see that he looked puzzled by it. Communications were ropey in this ramshackle harbour, no sign of telephones or speaking tubes, just small boys running to and fro with messages. It might be some minutes before word of Inoni's fall from favour reached down here, and longer still before descriptions of her companions started to circulate. Sure enough, the oak-leaf ring elicited more bowing and saluting from the cell-block staff. Hester was welcomed inside, while Shrike explained her business in a language she didn't know. A man ran and unlocked a heavy door, beckoning Hester through. Wait here, she told Shrike, and stepped inside. An oil lamp had been lit, and in the slow flaring of the light, she saw the prisoner sit up on his bunk and turn his face toward her. The guard said something in his own language, but neither of them noticed. Tom? said Hester. Tom rose and came toward her. He did not speak, which Hester guessed was because he was so surprised to see her. She imagined that he could not believe it was really her. She didn't know that Tom already knew she was in Shanguo. Indeed, from what Theo had said, Tom believed she'd been here for some days. It was a surprise to him when the cell door opened and she came in, but not a total one. Surprise was not the reason why he did not speak. Hester had hurt him very badly, and when he thought of her he still felt angry. But now that she was here, standing a few feet from him, her familiar smell blowing toward him on the draught from the open door, he found that he still loved her, too. If he could not speak, it was simply because he had too many different things to say. Well, said Hester lamely, here we are again. I left Wren in London, he said, guessing what her first question would be. In London? She's with Theo. It's all right. She's safe. But Theo Ungoni? You mean he's alive? He found his way to London. Told us he'd seen you. How brave you'd been, saving Lady Naga. The guard was staring at them. Hester swung her gun down from her shoulder and pointed it in Tom's direction, saying to the guard in her creaky Esperanto, Unchain the prisoner. He's coming with me. The guard shrugged. She couldn't tell if he understood what she had said, but he seemed to get the general idea.
and he quickly unlocked the shackles that chained Tom to the wall. Hester grabbed Tom by the arm and led him quickly away, nodding at the other guards. Tom wondered if he should refuse to go with her, tell her that he didn't trust her any more after what she had done before, but this did not seem the moment, and besides, a part of him was glad to have her in charge again. Outside, Shrike was waiting. Tom flinched backward when the stalker's dead face turned to stare at him. It's all right, said Hester. He's a friend now. Right, said Tom, remembering what Theo had told him about the old stalker, but finding it hard to believe. Hello, Mr. Shrike. Sorry I killed you. Shrike bowed slightly and said, I did not take it personally. Above their heads, with a shriek and a roar, the sky ripped open down a long seam. Light drenched them, bright as day and white as death. The ground lurched. Shrike gripped his head and his eyes flared and flickered. The shouts of the soldiers and stevedores on the docking pans changed to frightened screams, and Hester screamed too and flung her arms around Tom, tugging him close. But the sword of light that blazed above them was not aimed at Batmungompa. It stood upon the mountains farther south, blazing and shrieking, too bright to look at and too tall to comprehend. The sky filled with vapor, and blue threads of lightning crackled and flashed. What is it doing? shouted Tom. There are no cities there. The glare faded, the shrieking ended in a thunderclap, and then the night returned. The ground still shuddered. Hester still held Tom tight. Shrike hissed and shook himself, recovering. A pillar of cloud marked the place where the light had been, and at its foot a red glow gathered, a brazier brightening among the mountains. Zan Shan! Tom heard people saying. Zan Shan, he said himself. He was very frightened. Hester's embrace was comforting for a moment until he remembered and pushed her away. They have turned it on Zan Shan. The holy mountain is erupting. Who'd want to blow up a volcano? asked Hester, angry at herself for having hugged him. Around them bells were ringing, whistles blowing, white ships rising into the night. Who could say when the weapon would strike again? Come on, she said. They wove through the busy harbour to the pan where the jenny was moored. A group of green storm aviators was running toward her. Hester shouted at them that she was taking this ship. A hatch at the stern of the envelope hung open. She barked at the startled ground crew to close it and stand clear. The men shrugged and saluted. But as they drifted away, a harbour officer came hurrying over, shouting in Esperanto, Where are your orders? What's your unit? All ships have been commandeered for General Naga's strike against the barbarians. No, Hester held out her hand, showing him Inoni's ring. I'm taking her out myself. Lady Naga commands it. The man had started to salute when he saw the ring, but stopped when he heard whose it was. Lady Naga is a lackey of the municipal Darwinist conspiracy, he shouted, turning. Friends! Here, the traitor Zero's accomplices are... Hester made her hand into a fist, and the ring flashed as she punched the man hard in the stomach and again in the head as he curled over. She thought of killing him, but she did not want to with Tom watching. 
Leaving him gasping in the shadows at the edge of the pan, she hurried the others up the gangplank. Other ships were taking off from the neighboring pans, big transports going to collect troops from the plateau above. Nobody noticed the Jenny rise among them, and her red envelope faded quickly into the night as she veered away across the lake of Batmunk Nor. By the time the harbour officer recovered enough to start shouting for help, there was nothing to be seen of her but a wreath of exhaust smoke dissolving into the air above the pan. They flew without lights, but the light of the eruption on faraway Zan Shan came in through the gondola windows, red and unhealthy and bright enough to read by. While Hester steered, Tom stood at the window and looked out at the crescent-shaped gash that had been torn in the volcano's northeastern side. The mountain itself was hidden in the darkness and the distance, so the gash seemed to hang in the sky like a burning moon. I still don't understand, Tom muttered to himself. Why attack a mountain? Shrike heard him. San Shan could go on erupting for weeks, the stalker said. The pumice clouds will disrupt air traffic over thousands of miles. Whole provinces will be smothered. It is a blow from which the green storm cannot recover. Then the cities do control Odin. The Stalker Fang controls it. The Stalker Fang's alive? Shrike nodded. Hester, who had been intent on steering the airship past a rearing pinnacle of rock, relaxed a little as they flew into clear air beyond it and looked back at her passengers. We'll circle round and head west, she said. I can set you down at London, Tom. What about your friend, Lady Naga? asked Tom. He had never met the unfortunate young woman, but he felt guilty at leaving her locked up. Perhaps when Naga's ships have flown off, we could... She is under guard, said Shrike. They would not let us take her alive. If Naga blames her for Odin, there is a simpler way to save her. I will find Odin's ground station and prove who is really responsible. But the ground station could be anywhere, protested Hester. The stalker Fang has returned to Shanguo said Shrike, turning, sniffing the musty air as if he hoped to pick up the other stalker's scent. He found a map of the heavenly mountains and spread it on the chart table. He stabbed his finger down on Snow Fan province, then Batmunk Gompa. She abandoned the limpet here. She killed Popjoy here. She is in these mountains somewhere. Set me down, and I shall find her. Anna Fang had a house at a place called Edenetes, said Tom. We found the deeds to it among her things when we took over the Jenny. He pointed to the place on the chart. Maybe she's gone home. It is possible. The stalker Fang claimed to have memories of her former life. Perhaps they have drawn her back. Tom felt pleased that the stalker liked his suggestion. Do you think we should go back to Batman Gomper and tell somebody? he asked. Definitely not, said Hester. They would not believe us, said Shrike. They think we are pawns of their enemies. 
I must go to Edenites and search for her myself. Is that your own idea? asked Hester suspiciously. Or is one of Inoni's secret programs still running in that brain of yours? Shrike turned to look at her. I do not know, but Dr. Zero rebuilt me for a purpose. I am the only one who can destroy the Stalker Fang. I must seek her out and re-assassinate her. Thought you couldn't kill anybody. Stalkers are not alive, so it will not be killing, Shrike said patiently. Even if it were, it would have to be done. He waved one massive hand at the windows, at the mountain burning in the south. If she is allowed to continue this destruction, millions of once-born will perish. Tom swallowed and said nervously, I can fly you to Edenites. It's not our business, Tom, Hester warned him. It is, Tom told her. Because if you're right, we're the only people who really know who's responsible for all this. What sort of world will be left for Wren if we let it keep happening? We have to do something. He was about to explain the connection between Odin and the tin book, but that would only make Hester think it was Wren's fault, which wasn't what he meant at all. I have to do something, he said weakly. All right, said Hester. He was as lovely and infuriating as ever. She'd never been able to resist his stupid bravery. All right, let's go to this Erdany thingy place. It's not as if I've got anything better to do. Only, when we get there, you're not going to do anything heroic. You're not going to risk your life or try and talk to the Storka Fang. You're going to stay safe in the airship and let Shrike go and kill her. And this time... He'd better do it properly. Chapter 45 Harvest Wren, awakening, wondered for a moment where she was, remembered what had happened, felt afraid, and then decided that she did not care because Theo was there with her, breathing softly, his face pressed into the curve of her neck, the heavy, comforting weight of his arm thrown across her. They had gone west when they left Crouch End, because all the roads and paths Wren knew through the wreckage led west. They had walked for hours, listening out all the time for sounds of pursuit. They had seen the pulse of fire plunge into the mountains and stood in silence, hand in hand, watching the red glow gather in the sky behind Zan Shan, throwing the summit of the giant volcano into silhouette. At last they had settled down to rest on the very westernmost edge of the debris field, where it petered out into a rash of smaller fields, scattered chunks of track and deckplate, towering wheels. They had taken shelter inside one of the wheels, in a cylindrical cave about twelve feet high, where a crank must once have been attached, or a connecting rod, or a gubbins of some other kind. Neither of them knew enough about the wheels of cities to say for certain— it was at least dry and not too cold, and they had cuddled together there with Wren's pack as a pillow and fallen quickly asleep. Now a half-hearted daylight filled the circle of the cave mouth. Wren woke Theo as gently as she could and scrambled around him to the entrance. P. 
Peeking out, she saw the deserted margins of the wreck stretching away in hazy sunlight. She craned out farther. It was too misty to make out Zan Shan, but she could see the tower of smoke that stood above it, wet slate grey and as tall as the sky. The ground seemed to shake faintly, and she thought she heard a distant rumbling. Well, it wasn't a dream, she said. Why would the storm turn the weapon on their own land? It must be another civil war, said Theo. He poured some water for them from the canteen Lavinia Childermas had given them. Naga's probably zapping his rivals. Charming, said Wren. And these are the people whose mercy we're going to be throwing ourselves on? Either that or go back to Mr. Garamond. Fair point. What's for breakfast? Gravel, said Theo, opening a box that Lavinia Childermas had put inside Wren's pack. I think it started out as some kind of flapjack. It's probably very nutritious. Shh! The rumbling sound was growing louder. The ground was definitely shaking, vibrations flaking small scales of rust off the old wheel. The volcano, said Wren. Theo shook his head. They scrambled down out of their shelter and stood on the wheel's rim, staring westward. The rumblings came and went, gusting on the wind. A ridge bulged and shivered, its profile altering as they watched. A gleam of metal showed beneath the scrub, and a fist of exhaust smoke rose triumphantly into the air. Oh, quirk, said Wren. Harrowbarrow, whispered Theo. Wren nodded. She had almost forgotten the existence of Wolf Kobold. Her first thought was, Thank Quirk we got out of the debris field before he arrived. But it was drowned out immediately by another thought coming close behind it. What about the others? We've got to warn them, she said. Why? asked Theo. They'll know soon enough. If it moves as fast as it did when I saw it tear through the line, they'll hear the engines in London before long. But they might not, said Wren. The lookouts are young. They've never heard town engines. They'll think it's the volcano like we did. She tried to tell herself that it served the Londoners right for accusing people and locking them in cages. But all she could think of were her friends, Angie and Saab, Clytie, Dr. Childermas. Even Mr. Garamond didn't deserve to be eaten by Harrowbarrow. The waste of it appalled her. Those years of thought and effort and hard work. We've got to delay it, she said. I'll go aboard and divert them somehow. Even if it only buys an extra half hour, it might help. Don't you see? New London has to move today, now, ready or not. Once it's out of the fields, it should be able to outrun Harrowbarrow. Oh, not on your own, said Theo. Yes, because I can't take you, because you're the mossiest mossy in the whole world, and a terrible liar, and Wolf Kobold doesn't believe people like you even deserve to be alive, so you're going to go and be safe somewhere. Wren, he protested. She hugged him tight, tight. It would be so easy to just keep out of Harrowborough's way and pretend that none of this had anything to do with her. But it had. What would her father think of her if he knew she'd had a chance to save his city and she'd fluffed it? What would she think of herself? She kissed Theo. Go, she said. Harrow Barrow sends scouts out ahead sometimes on foot. If they catch you, they won't ask questions. Please, go. How will I find you again? I don't know, said Wren, 
pulling away from him. Harrow Barrow's engines snarled. I'll think of something, she promised. She couldn't quite bring herself to let go of his hands. Look, the gods went to all this trouble to bring us together. You don't think they'd let a silly, little, enormously dangerous armoured suburb come between us, do you? She checked herself, because she was starting to babble. It had been the same on that air key at Komombo. She seemed to be able to say anything except the thing she wanted to say. In the end, Theo said it instead. I love you. Gosh, really? Me too. You, I mean, I, I love you. She started to move back toward him, then pulled herself away. There, she thought. I've told him. Now I'll have one less regret when I get down to the sunless country. She turned and started to stumble away through the brambles and the gobbets of rusting wreckage, northward into Harrow Barrow's path. Hide! she shouted at him, seeing him standing there watching helplessly from the shadow of the abandoned wheel. Go and hide! She pressed on, half afraid and half hoping that he would insist on coming with her. When she looked back again, she could no longer see him. Theo ran a little way into the thickets of alder that filled the scooped-out hollow of an old track-mark nearby. There he stopped. He wanted to be with Wren, but he knew that if the Harrow Barovians were as bad as she described, he would only be going to his death and bringing more danger down on her by making Cobalt wonder why she was with an anti-tractionist. Yet he could not just hide. He turned east and started loping toward the debris field. The Londoners were not bad people. They deserved all the warning he could give them. He would run to the hangar at the west end of Holloway Road and tell the lads on guard there what was coming for them. Wren waded through the waist-high weeds. The day was dimming as the pall of smoke from the distant volcano spread across the sky. End of the world weather. Harrowbarrow's engines had fallen silent. She wondered if Wolf Kobold was on his bridge, watching the land ahead through his periscope. She pulled off her jacket and turned it inside out. The red silk lining was tatty and faded after all her adventures, but it was still the brightest thing about. She climbed up on a nameless chunk of wreckage and started to wave the jacket above her head, shouting, Wolf! Wolf! It's me! It's Wren! After a few minutes, she jumped down and started plodding on again. She could feel the ground stirring underfoot as the harvester suburb drew nearer. From time to time she waved the jacket and shouted, but she couldn't even see Harrow Barrow anymore. It had squirreled down into a deep trench. Wren glanced at the sky. No stalker birds. Honestly, she thought, where were the green storm and their city-zapping superweapon when you needed them? It was sheer incompetence letting Harrow Barrow drive so far behind their lines. A hummock of greyish earth ahead of her suddenly proved that it wasn't a hummock after all, by standing up and pointing a gun at her and shouting, Stop! Wren screamed and dropped her jacket. All around her, more grey-clad men were appearing from the undergrowth. She didn't recognise their faces, but she knew by their get-ups and their tinted goggles that they were one of Harrow Barrow's scouting parties. She raised her hands and tried not to let her voice wobble as she said, I'm Wren Natsworthy. I'm a friend of your mare. One of the men searched her for weapons, 
more thoroughly than Wren felt was really necessary. Surely they must know that you couldn't hide anything very dangerous inside your bra. Their leader said, You, come. And they were off, running quickly through the rough, stumbly country, squeezing through crannies in the walls of track marks and wading across their flooded floors. The men moved fast and easily and shoved Wren when she showed any sign of flagging. She was exhausted by the time the armoured flank of Harrowbarrow came in sight, half-submerged in mud and torn-up bushes. A hatchway opened. The scouts led Wren inside and slammed the hatch cover shut behind her. Then Harrowbarrow went grinding on its way toward the debris fields. It felt very strange to be back in the streets of the burrowing suburb after all that had happened. Very strange indeed to stand in Wolf Cobalt's town hall, on soft carpets, among velvet curtains and fine paintings, and the gentle glow of argon uplighters. Wren stared at herself in a mirror and barely recognized the disheveled, weather-beaten young Londoner who looked out at her. Wren! They must have called him up from the bridge. He wore boots and breeches and a collarless shirt with big fans of sweat spreading down from the armpits. He looked thinner than she remembered, and she wondered if it had been very hard for him, that journey alone across the outcountry. Just for an instant she felt pleased and relieved to see him, and she seized on the feeling and used it to make a smile, a shy, warm smile. Herr Cobalt! Why so formal, Wren? He came to her and took both her hands in his. I'm so happy you came to meet us. What brings you here? You are alone? Where is your father? He is still in London, she lied. Do the Londoners know of our arrival? Not yet, Wren told him. Then what are you doing here? I've been waiting for you. I knew you'd come. She let her smile fade, looked as if she were about to cry, to faint. Cobalt helped her to a chair. Oh, Wolf, she said. Dad's a prisoner. After you left, the Londoners thought we must have been in league with you. They locked us in horrible cages, old animal cages from the zoo. Dad's not well, but they won't let him out. So I escaped, and I've been living in the debris at the edge of the field, waiting and waiting, and I thought you'd never come. Cobalt's arms went around her, pulling her face against his chest. Wren managed to squeeze out a few tears, and then found that if she thought hard about Theo and Dad, it made her cry for real. She said shakily, Harrow Barrow is my only hope. You'll keep Daddy safe, won't you, when you eat New London? Of course, of course, said Cobalt, stroking her hair. By this evening we will be at Crouch End. The Londoners and all they have will be our prize. Your father will be safe. Wren pulled away from him, looking horrified. This evening? But you'll be too late. They are to leave this afternoon. The launch date has been brought forward because of all the fighting. Oh, you must go faster. Wolf shook his head. Impossible. It will take us that long to skirt the debris fields. Show me, said Wren, wiping her face with the back of her grubby hand. She followed him along the fuggy walkways and across the dismantling yards, where gangs of men were preparing heavy cutting and rending engines. They climbed the ladder to the bridge and found Hausdorfer at the helm, his peculiar spectacles flashing as he nodded a greeting to Wren. 
He started to say something in German to Kobold, but the young mare waved him away and led Ren across to the chart table, where a map of the debris fields had been spread out. Wolf must have drawn it from memory after he returned to Harrowbarrow. Wren instantly saw several errors, as well as big blank spaces in the heart of the field, where Wolf had never been. He pointed at the map with a pair of compasses, tracing a line that wriggled around the northern edge of the main field, and then struck in toward Crouch End. That's my plan. Why not go straight across the middle? asked Wren. I don't know what lies there. The wreckage might be impossible. And there are those electrical discharges the Londoners tell stories of. Oh, fairy stories, said Wren dismissively. It's just as you suspected. The sprites are a tale they told us to keep us from nosing about. That one we saw the first day was faked by one of Garriman's boys hiding in the debris with a lightning gun. She smiled at him. Look, if you want to be sure of reaching Crouch End before they get their new city moving, go this way. There's a sort of valley stretching through the wreckage that will take you almost all the way there. There are no lookouts in that part either, so you'll stay undetected longer. She picked up a pencil that hung on a piece of frayed string from the corner of the table and drew a line on the chart for Harrowbarrow to follow, west to east through the debris field, straight along Electric Lane. The lads on watch beside the Archaeopteryx had heard the muffled engines in the west by the time Theo arrived. They were standing on a high promontory of wreckage outside the hangar, squinting into the murk. As he scrambled toward them, he heard one say, I can't see anything. It's the volcano. And the other reply, Or maybe it's an airship engine. Maybe there's an airship circling above all this smog. It's not an airship, Theo shouted and ducked as they turned toward him, afraid that they would fire their crossbows at him. But they only stared. The same boys he talked to yesterday. He tried to remember their names. Will Hallsworth and Jake Henson. Will, he said, walking toward them with his hands outstretched to show he was not armed. Jake, there's a suburb coming. Harrowbarrow. You've got to warn the others. Your new city has to move out now. Don't listen to him. Jake warned his companion. He's a mossy. Mr. Garriman said, Mr. Garriman is wrong, Theo insisted. If I was a mossy, what would I be doing coming to warn you about Harrowbarrow? Maybe there is no Harrowbarrow, said Will, thinking hard. Maybe it's a mossy trick. A snarl of engines drowned out his voice, coming from somewhere to the southwest. A crash and clang of falling debris, too. The Londoners stared. Smoke and clouds of dust and rust flakes drifted across the southern sky. It's surfacing, shouted Theo. It's reached the edge of the wreck. Come on. What about the Arky? asked Jake. We can't just leave her here. We'll have to fetch Lurpak or Clyte. There's no time, shouted Theo, as the rusty deck plate beneath them shook and shifted dislodged by the vibrations from the hungry suburb that was shouldering its way through the wreck a mile to the south. Well, we can't fly her, wailed Will. I can. Yes, home to your stinking mossy friends. We're not falling for that one. Will, shouted Theo. I'm not with the green storm. Trust me. He scrambled into the hangar, staring at the Archaeopteryx. Is she fueled? 
I think so. Lurpak Flint was down here yesterday working on her. Theo rattled the gondola door. It was locked, and when he asked for the keys, Will and Jake looked blank. He picked up a hunk of metal and smashed the door in, then grabbed a knife from Will's belt and started to hack at the ropes that anchored the airship. Her controls will probably be locked, he shouted as he worked. But that doesn't matter. The wind's with us. Even if I can't get the engines on, it'll still be quicker than running to Crouch End. Will and Jake started to object, then gave up and joined him. The airship shivered as the ropes fell away. Theo noticed two rockets resting in racks beneath the forward engine pods. If he could get to Crouch End and persuade the Archaeopteris's crew to return with him, there was a chance they could slow or stop Harrow Barrow. He'd heard stories of how a well-aimed rocket shot down an exhaust stack or into a track support could bring a whole city to a halt. Then New London would have time to escape, and perhaps Theo could find his way aboard the crippled harvester and reach Wren. The three boys scrambled into the gondola as the untethered airship began to rise. On the flight deck, Theo found that he could work the elevator and rudder wheels, although he had no way to turn on the engines. Sunlight poked in through the gondola windows as the Archaeopteryx rose out of the top of the hangar, trailing camouflage netting and uprooted trees. The brisk wind boomed against the envelope, already pushing her westward, and Theo spun the rudder wheel so that her nose began to swing toward Crouch End. The first rocket punched through the prow of the envelope and tore the whole length of the ship, exploding in the central gas cell and sending a spume of fire out through her stern. Theo heard Jake and Will scream as the gondola lurched sideways. Struggling with the useless controls, he saw another ship go sliding past behind the sheets of smoke billowing from the Archaeopteryx's envelope. A small armed freighter in the white livery and green lightning bolt insignia of the storm. Machine guns opened up from a nest on her tail fins as she sped by, and bullets came slamming into the Archaeopteryx's listing gondola and into Will, smashing him backward through a shattering window. Will! screamed Jake as Theo dragged him to the deck. Peering through the smoke, he had a brief, dizzy view of the debris field. Above it, low and menacing, a shoal of white ships circled. The green storm had arrived. Chapter 46 The Shortcut The warships circled low over Crouch End, low enough that everyone could see the rockets glinting in their racks and the divine wind machine cannon twitching in the swiveling turrets. A few of the braver Londoners ran for crossbows and lightning guns, but Mr. Garriman shouted at them not to be so daft. He hated the storm, but he knew that trying to fight them would be madness. Someone tied a white bedsheet to an old broom handle, and Len Peabody waved it frantically as the leading ship came down. She was the Fury, the only real warship in the fleet, but none of the Londoners noticed how tatty the other ships looked. They were too busy staring at the soldiers and battle-stalkers who spilled from the Fury's hatches as she descended. General Naga was the first to jump down, relying on his armour to absorb the shock of landing. Straightening up, sword in hand, he breathed in the rusty, earthy air of the debris field and heard his troops disembarking behind him. He glanced to his right. Two of his ships had landed on top of the big wedge of wreckage there, and others were circling it. A party of his men were herding more Londoners down the track that led from it. 
The site is secure, Excellency, announced his second-in-command, Sub-General Tien, running to his side and dropping on one knee to salute. Resistance? One of our armed freighters shot down a ship that rose from the western edge of the ruins, and the gunship Avenge the Windflower was struck by some sort of electrical discharge and destroyed with all hands. She reported movements in the western part of the wreck before she was hit. I've sent the hungry ghost to investigate. Naga strode toward the waiting Londoners. His feet sank into the deep drifts of rust flakes with crunching sounds, each footstep unpleasantly like the noise Inoni's nose had made when his fist struck it. He tried again to stop thinking of her. She was a traitor, he told himself sternly. Half the men in his fleet would have mutinied if he had not dealt firmly with her. He had to be strong if he were to save the good earth from these barbarians and their new weapon. But the barbarians were something of a disappointment. Ragged, unkempt, unarmed except for a few homemade guns and bows that they had dropped when they saw Naga's force landing. They had vegetable gardens for the gods' sake, just like real people. Their leader was a frightened little man with a scrap metal chain of office around his neck. Chisney Garamond, he said in English. Lord Mayor of London, I'm here to negotiate on behalf of my people. Where is the transmitter? barked Naga. The what? Garamond gaped fearfully at him. Naga raised his sword, but the man's bruised face and swollen nose reminded him suddenly of Inoni, and he lowered it again. His armor grated and hummed as it tried to compensate for the quick shivering of his sword arm. Where are you hiding it? he demanded. We know the ground station is in London. Why else have you lurked here all these years? Why else did you destroy one of our ships just now with your electric gun? That weren't us, said another man earnestly. That was just power discharging from the dead metal. Your sky boys got too close to Electric Lane. I'm sorry. And the movements the crew reported in the wreckage over there? There's nothing there except our youngsters on lookout, said Garamond. Please don't hurt them. They're just kids. Naga swung to address his waiting troops. This savage knows nothing. Find me engineers. Coming, sir. A sub-officer ran up at the head of a squad of stalkers, each carrying a struggling, bald-headed prisoner. An old woman was dumped on the ground at Naga's feet. He waved his men back and watched her scramble up. Where is the transmitter? The engineer looked curiously at him. Naga had the uneasy feeling that she could sense the swirl of guilt and fear behind the stern face he wore. She said, there is no transmitter here, sir. Then how do you talk to your orbital weapon? The way her eyes widened made Naga wonder, just for a moment, if he had been wrong. The Londoners started to murmur together, until his men cuffed and threatened them into silence. The engineer said, They are surprised, General, because they all believed it was you who controlled this new weapon. Certainly we do not— we have no quarrel with anybody. We are simply building a new city for ourselves. Ah, yes, your floating city. I did not believe that story when your agent came babbling of it at Babmungompa, and I do not believe it now. Shut those barbarians up, 
he bellowed, rounding on his men. The barbarians stared fearfully at him. A little boy started to cry and was quickly hushed by his mother. Naga felt ashamed. When he turned back to the lady engineer, she was holding out a thin, lilac-veined hand to him. Come and see for yourself. The attack ship, Hungry Ghost, hovered over the smouldering wreck of the Archaeopteryx and made certain there were no survivors, then veered away toward the southwest to investigate the movements that the crew of Avenge the Windflower had reported before that lasso of electricity jumped out of the debris field to snare them. The Hungry Ghost's captain took his ship higher, not wanting to meet the same end. Almost at once, he saw the mounds of wreckage below him shifting and slithering. He stared down at the movements, not really understanding, until an old track tumbled sideways to reveal the scarred, armoured carapace shoving along beneath it. The suburb's lookouts saw the ship above them at the same instant. Silos yawned open in its armour, and a flight of rockets tore through the hungry ghost, blasting her engine pods off, smashing the gondola in half, ripping off a tail fin. Smouldering, sagging, she drifted downwind, while Harrow Barrow ploughed onward below her. Damn it! That's all we need! Wolf Kobold's angry shout made Wren cringe. She was sure that Harrowbarrow must be near the western end of Electric Lane by now, and she had been waiting and waiting for the first sprite to strike. When it did, Wolf would know that she had betrayed him. But for the moment it seemed she was still safe. He saw her flinch and came to stand with her in the corner of the bridge where she had gone to get out of the way of his men. Nothing to worry about, Wren, he said. It seems my forward rocket batteries just shot down a green storm warship. The savages are in London already. Oh, don't worry, he laughed at the look of dismay upon her face. We have dealt with a green storm before. My lookouts say that these ships are old, a rag bag of freighters and transports. Naga clearly doesn't think your London friends are worth sending a real unit to deal with. We shall crush them easily. He shouted instructions at Hausdorfer, and the navigator shouted in turn down the speaking tubes beside the helm. The suburb increased its speed, and shocks came trembling through the deck and walls of the bridge as it butted massive chunks of rusting metal aside, and track plates and sections of old building went tumbling over the hull or were crunched and crushed beneath the heavy tracks. Wren braced herself against the chart table. Wolf Kobold put his arm around her. It will be all right, he promised. Another hour will be there. Thank you for this shortcut, Wren. I won't forget it. Maybe there would be no sprites, thought Wren. Or maybe they were striking Harrow Barrow's hull already, dozens of them, doing no harm at all against its thick armour. Maybe all she had achieved by her ruse was to ensure that New London would be devoured even sooner. And would it really be so bad if it was? It would serve the Londoners right for what they'd done to her, and good might come of it. She imagined Harrowbarrow growing strong and glorious on Dr. Childermas's technology, a hovering city many tiers high, and she could be Chatelaine of it all. Perhaps Wolf would make her Frau Kobold, Lady Mayoress of his new city. 
After her time in the debris fields, the thought of a life surrounded by his tasteful furnishings and books seemed quite attractive. And she would tame him, make him treat his workers and his captives fairly. We're entering your valley, Ren, said Wolf warmly, listening to another report from Hausdorfer, who was taking a turn at the periscope. The way is clear ahead, just as you promised. Theo and Jake ran through some trackless tangle of debris, pushing past wires and hawsers, girders, fallen tear supports like felled redwoods. Their clothes were singed and charred by the fires they'd escaped from as the Archaeopteryx came down. They did not know where they were or where they were going, and they could not hear each other speak because of the immense din of engines and scraping, grinding, tearing, squealing metal, which seemed to come from all around them and from the sky above them and up through the ground beneath their running feet, a cleft between two rubble heaps ahead, a sort of path, or more likely just a stream bed where water sluiced down off the heights of the wreckage when it rained. Jake ran toward it, shouting something. Theo started to hurry after him, and then glimpsed a sign in the debris, half hidden by the scales of rust that were avalanching down the sides of the heaps as they shook and shifted under the weight of the nearby suburb. A crude skull and crossbones. Danger. Theo remembered something Wren had told him about Electric Lane. Jake! Ahead of him, Jake was stumbling out through the cleft into a broad, fire-stained valley. Watch out! Theo hollered over the noise that made it impossible to hear even his own thoughts. Come back! The lightning will get you! What? Something got Jake, but it wasn't lightning. An immense steel snout burst out from the steep wall of wreckage that formed the far side of the valley. Jake started to run back toward Theo, and a segment of clawed steel track came down on him like a giant's foot. A wheel two stories tall rolled over him and on, and then another and another. The suburb's engines whinnied and growled as it dragged itself free of the wreckage and started to turn, making ready to speed east along the valley. Only a small suburb, but from where Theo stood it seemed world-filling. An armoured escarpment pocked and pitted with tiny windows, gun slits, air vents, hatch covers, and a stitchwork of rivets, people inside it somewhere, all unaware of the boy they had just squashed beneath their tracks. Theo scrambled backward as the wreckage he stood on began to slide and toss, churned into restless waves. He tried running, but the broad, flat fragment of deck plate he chose to run across began to tilt steeper and steeper until he was climbing a hill, crawling up a cliff, struggling to keep a fingerhold upon a sheer wall. He fell, struck some other piece of wreckage, windmilled, tumbled down the valley's side, and landed hard in mud and water at the bottom. He lay there, shivering, glad of the brackish water seeping through his clothes, because its cold touch told him he was still alive. Thank God, he whispered. Thank God. And then, opening his eyes, realized that there was not as much to be thankful for as he had thought. The stunted trees that grew around the edges of the pool he lay in were charcoal statues. Beyond them was Harrowbarrow, a steel tsunami rolling straight toward him, tumbled debris foaming and frothing ahead of it. Theo pushed himself up and started to run, but from the wreckage ahead of him, 
An immense brightness burst, crackling overhead, flinging his jittery shadow on the rust flakes at the edge of the pool. Electricity, in blinding skeins, tied Harrowbarrow to the valley walls. Lightning tiptoed across its metal hide, licked in through windows and silo mouths, set fire to scraps of vegetation clinging to the tracks and bow shield. The engine roar faltered and failed, and in its place was a crackling, crinkling cellophane noise, like God crumpling his toffee wrappers. In the dancing blue light, Theo splashed through the shallows and flung himself at the only thing that was not made of metal, a boulder dredged from the earth by London's tracks. He scrambled onto its dry top, praying that his movements and his wet clothes would not draw the surging electricity down on him. Above his head, the sky was hidden by a cage of blue fire. Harrowbarrow was scrawled with scribbles of light. Sparks chased through the debris around the boulder's foot, and the wet mud fizzed. A tree caught fire with a woof and burned like a match. Then, abruptly, the storm ceased. A few last sparks, yelping like ricochets, arced across the gaps between Harrowbarrow and the valley walls. Wreckage slithered down around the suburb's tracks with a sliding clatter. Smoke shifted slowly, smelling of ozone. Theo remembered to breathe. Harrowbarrow lay silent, motionless, its armor scarred by smoldering wounds where the sprites had touched. Wren, said Theo into the silence. Wren? Chapter 47 the Battle of Crouch End General Naga stood on the sloping floor of the womb and looked up at New London. He could see himself reflected in the long curve of the tiny city's underside, and again in one of those strange dull mirrors that hung beneath it. Why would anyone build such a thing? Could Natsworthy have been telling the truth? Did the Londoners believe that this contraption would actually fly? He tried to force his doubts aside. He was a soldier. He was used to doing that. But today, for some reason, the doubts stayed, nagging. If this mad city was really all that London's engineers had been building, then where was the transmitter that controlled the new weapon? Had Inoni been telling him the truth, too? Had he shamed and struck her for no reason? The soldiers he had sent aboard New London were returning climbing down one of the steep boarding ladders. The young signals officer he had put in charge of the search ran across the oily floor and saluted. Excellency, we have found no sign of a transmitter. Certainly nothing powerful enough to reach the orbital weapon. Naga turned away. He shut his eyes and saw Inoni smile her small, shy smile and say, I told you so. What now? he thought. What? Now. Should we destroy the barbarian suburb? asked the signals officer. Naga looked at it. All mobile cities were an abomination. The world must be made green again. But today, for some reason, he could not bring himself to give the order. He was glad of the distraction when another man came racing into the womb, shouting, General Naga! The hungry ghost has been shut down! There is something approaching from the west! Naga unsheathed his sword and strode outside into the glum, grey daylight, soldiers and frightened Londoners crowding out behind him. 
faintly over the rust hills and the rubble heaps, he heard the screal of C-50 Super Sterling land engines. Thank gods, he thought. A harvester suburb. At last, something he could destroy without a qualm. He turned to the waiting officer to order an air attack, but before he could speak, the engine sounds cut off abruptly, and in their place there rose a crackling, a lashing. He turned and shaded his eyes, and saw the western skyline fizz with lightning. Sprites! one of the Londoners shouted. They must have come straight through Electric Lane, the poor devils! They've been struck! On Harrowbarrow's bridge, the smoke stirred slowly, tying itself into gentle knots. Wren lay on her back on the floor and watched it. The dull red emergency lights flickered. Someone groaned. She began to hear other voices, cries and angry shouts coming from other parts of the suburb. No engine noise now to drown them out. She tried to work out if she had been injured. She didn't think she had. Someone had crashed into her and she had fallen to the floor. Perhaps she had been unconscious for a few seconds. She was shaking, and her head was full of memories of the things she had just seen, the sparks spewing from failing instruments and exploding control panels, the helmsman screaming as the metal wheel he was gripping became a mandala of blue light. She supposed her plan had worked. She supposed she should feel pleased with herself. Wolf Kobold stumbled to his feet. There was blood on his face, black in the red light. Up! he shouted hoarsely. Everybody up! Get up! I want the emergency engines online at once. Hastorfer, get down to the engine districts and bring me a damage report. Locus, pull us out of this damned lightning swamp. Zbigniew, organize scouting teams. Get them out now! Now! But the lightning... Whatever it was, it's gone. Spent for the moment. We mustn't let this delay give the Londoners time to escape. Zbigniew started shouting orders into the speaking tubes, while Lorcas dragged the dead helmsman's body from the wheel and flung it to the floor. Wren started to edge toward the companion ladder amid the sounds of Cobalt's dazed men stirring. Groans and frightened questions, curses. Someone asked in English, what in the name of the Thatcher has happened? Ha! said Hausdorfer. He was on his feet, gripping the back of Cobalt's chair for support. He was pointing at Wren, his hands shaking almost as much as hers. She led us here. Cobalt looked at her. No. It was her, Wolf, growled Hausdorfer, unbuttoning the holster on his belt. Think with your head, not your heart. She knew this would happen. She hoped to fry us and protect her friends. No, said Wolf again. But Wren saw his face change as he struggled to keep on believing she was innocent and failed. She ran. A man standing near the top of the ladder reached out to grab her, but she kicked him hard between the legs and writhed past him and down through the floor of the bridge. The steel rungs still tingled with electricity under her hands, sending little numbing shocks kicking up her arms. She heard Wolf shouting, Catch her! and his men scrambling to obey. But they were too sluggish for her, and she was already climbing down into the smoke and shadows of the dismantling yards. She jumped the last few feet, landed on something soft, peered through the smoke at it, and realized that it was a dead man, 
burned by the currents that had surged through the suburb's deck plates. She felt sick for a moment, knowing that she was responsible. Was this how Mum felt, she wondered, when she killed the huntsman? Ren! shouted Wolf's voice somewhere above her. You don't think you can escape, do you? She forgot her guilt and fled. If anyone was to blame, she thought, as she pounded across the yards, it was Wolf Cobalt for bringing his town here hunting in the first place. Ahead of her, stairs led up into the maze of Harrow Barrow's residential streets. As she ran toward them, the metal beneath her feet began to judder, jerkily at first, then settling into a steady, pulsing rhythm. They're already starting the backup engines, Wren, called Wolf. Ducking behind an abandoned town grinder, she peered through the gloom and saw him crossing the yards, calling out watchfully, like the seeker in a game of hide-and-seek. Weren't expecting that, were you? Thought you could destroy the barrow by luring us into that lightning. But the barrow's stronger than you know, Wren. We'll be moving again soon, and we'll eat your precious London friends for supper. If you're very nice to me, I'll keep you alive long enough to watch them die. A damaged power coupling close to him spurted sparks, and she saw the sword in his hand flash. He went out of sight behind a support strut, and she took her chance and ran, up the stairs and into the smoky, dingy streets. They were not quite as dingy as before. Big rents had been torn in Harrowbarrow's hide, as if someone had gone to work on the armour with a colossal tin opener. Bars and planks of smoky sunlight stuck down through the holes, and the shade-loving Harrowbarrowvians tried to avoid them as they hurried around making repairs. Squads of armed men ran past, but they were not looking for Wren. She kept to the shadows like everybody else, and jogged toward the stern, looking for a way out. A few of the sally ports were opened, but they were all clogged with scavengers hurrying out into the debris field. Wren tried not to think what they would do when they reached Crouch End. At least the Londoners would be warned of their coming. The noise of those sprites must have been heard halfway to Batman Gomper. But even if they had time to prepare, how could they stand up for themselves against Harrowbarrow's ruthless scouts? Wren! bellowed a voice behind her. She turned into a dingy, tubular street called Stack Seven Sluice. She was halfway down it when she heard the running feet coming up fast behind her. Wren! The voice was inhuman, distorted by echoes. She tried to run faster, but strong hands caught her, swung her round. Theo! Are you hurt? asked Theo. Wren shook her head. She tried to speak, but she could only croak. She hugged Theo. I came in through a hatch down near the bows, he said. It came open when the lightning struck. I climbed in and started looking around, and I heard people hunting for you. I came aft, and I saw you, and I shouted. I, I heard. I thought you were Wolf Cobalt. I thought you were far away by now, safe. I couldn't just leave you. She hugged him tighter and said, Theo, we can't stay here. We've got to find a way off this place. It's going to be moving again soon. It's all been for nothing. I thought I could stop them, but all I've done is made them angry. Naga ran down the track to Crouch End, while his makeshift airfleet launched itself into the skies above London again, the big shadows of the airships rushing across the huddled prisoners. He looked for Garamond, and found him sitting miserably on the edge of a raised vegetable bed. Get your people under cover! 
he ordered. There's a harvester out in the wreckage there somewhere. They'll probably have raiding parties closing in on us. Move everyone into that womb place. We can defend that against them. Garamond looked up at him, dazed and scared and not quite understanding. As if to convince him, quick puffs of smoke burst from a dozen points in the wreckage and something hummed over his head and clanged against Naga's breastplate, causing the general to stagger backward a few paces before his armour compensated for the blow. Two of the green storm soldiers waiting nearby spun about and fell, flinging their limbs out so clownishly that several of the watching children laughed. The other soldiers began to run for cover, guns at the ready, shouting at panicking Londoners to get out of their way. Garriman started yelling, Everybody into the womb, please! Into the womb, everyone, quickly! Above the rust hills, one of Naga's airships burst suddenly into fans of smoke and belching scarlet flame. Another fired rockets down at some target on the ground and came to a shuddering halt as cannon fire from below ripped off its engine pods and rudders. Whatever the suburb was, it had clearly survived the electric trap it had blundered into. Harrow Barrow, the Londoners had said. Naga recognised the name vaguely, a shadowy place that even the storm's intelligence wing knew only from rumours. But Naga had come up against plenty of other harvesters in his time. Evercreech and Werewolf, Holt and Quirk le Dieu. They were hard places, rip off their tracks and destroy their engines, and they would still keep coming, extending spare wheels and firing up emergency motors. He shielded his eyes against the light and watched his airships burning, four of them now, a good crop of escape balloons drifting downwind, thank gods. He knew he had a fight on his hands. He looked behind him to check that the Londoners were doing as he'd ordered and saw them hurrying up the track to the womb. Some carried bundles of belongings, others clutched the hands of scared children or helped the old and sick hobble along. Sub-General Tien was ordering squads of battle-stalkers into the rust-heaps to stop any Harrow-Barovians who tried to circle around and cut them off. Naga took a carbine from one of his dead soldiers and threw it to the first Londoner he saw, a wide-eyed girl. "'Covering fire!' he ordered. For a moment he wondered if he had done the wrong thing and she was going to turn the gun on him, but she ran away to join his own troops, who were crouched among the heaps of scrap metal west of the vegetable gardens." taking potshots at any townies who moved up in the rust hills. "'What about the Londoner's new city, Excellency?' asked Sub-General Tien, running over to crouch at his side. "'Shall we destroy it?' Naga stared at the long wedge of the womb, while bullets whirred past him like wasps. What would it be like to live all these years in a rubble heap, to work so hard only to see the thing you had built snatched away when it was almost finished?' Sub-General Tien was saying, We can't risk the engineer technology falling into the hands of these Traktionstadt vermin. Naga patted him on the shoulder. You're right. Find that woman engineer and tell her to start her engines. The new city must leave at once. Tien gaped at him, eyes wide behind his visor. You're letting it go, but it is a mobile city. We are sworn to destroy all mobile cities. It's not a city, Sub-General, said Naga. It's a very large, low-flying airship, and I intend to see that it comes to no harm. Tien stared a moment longer and seemed to understand. 
He nodded, saluted, and Naga saw him grinning as he hurried off, crouched low and zigzagging to avoid the bullets. Beneath his armor, Naga felt himself trembling. It was not easy to go against everything he had believed for so many years, but Inoni had taught him that there sometimes came a time when beliefs had to be abandoned or altered to suit new circumstances. He knew that she would approve of what he was doing. He ran across open ground to the vegetable gardens and crouched down beside the young London girl he had given the gun to. What's your name, child? Angie, mister. Angie Peabody. He squeezed her shoulder with his mechanical hand, sharing his courage with her the way he had so many times with so many other frightened youngsters in tight corners like this. Well, Angie, we're going to fall back to the womb and keep these devils at bay until your people can get their new city moving. You're helping us, mister. Cool. Ta. Her young face and bright, startled smile reminded Naga so strongly of Inoni that as he went running on to pass the same message to his own troops, he had to pull his visor shut so that they wouldn't see his tears. He thanked his gods that the harvester had come and that he had a battle to fight and people to defend. No politics to confuse him, no superweapons to worry about, just a chance to die like a warrior, sword in hand, facing the barbarians. Chapter 48 a Voyage to Erdene Tez Above the white knives of the mountains, the sky was full of memories. Tom and Hester didn't talk much as the Jenny flew away from Batmungompa, but they didn't have to. Each knew what the other was thinking of. All the voyages they'd made in this little ship, all the castles of cloud they'd flown her around, the glittering seas they'd seen below, the tiny, toy-like cities— the convoys and the trading posts, the ice mountains carving from Antarctic glaciers. The memories linked them together, drawing them closer, but they were all stained and spoiled by the things Hester had done. So they did not talk. They took turns to sleep, to eat, and when they were together on the flight deck, they only spoke about the mountains, the wind, the sinking pressure in number three gas cell. Tom fetched the lightning gun from its hiding place and explained how it worked. They flew over small towns, high, sparse pasture land, and ribbons of road. They saw no other ships. Tom kept the radio switched on, but all they heard were a few confused scrabblings of battle code, garbled distress calls on elusive frequencies, interspersed with pulses of interference, like breakers on a pebble shore. The sunlight faded. The sky was veiled with volcanic ash and city smoke. The Jenny crossed a high plateau. Ahead rose the snow spires of the Edene Shan. A sad, unwelcome thought came into Tom's head. This was the last journey of his life. And as if she guessed what he was thinking, Hester took his hand. Don't worry, Tom. We'll be all right. Hopeless missions are what we do best, remember? He looked at her. She was watching him solemnly, waiting for a smile, some sign of forgiveness or approval. But why should he forgive her? He snatched his hand away. How could you do it? he shouted. All the stored-up anger he had been nursing since she left came out of him in a rush that sent her reeling back as if he'd hit her. You sold Anchorage! You betrayed us all to the huntsman! 
For you! Hester's face was flushed, her scar dark and angry-looking. Her voice slurred the way it always did when she was upset, making it hard to hear what she said next. For your sake! That's why I did it! Because I was afraid you'd go off with Freya Rasmussen! I should have! Freya doesn't kill people and enjoy doing it and lie about it afterward. How could you lie to me all those years? And in Brighton, too, abandoning that little lost boy. How could you? Hester raised one hand to shield her face. I'm Valentine's daughter, she said. What? Tom thought he'd misheard. Valentine was my father. Tom was still angry. He thought this was another lie. David Shaw was your father. No, Hester shook her head, her face hidden now by both her hands. My mum and Valentine were lovers before she married. Valentine was my father. I found out a long time ago at Rogue's Roost. Only I never told you, because I thought if you knew, then you'd hate me. But now you hate me anyway, so you might as well know the truth. Valentine was my dad. His blood's in me, Tom. That's why I can lie and steal and kill people and it doesn't feel wrong to me. I know it's wrong, but I don't feel it. I'm Valentine's daughter. I take after him. Her one grey eye peered out at him between her fingers, as if she had turned back into the shy, broken girl he had fallen in love with all those years before. A memory came to him, clear as sunlight, from Wren's thirteenth summer when she and Hester had just been starting to fight. Hester standing at the bottom of the staircase in their house at Dogstar Court and shouting up at her sulky daughter, You take after your grandfather! At the time he'd thought she'd been talking about David Shaw, and he'd thought it surprising, because she'd always said that David Shaw had been a quiet, kind man. But of course she had been thinking of her real father. He felt the last of his anger drain away, leaving him shaky and ashamed. What must it have been like for her, keeping such a secret for so long? And Wren, too, she snuffled, weeping now. He's in her, too. Why else would she steal that tin book thing? Why else run out on us? That's why I had to go, Tom. Maybe if she just has you, she'll be all right. Maybe the Valentine in her won't come out. It's not Thaddeus Valentine who Wren takes after, Tom said gently. He went to her and took her hands, pulling them aside and down so that he could see her face. If you could see her now, Het. She's so brave and beautiful. She's just like Catherine. He had thought that he didn't want to kiss her, but all of a sudden he realized that he had wanted nothing else ever since they'd parted. The things she had done that had made him so angry, the lies she'd told him and the men she'd killed, only made him want her more. He had loved Valentine when he was a boy, and now he loved Valentine's daughter. He kissed her face, her jaw, her damaged, tear-wet mouth. I don't hate you, he said. From his station high in the envelope, where he'd been keeping watch for pursuers, Shrike heard the sounds from the flight deck, their rustling movements and the things they whispered to each other. 
Hester's constant weakness for the other once born saddened him, scared him too, for he could tell from the sick, arrhythmic stutter of Tom's heart that Tom would not live long. What would Hester do without him? How could she have invested all her hopes in something so fragile? And yet her small voice, audible only to a stalker's ears, still drifted up the companionway, murmuring, I love you, I love you, I always loved you, Tom, oh, only you and always. Embarrassed, Shrike tried not to listen to her, concentrating hard upon the other noises around him. And faintly, faintly, beneath the noise of engines and envelope fabric and the wind in the rigging, he sensed a third heartbeat, another pair of lungs filling and emptying, the familiar chattering of frightened teeth. A few empty crates stood between the airframe struts, a heap of tarpaulins quivered in a corner. Shrike ripped them aside and stared down at the once-born huddled underneath. It was hard for a flat, mechanical voice like his to sound weary, but he managed it. So, Professor, we meet again. There is a stowaway on board, the old stalker announced, climbing down the companionway with his captive. Tom and Hester sprang apart, straightening their clothes and their ruffled hair, turning their attention reluctantly to Nimrod Pennyroyal as Shrike shoved him onto the flight deck. Please, please, please forgive me, he was begging, pausing to add, Oh, hello, Natsworthy. Tom nodded awkwardly, but did not say anything. He knew that there would be no more time for him to be alone with Hester, for the plateau below was narrowing and rising, and the steep buttresses of the Edene Shan were only a few miles ahead. Throw him out of the hatch, said Hester angrily, fumbling with the buttons of her shirt. Give him to me, I'll do it myself. She felt that dropping Pennyroyal thousands of feet onto some nice pointy rocks would help her regain her dignity. But she knew that Tom would not want that. So she restrained herself and asked, How in the gods' names did you slip aboard? I couldn't just let you leave me in back Gomper, could I? Pennyroyal started babbling. I mean, for Poskett's sake, I wasn't going to hang around and let Naga chop my head off or something. Authors lose all their appeal to the public if they are only available in kit form. So I sneaked aboard while those green storm chappies were fueling her and hid in the hold. If Mr. Shrike hadn't come poking about, I'd still be there, being no trouble to you at all. <laughs> Where are we going, anyway? Airhaven? Peripatetiapolis? Somewhere nice and safe, I trust? Nowhere's safe any more, said Tom. We're going to Edene Tess. Where? And indeed, why? Because we think the stalker Fang is there. Pennyroyal's eyes bulged. He writhed in Shrike's grip. But she'll kill us all! She'll have airships, soldiers, stalkers! I don't think so, said Tom. I think she's quite alone. How else would she have been able to return without Naga's intelligence people suspecting anything? He grunted and clutched his chest, feeling his heart straining in the thin, high-altitude air. For a moment, he felt an absolute hatred of Pennyroyal. What was the old man doing here? 
Why was he haunting them? He wondered if he should tell Hester about his failing heart. When she learned that the old wound was going to kill him, she would murder Penny Royal out of hand. But he still did not want to tell Hester how ill he was. He wanted to cling for as long as possible to the pretense that he was going to survive and sleep in her arms tonight and fly on with her in the morning to fresh adventures in other skies. Tie him up in the stern cabin, he said. But, Tom, <laughs> be reasonable, Penny Royal wailed. Tie him nice and tight. We can't risk having him on the loose. Shrike dragged the spluttering explorer away. Hester touched Tom's face with her fingertips and followed, promising to tie the knots herself and leave Shrike to guard him. Alone on the flight deck, Tom steered the jenny between the snow spires of the Edene Shan, up and up until the topmost peaks were sliding past the windows like vast blind ships, snowfields ghostly in that ashen light. When Hester came back to the flight deck, he said, We'll be over the valley in another half hour, if Anna's old charts are right. They should be, said Hester, hugging him from behind. Erdene Tesh was her house, wasn't it? Tom nodded, wishing he could kiss her again, but too wary of the spines and spikes of rock he was flying through to even glance at her. Anna told me once she planned to retire here. Hester hugged him tighter. Tom, when we get there, if it is her... We're just going to let Shrike kill her, aren't we? You're not going to try to talk to her or argue with her or appeal to her better nature, are you? Tom looked sheepish. Hester knew him too well. She had already guessed the half-formed plans he had been turning over in his mind all day. He said, At Rogue's Roost that time, she seemed to know me. She let us go. She isn't Anna, Hester warned him. Just remember that. She kissed the hollow of his neck beneath his ear, where the swift pulse beat. What I told you that night on Cloud Nine, about you being boring, I didn't mean it. You're not boring. Or maybe you are, but in a lovely way. You never bored me. They crossed a high pass. On the eastern side the ground fell steeply. Down, down, down. A valley opening, white and then green, a wriggle of river in its deep cleft, a lake at the far end, and on an island there, the house of the windflower. Tom, through the Jenny's old field glasses, saw a saucer-shaped antenna poking from its roof. Then the sky filled with wings. Hester had just enough time to push him to the floor before the first wave of stalker birds shattered the Jenny's front windows. Two of them came into the cabin, filling it with their flapping, the idiot flailing of their green-eyed heads. Hester snatched the lightning gun and shot the first before it saw her. The other came shrieking at her, its knife of a beak aimed straight at her eye. She fired the lightning gun at it, and it exploded, filling the flight deck with gunge and feathers. She looked down at Tom. Are you all right? Yes. He looked scared and white. Hester squirmed upright, hissing with pain as the movement wrenched strained muscles. She peered out of the windows. More birds were circling the jenny, and she could see a couple tearing at the starboard engine pod. She aimed the lightning gun through the side window and shot them both, then tossed it down to Tom and snatched her own gun down from an overhead locker. 
she started aft along the gondola's central corridor. Penny Royal was screeching in the stern cabin, and through the half-open door Hester saw the flap of wings and the gleam of Shrike's armour as he beat the birds back. Hester! the stalker shouted. I'm fine, she promised. She heard wings and claws inside the little medical bay where Anna Fang had once treated her for a crossbow wound, kicked the door open, and turned her gun on the birds that had torn their way in through the roof there. The gun was a good one, the steam-powered Weltschmerz 60, with the underslung grenade launcher that she'd picked up for a song in El Hul. But it made more of a mess of the medical bay than the birds had, shredding the outer wall till it looked like a doily. Through the holes she could see more birds going for the engine pod, and heard it choke and die, the propeller slowing. Oh, damn it, she said, and pumped a grenade through the pod's cowling, blowing it to pieces along with the birds. Back out in the corridor, she shouted, Tom, you all right? Of course, don't keep asking. Put us down, then. Down isn't a problem, said Tom, checking the row of gas pressure gauges on the instrument panel and seeing all the needles whirling towards zero. Unbalanced by the loss of the starboard pod, the gondola was tilting steeply sideways. Scary shapes flapped by outside, but Tom tried to ignore them, saving the lightning gun in case more got in. Gaudy, yellowish light licked in through the larboard windows. The envelope was burning. Hester kicked open the stern cabin door. Shrike was in the process of ripping a resurrected eagle to pieces. He looked like a scarecrow, coated with slime and feathers, and he swung his dead face toward her and said, This ship is finished. Not the Jenny, said Hester loyally. Tom will get her down all right. Go forward. Keep him safe. She stood aside to let him go past her. She'd been hoping the birds would have killed Penny Royal, but they'd been too busy with Shrike. The explorer lay on the floor where she'd left him, bound and gagged, looking up at her with round, pleading eyes. She considered shooting him, then shouldered her gun and pulled her knife out, stooping. Penny Royal gave a squeal of fright, but she was only cutting the ropes on his feet and wrists. As she stood up again, the remains of the long stern window disintegrated in an icefall of smashed glass, and the wide black wings of a resurrected condor filled the cabin. Its claws raked Penny Royal's head as it came flapping at Hester. She dropped the knife and tried to bring her gun to bear, but there was no time. She heard herself scream, a terrible, thin, little girl scream, and suddenly Shrike was back in the cabin with her, pulling her out of the way of the driving beak, grabbing the bird, its blade striking sparks from his armour as he crushed it to his body. The Jenny Hanover lurched as another of her gas cells exploded, her nose tipped up, her stern down. Hester was flung on top of Penny Royal, who clung to a bulkhead. She saw Shrike stumble toward the stern, where the mountains glowed in the twilight beyond the smashed window. The bird was strong, half crushed, it still flapped and clawed. The spasmic beating of its wings overbalanced Shrike. He smashed the bunk and crashed against the stern wall, which started to give way beneath him with a splintering sound. Shrike! screamed Hester, scrambling down the hill of the deck to help him. Hester! No! yelled Penny Royal through his gag, pulling her back. The wall collapsed. Shrike turned his face for a second toward Hester, still clutching the condor. He fell. Shrike! she shrieked again, as the gondola tilted back to the horizontal. She kicked herself free of Penny Royal and scrabbled as close as she dared to that gaping rent where the wall had been. 
Shrike! No answer. Nothing to see in the smoke and the wind and the rain of burning fragments from her dying ship. Only the echoes of Shrike's last cry bouncing up at her from the abyss where he had fallen. Hester! From the wall of the stalker's garden, Fishcake watched the burning airship draw a long, bright trail down the sky, deep into the shadows of the valley. The wind was carrying the sound away, or maybe burning airships made no sound. At any rate, it all seemed to be happening in silence. It was very beautiful. The igniting gas cells were like fountains, showering out golden fragments that twinkled and faded as they fell. Blazing birds tried to flutter away from it, and they fell, too, their bright reflections rising toward them in the waters of the lake until they met in a white kiss of steam. A footfall in the snow behind him made Fishcake look around. The stalker stood there, watching. It is the Jenny Hanover, she whispered calmly. How sweet of somebody to bring her home. The airship settled in marshy ground on the lake's far shore. As the smoke of its burning spread across the reed beds, Fishcake was almost sure he saw people running away from it. Mr. Natsworthy, he thought, and Hester. And he felt suddenly afraid, because he remembered what he had sworn to do to Hester, and was not sure that he had the courage to do it. His stalker's hand rested on his shoulder. They are no threat to us she whispered. We will not hurt them. But Fishcake gripped the knife inside his jacket and thought about the last time he had seen the Jenny Hanover flying away without him into the skies of Brighton. Tom splashed through ankle-deep water and dropped into wet grass, hugging the precious lightning gun. Hester was close behind him, flinging down Pennyroyal. Survivors of the stalker-bird flock clawed and shrieked around the blazing envelope, still trying to worry it to death. Hester lifted her gun and emptied the last of its grenades into the inferno. The explosion lit up the lake, the slopes and cliffs around it, the lonely house on its island. The Jenny's rockets went up too, with orange flashes. Then there was only the swirling smoke and the flames dancing in the smashed birdcage that had been their little airship. Twenty years of memories, burning away to charcoal and sooty metal. Tom? asked Hester. Yes, he said. His chest ached, but not badly. Perhaps being with Hester again had healed his broken heart. He hoped so, because his green pills had been in the Jenny's stern cabin. Our Jenny Hannifer she said. She was only a thing, said Tom, wiping at his eyes with a singed cuff, looking around. We're all right. That's all that matters. Where's Shrike? He's gone. He fell, up there somewhere, she pointed toward the enormous silence of the mountains. Will he come after us? Hester shrugged uneasily. He fell a long way, Tom. He saved me and he fell. He might be damaged, he might be dead, and there's no one to bring him back this time. Just us, then, said Tom, and he took her in his arms again and kissed her. She smelled just as she had on the night they first kissed, of ash and smoke 
and her own sharp sweat. He loved her very badly, and he was glad they were alone again, in danger and the wilds, where nothing that she had done mattered. Not quite alone, of course. He had forgotten Penny Royal, who knelt up in the bog and said in an irritable, gag-muffled voice, Do you mind? Hester pulled away from Tom reluctantly and nodded toward the house. This must be the place. We'd better get on with it, then. Tom took the lightning gun from his shoulder and checked it while Hester tied Penny Royal's hands and feet again, re-knotting the ends of the cords she'd cut earlier. You can't leave me here, bound and helpless, Penny Royal complained through his gag. We can't have you running around free, said Hester. You'd sell us out to the stalker for a handful of copper. Well, what if you don't come back? Pray we do, she suggested. Tom felt unhappy about leaving the old man behind, but he knew she was right. They were already in enough danger without a penny royal on the loose behind them. How are you proposing to get out of this place? Penny royal howled as they started to leave. But they had no answer to that, so Hester just tied his gag tighter. It was hard, rocky country, that valley of Edenites. Hester liked it. She could hear the grass singing and smell the earth, and it reminded her of Oak Island. She took Tom's hand, and they walked together through the gloomy light, looking over their shoulders from time to time at the burning brazier that had been the Jenny Hanover. The ground rose in a steep grassy slope to a docking pan behind a windbreak of pines. The trees made a steady sighing sound as their needles combed the wind. The same wind boomed against the taut silicon-silk envelope of an air yacht. It was locked and abandoned-looking, but knowing it was there made them feel more hopeful. They moved on, dropping down toward the lake again, toward the causeway. Hester took the lightning gun from Tom. He was breathing hard, sounding winded. Stay here with the airship, she said. Let me go. He shook his head. She touched his face with the tips of her fingers, his mouth warm in the cold. They started together across the causeway. Tom was slow, but she was glad of that, because it meant that she could draw ahead of him, ready to deal with whatever was waiting for them in that house. There was a creaking noise, but when she swung toward the sound, it was only plates of ice grinding and grating together at the edge of the lake. Farther out, clear water shone grey and still. She looked ahead again, toward the house. There was someone standing on the causeway. Tom! she yelled, raising the lightning gun. But she didn't pull the trigger. It was not a stalker that stood there watching her. Just a child. A pinched white face and shabby clothes and a lot of filthy hair. She took another few steps and recognized him. How had he come here? But it didn't matter. She lowered the gun completely and turned to Tom. It's fish cake! Running feet behind her. She heard the boy grunt and turning, saw the knife flash as he slashed it at her throat. She dropped the lightning gun and grabbed his thin wrist, bending the knife away, twisting his arm until he cried out and let it go. She caught it as it fell and stuffed it through her belt, like a stern teacher confiscating a slingshot. She pushed Fishcake away, and he fell down and started to cry. Tom, said a whispering voice from above them. Hester! How nice of you 
to drop in. The stalker. She had been standing in the shadows at the causeway's end, where ten worn stone steps led up to a gate. She came carefully down the steps, limping, the grey light shining faintly on her bronze face. She's my stalker, shouted Fishcake. I found her after you left me behind. She's been good to me. She's going to help me kill you. Hester looked for the lightning gun, but it had fallen down among the rocks at the waterside. She started to scramble down to fetch it, but steel hands caught her, lifting her, dragging her, gripping her face. A metal arm went across her chest, pulling her back hard against an armoured breastplate. No! shouted Tom, running for the fallen gun. Please don't be disagreeable, Tom, whispered the stalker, or I shall break her neck. I could do it very easily. You wouldn't want that, would you? Tom stopped running. He could not speak. He felt as if someone had jammed a rusty skewer through his left armpit, deep into his chest. Pain ran down his arm, too, and up his neck, along his jaw. He fell to his knees, gasping. Poor Tom, the stalker said. Your heart, poor thing. Crouched by her feet, Fishcake watched hungrily. Kill them, he shouted in his thin, angry voice. Her first, then him. They were Anna's friends, Fishcake, said the stalker. But they left me behind, sobbed Fishcake. She murdered Mora and Gargle. I swore I'd kill her. They will both die soon enough. But I swore it. No, whispered the stalker. Fishcake shouted something and groped for the knife in Hester's belt, but the stalker swiped him aside, so hard that he was thrown right off the causeway down onto the ice, which starred and moaned beneath him but did not give way. Howling with pain and betrayal, Fishcake crept back to the causeway, sobbing, slithering over the wet stones. He ran away from the house. The stalker fang let Hester go and stooped over Tom. Her steel hand rested on his chest, and her eyes flared as she sensed the erratic, stumbling beats of his heart. Poor Tom, she whispered. Not long now. What's wrong with him? asked Hester. He's going to die, said the stalker. He can't. Oh, he can't. Please. It doesn't matter, whispered the stalker. Soon everyone is going to die. She lifted Tom in her arms, and Hester followed her as she carried him up the steps and through her frozen garden into her tomb of a house. Chapter 49 Newborn Pell-mell along Stack Seven Sluice, the thick air full of the snattering of dynamos and clang of running repairs down in the district. Up rusty rungs that rose forever, trembling with vibrations as the engines came online. Wren, exhausted, scared, hurting, each lungful of air a stabbing ache in the strained muscles of her chest and back. And the only thing that drove her on, the fact that Theo was with her now. He reached out sometimes to touch her, encouraging her. But they could not speak, for it was too loud in these dank ladderways, these iron throats that filled with hot breath and angry bellowings as the wounded suburb struggled back to life. They were soon lost. They wanted to go forward and down, 
but the tubular streets twisted around on themselves and looped blindly about, leading them up and aft instead. At last they emerged onto a catwalk high above some open square at the heart of the engine district, looking down past lighted windows and giant ducts into a space where a hundred fat brass pistons were pumping up and down in sprays of steam, their speed increasing as Theo and Wren leaned over the handrail to watch. The handrail trembling, the whole suburb lurching forward. It's moving, shouted Wren, but Theo couldn't hear her, and there was no need to repeat it, for it was quite obvious by then that Harrow Barrow was underway again. No time to repeat it anyway, for just then an engine worker in greasy overalls popped up through a hatchway in the catwalk and stared at them, mouth opening wide as he shouted down to his mates below. Theo and Wren fled and found a spindly ladder leading up through the sousaphone maze of ducts and tubes that coiled above their heads. Condensation fell on them like warm rain as they dragged themselves up under the curve of the suburb's armour. At the top of the ladder was a hatch. It took both of them to twist their heavy handles and heave it open. Daylight came pouring in and fresh, cold wind. Wren looked down the ladder and saw torches moving on the catwalk below, men gathering to stare at her and point. Then Theo, who was already through the hatch, reached back to pull her up into the open air. At least I'll die in daylight, she thought, lying panting on the filthy armoured back of Harrow Barrow. A narrow walkway ran along the suburb's spine, without handrails. On either side of it, a few hundred feet of battered armour sloped down to the suburb's edges, where the tracks ground by, clogged with earth and hunks of rust. Beyond them, the spires and spikes of ruined London sped past, Theo slammed the hatch shut behind them and started to drag Wren away from it, shouting something about Cobalt's men following them up. But before they had gone very far, the metal around them suddenly erupted in sparks and little spurts of smoke and dust, and she realised they were being machine-gunned. Not very accurately, thank Quirk. Theo flung himself down half on top of her as a plump white shape soared above the wreckage to larboard. Through the spray of rust and soil flung up by Harrowbarrow's tracks, Wren saw that it was a rather elderly-looking airship with the markings of the green storm, gun turrets swivelling to squirt fire at the racing suburb. "'The storm are here!' she shouted. "'We're friends!' Theo yelled. Wren held on to him to save him from being thrown off Harrowbarrow's back as he waved his arms and shouted, "'Help! Help!' But to the aviators in that ship, he was just another flea-sized shape creeping about on the suburb they'd been ordered to destroy. They swung their guns toward him again, and Wren heard the bullets swishing overhead as she pulled him down beside her. A few yards from where they lay, a circular hatch cover slid open in the suburb's armour, and a revolving gun emplacement popped up like a jack-in-the-box. It had been built on the turntable of an old fairground carousel from a coastal pleasure town that Harrowbarrow had eaten long ago, and as it spun around and around, cheerful calliope music came from it, along with puffs of gun smoke and streamers of white steam. The barrels of its four long guns recoiled rhythmically into their armoured housing as they fired, lacing the sky above the suburb with cannon shells. 
the airship that had shot at Wren and Theo burst into flames and was left quickly behind as the suburb went thundering on. Overhead, two other ships veered away, envelopes and tail fins filling with ragged holes. The coming of Harrow Barrow could be heard in the womb by that time. As the Londoners struggled aboard their new city with whatever possessions they had managed to save, the scrap metal clangor of the approaching suburb filled the sky outside and echoed around the central hangar. A green storm runner came to find Naga, who was waiting on the open stretch of deck plate at New London's stern. Our airships can't hold her, sir. The belligerent peony has just been downed. Only the fury and the protecting veil are left. Pull them clear, ordered Naga. Tell the ground troops to get aboard this machine. He turned as Lavinia Childermas came running out of the stairwell that led down to her engine districts. Well, Londoner? We are ready, I think, the old engineer said. Good. The harvester suburb is nearly upon us. I am going aboard my airship. I shall try to hold it off as long as I can. But it is strong. Best pray that your new London is fast. It is fast, promised Dr. Childermas, as Naga turned away, his stomping armour carrying him toward the boarding ladders, up which squads of green storm troopers were hurrying. She ran after him, jostled by passing soldiers. You should stay, General. The birth of a town is a great event. Naga turned and bowed and hurried on. Good luck, engineer, she heard him shout. She watched him go thinking how strange it was that he should turn out to be New London's midwife. Then, remembering her position, she went herring back to her own post. The deck plates were trembling as, one by one, her assistants threw the starting levers of the Childermas engines. By the time she reached her command room in the heart of the underdeck, the faint whine of the repellers had risen to a pitch beyond her hearing and there was an odd bobbing movement in the floor. New London was airborne. She reached for the speaking tube that linked her to the Lord Mayor's navigation room, high in the new town hall. Hello? Ready? Ready, came Garriman's voice, muffled and peevish. Lavinia Childermas hung the tube in its cradle and looked at the scared, expectant, grimy faces of her crew. Even down here she could hear the crash and rattle as Harrowbarrow shouldered its way toward her through the debris fields. She nodded, and her people sprang to their controls. Outside the womb, Naga watched Harrowbarrow's scouts scurry aside as the noise of their suburb's approach grew louder. He fired his pistol at a couple of them to speed them on their way. The sky above those rust hills west of Crouch End was filling with dust and debris, as if a scrap metal geezer had erupted there. And suddenly the hills themselves shifted, slithered, bulged, and burst apart, and tearing through them came Harrowbarrow's brutal snout. The womb lurched and seemed to settle. At its northern end Peabody's men had set off their explosive charges, and with a dreamy slowness the tall, corroded doors at the hangar-mouth fell forward, crashing down into the rust and rubble outside. Harrowbarrow ground its way over the ruins of Crouch End, bright rags of curtains and carpet snagging on its clawed tracks. 
The cruiser protecting Vale fired a flight of rockets at it and rose out of range before the one remaining swivel gun on Harrow Barrow's back could swing around to target her. The fury swooped toward the womb, and Naga ran forward and leaped aboard as she hovered for a moment just above the ground. By the time his armor had hauled him through the hatch and onto the flight deck, the ship was high again. An aviatrix came running to him with reports, but Naga waved her away, tense as an expectant father. He went to a gunslit and peered down at the mouth of the womb. Come on, he muttered. Come on. Crouching on Harrow Barrow's spine, Wren and Theo tried to shield each other as the rust hills broke over the suburb like a wave. Giant fists and fangs of metal came clattering and scraping over the armor some tumbling high into the air, some caroming over the hull so close that Wren felt the wind of them as they whisked past her. Then they were gone. Crouch End was being crushed beneath the tracks, and ahead, on the crest of the next ridge, the womb lay waiting. Look, she shouted. Theo, look! From the open doorway of the old hangar, New London was emerging the magnetic mirrors on its flanks shining like sovereigns. It hovered outside the womb for a moment, dipping a little, uncertain of itself. A newborn city, thought Wren, like something from the olden days. And she wished and wished that her father could be here with her to see it. Writing itself, New London started to move, the heat haze shimmer beneath its hull increasing as it put on speed hovering away northward across the debris field. And Harrow Barrow swung northward too, the jolt of its snarling engines throwing Wren off her balance as it began powering in pursuit of the new city. She sprawled awkwardly backward, afraid for a moment that she would roll down the slope into the endlessly grinding teeth of the suburb's tracks, but she managed to find a handhold. As she clawed her way back to Theo, she saw the hatch they had come through heave open again, and Wolf Cobalt climb out. He looked pleased to see them, but not in a good way. Chapter 50 The Stalker's House There were some blue squares, dusty blue, against a background of black. Tom, who had not expected to wake at all, woke slowly from half-remembered dreams, the squares were sky, showing through holes in a crumbling roof. The clouds had cleared. There was a patch of evening sunlight coming and going on the mildewed wall. He lay on something soft, and there were smells of must and damp around him. His hands and feet felt miles away. His head was too heavy to lift. Someone had crammed a big square slab of stone inside his chest. Faint jabs of pins and needles in his limbs let him know that he was still alive. Tom? A whisper. He moved his head. Hester bent over him. Tom, my dearest, you blacked out. The stalker said it was your heart. She said you were dying, but I knew you wouldn't. The stalker. Tom began to understand where he was. The stalker Fang had scooped him up and taken him inside with her. She had laid him on a bed an old, worm-eaten, weed-grown bed, whose draperies had been nibbled thin by moths, but still a bed. The place you put someone you meant to take care of. She let us live, he said. 
Hester nodded. She's tied my hands and feet, but not yours. She didn't bother with yours. If you can reach the knife in my belt... She fell silent as the stalker Fang limped into the room and sat down on the end of the bed, watching Tom with her cold green eyes. Anna? he asked weakly. I am not Anna, whispered the stalker. Just a bundle of Anna's memories. But I'm pleased you're here, Tom. Anna was very fond of you. You were her very last memory, lying in the snow and you looking down and calling her name. I remember, said Tom faintly. I thought she was already dead. Nearly, whispered the stalker. Not quite. You'll understand. Soon you'll make the same journey. But I'm not ready. Nor was Anna. Perhaps no one ever is. Behind her, through the open doorway, Tom could see a room stuffed with machines, lights and screens and bits of equipment too complicated for his tired, shocked brain to fathom. He said, Odin, I talk to it from here. Why did you turn it on your own people? The stalker watched him with her head tipped a little to one side. An overture before the symphony begins, she whispered. By attacking both sides, I made each think the other was to blame. They will be too busy with each other to come looking for me, and that will give me the time I need. To do what? I have been preparing a sequence of commands, a long and complicated sequence. I shall begin transmitting them soon when Odin comes clear of the mountains again. They will divert it onto new orbits, give it new targets to strike at. What targets? Volcanoes, said the stalker. She reached out gently and stroked Tom's hair. Tonight Odin will strike at forty points along the Tannhäuser chain, then on across the world, the Deccan volcano maze, the Hundred Islands. But why? asked Hester. Why volcanoes? I am making the world green again. What? cried Tom. By smothering it in smoke and ash and killing thousands of people? Millions of people. Don't get excited, Tom. Your poor heart might not take it. And I am so looking forward to having someone sensible to talk to. And what about me? asked Hester, as if she was afraid the stalker were trying to steal Tom away from her. As long as you don't try to be foolish or destructive, you are safe. I suppose you will starve in a week or so. There is no food left here. But until then I shall enjoy your company. Anna always felt our destinies were linked from that first night aboard Staines. The stalker stopped talking and looked behind her, where a light had begun to flash among the thickets of cabling in the next room. Red. 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 No rest for the wicked, she whispered. Outside, Fishcake blundered, sobbing along the lakeshore. His stalker had hit him. She could have killed him. She had cast him out. She didn't care about little Fishcake anymore. She had never cared. Not really. 
He sniveled and whimpered, stumbling over rocks and shingle until he missed his footing and splashed into the shallows. The cold water startled him into silence. Away across the water, the furnace that had been the Jenny Hanover was dying down into a comforting red bonfire. Fishcake tramped along the curve of the shoreline to the wreck site. There was nothing left of the airship now but struts and ribs and one buckled glowing engine pod, but the explosion had showered the contents of her holds across the reed beds, and among the debris Fishcake found a few food cans. Their labels were burnt off, of course, but they made encouraging sloshing noises when he shook them, and one of them, Tricky Dicky be praised, was a square tin of fish, sardines or pilchards, with a key fixed to the lid. Fishcake twisted it open and ate greedily, scooping the fish and the delicious salty juice into his mouth. He felt better with some food inside him, and started to nose around among the reeds for other scraps. It wasn't long before he heard the plaintive noises coming from among the rocks uphill. Fishcake crept closer, thinking that Tom and Hester must have had a companion aboard their ship who'd been wounded in the crash and whom they'd abandoned how like them. But when he reached the place, he found it was a poor old man, trussed up and gagged, another of Tom and Hester's victims. Great posket! the man gasped when Fishcake pulled the gag off, and brave boy, thank you, as Fishcake used the sharp edge of the sardine tin to saw through his ropes. They're inside, said Fishcake. Who? Hester and her man. The stalker took them inside. Says they're her friends. How could anybody think Hester was her friend? That face, enough to put you off your breakfast, if you'd had any breakfast. I haven't had none for weeks. Help me open this tin, mister. He was asking the right man, said Penny Royal, and as soon as the ropes parted, he reached inside his coat and fetched out an explorer's pocket knife, a miraculous object that unfolded to reveal a can opener, a corkscrew, a small pair of scissors, and a device for getting stones out of airship docking clamps, as well as an array of blades that made brisk work of the ropes on his feet. It occurred to Fishcake to wonder why he had not mentioned the existence of the knife before Fishcake went to the trouble of cutting his hands free with a sardine tin, but he wanted to like his new friend, so he decided he was probably concussed. There were some gashes on his head, and blood had run down his face like jam down a steamed pudding. Fishcake was still much preoccupied with thoughts of food. They opened three tins. There was algae stew in one, rice pudding in another, and condensed milk in the third. It was the best meal that Fishcake ever tasted. I say, ventured Penny Royal, watching him eat, you seem a bright lad. Would you know a way out of here at all? Popjoy's sky yacht, muttered Fishcake, wiping milk from his chin. Over there, near the house. I don't know how to fly it. I do. Could we snaffle it, do you think? Fishcake licked the lid of the rice pudding tin and shook his head. Need keys. Can't start the engines without keys. And you'd need engines among all these mountains, wouldn't you? Penny Royal nodded. Where are the keys? Just out of interest. She's got them. Round her neck. On a string. But I'm not going up there again. Not after what she did. 
after all I went through for her? The boy started to cry. Penny Royal was unused to children. He patted his shoulder and said, There, there, and that's women for you. He thought about keys and air yachts and glanced nervously at the house on the crag. Some sort of antenna thing on the roof was turning, glinting blood-red in the rays of the sinking sun. Ten miles away, in frozen silt on the bed of a mountain lake, Shrike stirred. His eyes switched on, lighting up constellations of drifting matter. He remembered falling. He had fallen past crags and cliffs and punched through the crust of ice on this lake, leaving an amusing hole the shape of a spread-eagled man. He could not see the hole above him, so he guessed the lake was deep and that night was falling in the world above. He prized himself out of the silt and started walking. The water grew shallower as he neared the shore. Thick ice formed a rippled ceiling twenty feet overhead, then ten. Soon he was able to reach up with his fists and punch his way through it. He dragged himself free, an ugly hatchling breaking out of a cold egg. The moon was rising. Shards of the Jenny Hanover's fallen engine pod shone on the screes high above him. He climbed toward them, sniffing for Hester's scent. Chapter 51 The Chase The Londoners had always imagined themselves leaving the debris fields in a leisurely way, perhaps moving at no more than walking speed until they grew used to new London's controls. Instead, here they were, barreling north through the wreck of old London as fast as the new city could go, slaloming around tumbles of old tier supports and giant corroded heaps of tracks and wheels. Down in the engine rooms, the engineers heaved desperately on the levers that angled the magnetic repellers, while up in the steering chamber at the top of the town hall, Mr. Garamond and his navigators peered out through unglazed, unfinished viewing windows and shouted to the helmsman, Lift a bit, right a bit, right a bit, oh, I mean, lift, lift, lift! Harrowbarrow raced after them, only half a mile behind, steam fuming from its blunt snout as it readied its mouthparts for the kill. It did not have to swerve and wriggle as New London did. Tall heaps of wreckage that the new city had to avoid, Harrowbarrow simply butted its way through. The constant crunch and shudder of these collisions kept threatening to jolt Wren and Theo off the precarious handholds they were clinging to, high on the harvester's spine. But Wolf Cobalt, who was well used to his suburb's movements, never lost his footing and barely paused as he came toward them, except to glance sometimes at the view ahead and grin when he saw the gap narrowing between Harrowbarrow and its prey. You see? he shouted. It was all for nothing, Wren. Another ten minutes and that precious place of yours will be in the barrow's gut. And you, you and your black boyfriend, I'm going to string your bowels off the yard roof like paper chains and nail up your carcasses in the slavehold so your London friends can see what comes to those who try to make a fool of me. He was close enough by then to swipe at them with his sword. They scrambled backward, away from him. 
the swiveling gun emplacement behind them let out another stuttering roar as a white airship soared past astern. But Cobalt only laughed. Don't think the mosses can save you. They won't dare come in range of that gun. He lunged forward, and the point of his sword struck sparks from the suburb's armor inches from Theo's foot. Theo looked at Wren. Near her, where one of the chunky rivets that held Harrowbarrow's armor in place stood slightly proud of the plating, a shard of wreckage had snagged. Theo threw himself down and pulled it free. It was an old length of half-inch pipe, rusty and sharp at the ends. It was too long and heavy to use for a sword, but Theo had nothing better, so he turned with a cry, swinging it at Cobalt. Cobalt jumped back, raising his blade to deflect the blow. He looked surprised, even pleased. That's the spirit, he shouted. Aboard the Fury, Naga said, We have to silence that swivel gun. There is no other way we can get within range. Sir, one of his aviators interrupted, On the suburb's back. Naga swung his telescope along the woodlouse curve of Harrowbarrow's spine. Twenty yards behind the gun emplacement, two figures seemed to be dancing. No, fighting. He saw the flash of sparks as their swords met. One of our men? Can't tell, sir, but if we fire on the gun, we may kill whoever it is. That can't be helped, Commander. Let their gods look after them. We have work to do. A flight of rockets sprang from the airship, and Wren ducked as one sizzled past her, close enough for her to glimpse the snarling dragon face painted on its nose cone and the Chinese characters chalked along its flank. It burst on the armor close to the gun turret, but not close enough to do more than rattle shrapnel against it. The other rockets went wide, exploding harmlessly on spikes of wreckage, Harrow Barrow was speeding through a region where long, jagged shards from London's upper tiers lay heaped on top of each other, forming a lattice through which the westering sun poked its unhealthy crimson beams. Clinging to the armor with both hands, Wren looked up at the sharp spines flicking past. It was like rushing through an enormous untidy cutlery drawer. If we run ourselves upon one of those, she thought, it will put an end to all our problems. The blades did not seem to trouble Wolf Kobold. He waved his sword, shouting something to the gun crew, and the gun turned with a swirl of fairground music and filled the air astern with black puffballs, so that the airship yawed hastily and vanished for a while behind the wreckage. Then he renewed his attack on Theo, more earnest and less playful now, as if Wren and her boyfriend were a distraction he wanted to be rid of before the serious business began. Theo did his best, grunting and shouting out with effort as he swung the rusty pipe to and fro, trying to parry Wolf's blows, but he was no swordsman, and he found it harder than Wolf to keep his footing on the lurching, lumbering armour. After little more than a minute, during which Theo was driven steadily back toward the housing of the swivel gun, Wolf made a sudden feint, and Theo, lurching sideways to avoid his blade, lost his footing. He fell awkwardly, his head cracking against the armor underfoot. The pipe flew out of his sweaty hands. Wren caught it as it clattered past her. Wolf was already standing over Theo, sword raised to finish him. She threw herself forward, not knowing what she meant to do, just determined that Wolf should not have it all his own way. She heard somebody scream, and it was her, 
a hard, ragged scream of terror and rage and panic that seemed to give her the strength she needed as she swung the pipe to fend off Wolf's descending sword. More sparks, a shock that jarred her arms in their sockets. For a comical moment, Wolf stood amazed, staring at the sword hilt in his hand, the blade broken off halfway along its length. He looked at Wren. He shrugged and threw the broken sword away. He flipped his coat open and pulled a shiny new revolver from its holster. Despite all the noise, the relentless speed, it seemed to grow very quiet and still on the back of Harrowbarrow in those last moments. Even the swivel gun had stopped firing. When Wren glanced around in the hope of spotting some miraculous escape, she saw the gunners gawping at her out of their little window. Goodbye, Wren, said Wolf. He hadn't noticed that white, persistent airship swinging into range again above his suburb's stern. The rockets tore past him as he pulled the trigger, and the shot he fired went wide, flicking through Wren's hair without touching her. The shockwave from the exploding swivel gun kicked him backward. He struggled to save himself, slipped, fell forward, and the sharp end of the pipe that Wren was still clutching went through him just beneath his breastbone. The impact knocked her down, and the other end of the pipe wedged against a seam in the armour, driving it clean through Wolf's body. Ah! Oh! he shouted, looking down at it. I'm sorry, said Wren. Wolf raised his head and stared at her. His eyes were very blue and wide and oddly innocent. He looked as if he were about to cry. When Wren pulled at the pipe with some idea of tugging it out of him, he lurched sideways, pipe and all, and went tumbling away from her like a broken doll down the long slope of the suburb's flank until he hit the tracks. Later, she would pray that he had been dead by the time those sliding slabs of machinery caught him. She would tell herself that it had not been his screams she heard, as he was snatched and mangled and ploughed down into the earth, only the shrieking of stressed metal somewhere, some shard of long-dead London crying out as Harrowbarrow ground over it. But by then they were on the outer edge of the debris field. A wide plain stretched ahead of them, empty as an ocean, except for the lights of New London, which was a quarter mile ahead and racing northward, crossing open country now, the wreck of its mother city left behind it like a sloughed-off skin. Girl! someone was shouting and in her shocked state Wren could not work out who it was. Not Wolf, for sure. Not his gunners, who had vanished with their swivelling turret. Not Theo, who was struggling to his feet, his face streaked with blood from where he'd struck his head. She looked up. The storm's white ship hung low above her, keeping pace with her, by some miracle of stunt flying that only an aviator could properly appreciate. Reaching down to her from a hatch in the gondola, was something that she took at first to be a stalker, until he shouted again, Girl! and beckoned irritably for her to take his hand, and she recognized General Naga. The Fury's gondola smelled of gun smoke and air fuel. Naga strode around issuing orders to his aviators, glancing at Wren just long enough to say, You are Londoners, captured by the harvester? Wren just nodded, clinging tight to Theo, and finding it hard to believe that they were both still alive. 
it did not seem like the moment to try and explain that she and General Naga had met before. She could not stop shaking or thinking about Wolf Cobalt. As the Fury veered away from Harrowbarrow and flew toward New London, she let Theo go and went to crouch in a corner, where she was sick till her stomach was empty. They touched down on New London Stern, where a crowd of Londoners and Greenstorm soldiers were waiting. Wren! cried Angie, happily, waving, forgetting that Wren had ever been a suspected spy. Miss Natsworthy, Mr. Ngoni, thank Quirk you're safe, shouted Mr. Garamond, helping them from the gondola. No thanks to you, Wren felt like saying. But then she realized that he already knew that, and that his clumsy hug was his way of saying sorry, and she hugged him back. The new city had a curious feel. There were none of the tremors and half-muffled shocks and lurches that you felt aboard a traction city, just a sense of dreamlike movement and of speed. But perhaps not quite enough speed, for Harrow Barrow filled the view astern, its mouthparts opening to reveal a hot gleam of furnaces and factories inside. You'd have thought they'd stop when Cobalt died, said Theo. They don't know, Wren replied. Or maybe they do, and they don't care. Mr. Hausdorfer and the others can handle a simple chase without their master. Harrowbarrow never cared about Wolf the way Wolf cared about Harrowbarrow. She didn't want to talk about Wolf. The way he had looked at her when he realized she'd killed him would stay with her always. She tried to tell herself that it was good she felt so guilty and so soiled by what she'd done. Better that than to be like her mother and not care. But it did not feel good. She took Theo's hand, and together they went to stand among the other Londoners at the stern rail. Behind them, Naga was giving orders to his surviving officers, telling Sub-General Tien, You will return to Badmongompa with the protecting veil. My wife believes that the stalker Fang controls the new terror weapon. Help her find it and destroy it. Yes, Excellency. And New London is to be granted safe passage through our territories. Yes, Excellency. Now, I want everybody off the Fury before I take her up. But, Excellency, you cannot fly alone. Why not? I flew alone at Ksana Sandansky and Kamchatka. I flew alone against Panzerstadt Breslau. I should be able to handle a filthy little barbarian harvester like this. Tien understood. He bowed and saluted and started shouting orders. Wren, looking around to see what all the excitement was about, saw the Fury's crew jumping down onto the deck plates, saw Naga heaving himself aboard. She looked away. What was happening astern was far more interesting than anything the storm could do. She barely noticed when the Fury took off again. Harrow Barrow was driving toward them through sprays of wet earth. Its armor was holed, there were fires on its upper decks, and one of its tracks was grinding, but Hausdorfer didn't care. He'd been skeptical about this place his master had brought them so far to eat, but now that he'd seen it move, seen it fly, he understood what young Cobalt had been on about. More power, he screamed into his speaking tubes. Open the jaws! They are defenseless! They are ours! Naga turned the fury toward the oncoming suburb and took her down almost to ground level. She was a good ship. 
he enjoyed the way she answered to his touch on the wheels and levers, and the purr of her powerful engines when he switched them to ramming speed. As Harrow Barrow's jaws opened, he aimed straight at the red glow of the furnaces in her dismantling yards. When the Harrow Barrovians started to understand what he was planning, guns began firing from inside the jaws, shattering glass in the gondola windows, starting fires. A shell from a hand cannon punched through Naga's breastplate, but his armor kept him upright, and his mechanized gauntlets gripped the helm, keeping the blazing ship on course. The suburb was closing its jaws, but not quickly enough. Naga fired all the Fury's remaining rockets and watched them streak ahead of him into its maw. Inoni, he said, and her name and the thought of her went with him into the light. The blast was brief, a sunflower blossoming in the dusk, stuffed with shrapnel seeds. There was a blunt, muffled boom and then other sounds, thuds and squelches as large fragments of wreckage rained down into the outcountry. Aboard New London, no one cheered. Even the soldiers of the storm who had grown up singing jolly songs about the destruction of whole cities looked appalled. One or two small pieces of debris landed on the deck, blinking like dropped coins. Wren stooped to pick up one that fell near her, it was a rivet head from Harrow Barrow's hull, still warm with the heat of the explosion. She put it in her pocket, thinking that it would make a good exhibit for the new London Museum. What was left of Harrow Barrow, the broken stern section half filled with fires, settled into the outcountry mud. It would be part of the landscape soon, like old London. The survivors, stumbling clear, stared about in bewilderment. Some looked toward the debris fields that filled the southern horizon, wondering what sort of life they would be able to make there. Others ran after New London, shouting out for help, begging their fellow tractionists not to leave them here, defenceless, in the lands of the storm. But New London was beyond earshot, pulling away from them quickly across the vast, dark plain, smaller and smaller, until it was only a fleck, a gleam of amber windows dwindling in that enormous twilight. Chapter 52 Last Words The stalker Fang limped around her chamber. Her bronze face was lit by the winking lights on the heap of machinery, by the green numbers that flicked and squiggled on her goggle screens. Through the open doorway, Tom and Hester watched, and each time her eyes were turned away from him, Tom made another little movement, easing himself closer to Hester, until he was able to reach out and touch the knife in her belt. Not long now, the stalker whispered, glad of this audience to whom she could explain her work. Tom was thinking of Wren, hoping that New London would go nowhere near the Tannhäusers or any of the other mountains Odin was to target. Why volcanoes? he asked. I still don't see how that can make the world green. The stalker's fingers spidered over ivory keyboards. You have to take the long view, Tom. It isn't only traction cities that poison the air and tear up the earth. All cities do that, static or mobile. It's human beings that are the problem. 
Everything that they do pollutes and destroys. The green storm would never have understood that, which is why I didn't tell them about my plans for Odin. If we are really to protect the good earth, we must first cleanse it of human beings. That's insane, cried Tom. Inhuman, perhaps, the stalker admitted. The ash of volcanoes will choke the sky and shroud earth in darkness. Winter will reign for hundreds of years. Mankind will perish. But life will survive. Life always does. When the skies clear at last, the world will grow green again. Lichens, ferns, grasses, forests, insects, higher animals eventually. But no more people. They only spoil things. Anna would not want that, said Tom. I am not Anna. I just use her memories to understand the world. And I understand that humanity is a plague, a swarm of clever monkeys that the good earth cannot support. All human civilizations fall, Tom, and all for the same reason. Humans are too greedy. It is time to put an end to them forever. Tom struggled to rise, wondering if he could reach the machine, smash it, and pull out all those complicated wires and ducts. The stalker Fang seemed to read his thoughts. The long blades slid out of her fingertips. Do be sensible, Tom, she whispered. You're very ill, and I'm a stalker. You'd never make it, and Hester wants you to stay alive for as long as you can. She loves you very much, you know. She moved behind her pile of machinery, making some adjustment to the cables that trailed up through the ceiling to the aerial on the roof. Tom tugged the knife out of Hester's belt, and she fumbled it from him and clasped it between her hands, sawing awkwardly at the old ropes the stalker had used to tie her wrists. As he crept across the causeway, Penny Royal tried to keep calm by imagining how he would describe all these adventures to his enthralled readership. Caution urged that I should stay away from that dreadful house, but the fate of whole cities hung in the balance, and my poor companions were prisoners within. I knew that to run would leave an irredeemable blot on the honor of the Penny Royals, and I do need that key, Poskit, damn it. Uh, my faithful native companion, Fishcake. Can that be his real name? Led me to the end of the fatal causeway, and would go no farther. I would not have allowed it anyway, for I could never let one so young risk his life in mortal combat with the Stalker. Stalker S? Stalkerine? Gods, I hope it doesn't come to actual combat. I wish that lad had had the nerve to come instead of me, the beastly little coward. It was a little unsettling, I confess, but as I went on alone through the gathering darkness, I began to feel curiously nerveless. I have found myself in a lot of dicey situations over the years, and what I've learned is that it's always best to remain cool, collected, and great poskets, hairy ass. what's that? Ah, 
only an owl. <laughs> only an owl. Shuddering, Pennyroyal took a nip of brandy from his secret hip flask and started hunting along the water's edge for Tom's anti-stalker gun. The boy had said that Hester dropped it here somewhere. Pennyroyal didn't mean to go any closer to that damned house without it. Ah, there it was, still humming, looked undamaged. A dashed, odd-looking weapon, but they don't call me Dead-Eye Pennyroyal for nothing. Setting the stock of the strange gun firmly against my shoulder. Is that where it's supposed to go? I resumed my cat-like progress. The stalker Fang was busy with her machinery. From time to time, the words and numbers crawling across the goggle screen were replaced with a furry, greyish picture. Tom realized that he was seeing what no human being had seen for millennia. The world from space, viewed through the eye of Odin. Oddly, it was not very impressive. Could Odin really destroy humanity? Surely it would break, or run out of power, or something in that crazy stack of old machinery that the stalker was using to talk to it would go wrong, and that would be the end of her plans. It made him angry that he and Hester had come so far and sacrificed so much to avert such a tatty effort. At least Medusa had looked worth dying for. Its entrails had filled a cathedral, and its cobra hood had towered over London. This new weapon was just space junk, controlled by a mad old stalker from a place that looked and smelled like a teenager's bedroom. Beside him, Hester gave a little grunt of triumph as the knife severed the rope on her wrists. She stooped to start work on the one that bound her ankles. The stalker Fang was talking to Odin again, tapping at her ivory keys, whispering the codes to herself as she conducted her bargain basement apocalypse. Sometimes she whispered something to Tom and Hester, too. Just think, my dears, all that pretty lava... Anna Fang had liked having someone to talk to, and the stalker she had become had inherited the taste. When Hester whispered, Now! and Tom rolled off the bed and stood up, she said, Where are you going? Come on! hissed Hester, her arm around him, supporting him, dragging him toward the nearest window. She hadn't Tom's education, and she hadn't really followed the stalker's rambling talk. All she cared about was saving Tom. She refused to believe that there was no hope at all. But Tom knew there was little point in trying to outrun the stalker Fang, who turned and came toward them as they neared the window. He twisted around to face her. Hester was still trying to drag him to the window, but Tom shook free of her. He had come to Shanguo to talk, not to fight. If Naga wouldn't listen to him, perhaps this stalker might. I am not Anna, she had said, just a bundle of Anna's memories. But what was anyone but a bundle of memories? Tom reached out to her. We can't stay, he said. We have a daughter. She'll need us. The stalker's eyes flickered. A daughter? Her name's Wren. A daughter? She clapped her hands together with a clang. Tom, Hester, how wonderful. When I, when Anna, first saw you together, she, I, knew you were meant for each other. 
And now you have a baby girl. She's not a baby girl anymore, said Hester. She's a great big stroppy young woman. We brought her up, said Tom. We kept her safe. We taught her things. She learned to fly the Jenny Hanover. And now you want to kill her along with everybody else. The stalker shrugged. An odd movement for a stalker. It made her armor great. You can't break eggs without making an omelet, Tom. Or is it the other way around? Where is she, this daughter of yours? In London, said Tom. In the wreck of London. The people there are building a new city, a floating city. He wished now that he had paid more attention to Dr. Childermas's technical explanations. It doesn't claw up the ground. It doesn't eat other cities. It doesn't even use up much fuel. Why can't it have a place in your green world? Why can't Wren? The stalker hissed and turned away, going back to her machines. Tom stumbled after her, and Hester, who had resigned herself to listening to the two of them chat, came with him. The stalker's fingers were rattling at her keyboards again. The grey image on the central screen changed from a view of Zan Shan's blazing wound to a more distant panorama of the clouded limb of the earth. Then it began to close in again, the machinery behind the screen wheezing and clicking, the images flicking past like shuffled cards. A charcoal grey patch expanded to become the wreck of London, then filled the screen. Tom recognised Putney Vale, and the womb as Odin's gaze slid eastward, then north. Nothing moving, whispered the stalker. What are those bright patches? asked Tom. Those are burning airships. What? Tom stared as more specks of white fire slid past. Then, just off the northern edge of the wreck, a burning sprawl like a hole torn in the screen. What had happened in the debris fields since he'd been gone? What had happened to Wren? His heart clenched into a fist and began to batter at his ribs. Ah, hissed the stalker, that must be your floating city. She was quicker at reading the grainy pictures than Tom. It took him a moment to understand that he was looking down at New London. It was well outside the debris fields, moving north, and still the machinery whirred and nattered, and the image on the screen kept flicking, changing, pulling closer and closer to the new city, until he could make out people milling about on its stern. Dozens of people lining the handrails, staring back toward the debris fields as New London bore them safe away. And he could make out faces now. The faces of his friends, Clytie and her husband, Mr. Garamond laughing for once, looking happy. And there was Wren, dishevelled, smeared with what looked like soot, but Wren for sure. He cried out as her face slipped across the screen, and the stalker swung Odin's gaze to focus on her, still zooming in and in. It's Wren! She's all right! Tom felt Hester's hands tighten on his arm as she watched their daughter's face swim up toward them out of the grave fuzz of the picture. Wren, she said. Her voice sounded shaky. What's she done to her hair? It's all lopsided. And there, behind her, look, it's Theo. Odin zoomed again, 
and there was nothing on the screen except their daughter's face. Tom went closer, pushing past the stalker fang, reaching out to touch the glass. At such close range the image started to grow vague. Wren's face broke down into lines and specks and flares of light. This smudge of shadow an eye, that white smear her nose. He traced with his hands the curve of her cheek, wishing he could push through the screen somehow and touch her, speak to her. Surely she must be able to feel him watching her. But she only smiled and turned her head to say something to the boy behind her. Tom felt as if he were already a ghost. The stalker hissed like a kettle coming slowly to the boil. Please don't hurt her, said Tom. She will die, the stalker whispered. They will all die, for the good of the earth. Your child will have a few years more, if she is lucky. And what use will a few more years be, if she's starving and scared, watching the sky fill with ash? asked Tom. He took another step toward the stalker, excited by a sense that he was getting through to her, or to some weird mechanized remnant of Anna Fang that nested within her. Wren deserves to live a long time, in peace, and have children of her own and see their children. Sentimentality, the stalker sneered. The life of a single child means nothing compared with the future of all life. But she is the future, Tom cried. Look at her, at her and Theo. It is for the good of the earth, the stalker repeated coldly. They will all die. You don't believe that, Tom insisted. The Anna bit of you doesn't. Anna cared about people. You cared about me and Hester enough to rescue us. Anna, don't use the machine. Switch it off. Break it. Smash Odin. He crumpled at the knees and would have fallen if Hester had not supported him. The stalker was hissing angrily. Hester, thinking that she was about to attack, pulled Tom backward and turned so that her own body was between them. But the creature had swung away flailing with one hand at its own skull. Where is Pop Joy? Dead, said Hester grimly. You killed him. It's the talk of Batman Gomper. Satya, I, the stalker said. They must be exterminated. It is for the good of... Tom? Tom? Hester? That bony sound again. Steel fingers on ivory keys green letters flicking up. What is she doing? asked Hester, afraid that the maddened stalker was telling Odin to drop fire on New London. Tom shook his head, as lost as her. The stalker paused, studied a ribbon of green light that scrolled down another of her screens, typed again, hit a final key, and turned to them. She was trembling, a quick mechanical vibration like an engine pod on full power. Her marsh gas eyes flared and flickered. She reached out to her guests with her long, shining hands. What have you done? asked Tom. I have. She has. We have. From the far side of the room, through another doorway, they heard a crunch and slither of feet on broken tiles. 
the stalker spun to face the noises, her finger glaives sliding out, and Penny Royal shouted out in terror as he stepped into the chamber and her green eyes lit up his face. He was holding the lightning gun in front of him, and as the stalker tensed to spring at him, he squeezed the trigger. A vein of fire opened in the air, juddering between the gun's blunt muzzle and the stalker's chest. The stalker hissed and bared her claws, and Penny Royal backed away from her, wailing, Ah, Poskid, please spare me! Help! Stay away! And never taking his fingers off the triggers. The stalker's robes began to burn. Lightning was crawling across her calm bronze face, St. Elmo's fire pouring from her finger glaives. She fell heavily against the Odin machinery, and the lightning wrapped that, too. Stalker brains and goggle screens exploded. Broken keyboards sent anagrams of ivory keys rattling across the floor like punched-out teeth. Flames ran up the cables and set fire to the ceiling. And still Penny Royal kept firing and shouting and firing until the gun faltered and failed. After a while, when they had started to grow used to the silence, he said, I did it. I killed it. Me! You wouldn't have a camera about you, I suppose? The stalker Fang lay on her pyre of machinery. Tom waved away the smoke and went closer, watching her cautiously. Things were on fire inside her. He could smell the gamey stench and see the firelight flicker beneath her armor. Her bronze mask had come off, bearing the gray face beneath, shriveled and grinning. Tom tried not to feel disgusted as he looked at it. After all, he would soon be taking the same journey himself. The dead mouth moved. Tom, sighed the stalker. Tom. Nothing more. The green glow in those headlamp eyes died to a pinprick and went out. Pennyroyal was staring at the spent gun in his hands, as if wondering how it came to be there. He dropped it and said, There's an air yacht moored down below. The keys are around that thing's neck. It never occurred to Tom to ask him how he knew. He reached out and took the keys. They came away easily, for the cord they were threaded on had almost burned through. She is dead this time, isn't she? asked Penny Royal nervously. Tom nodded. She's been dead a long time. Poor Anna. And then the pain came in his chest again, and he couldn't speak. He doubled over, groaning, while Hester clung to him and tried to soothe him. I say, said Pennyroyal, is he all right? His heart. Hester's voice was tiny, trembly. She'd not felt as helpless or as scared as this since she was a little girl watching her mother die. Don't die, Tom. She groveled on the floor with him holding him as tight as she could. Don't leave me. I don't want to lose you again. She looked up through her tears at Penny Royal. What should we do? Penny Royal looked as scared as her. Then he said, Doctor, we've got to get him to a doctor. No use, said Tom weakly. The worst of the pain had passed, leaving him white and frightened, shining with sweat in the light of the rising flames. He shook his head and said, I saw a doctor in Peripateteopolis, and he said it was hopeless. Oh, oh, wept Hester. Great Poskit, 
cried Penny Royal. If this doctor of yours had been any good, he'd hardly have been working in a little place like Peripatetiapolis, would he? Come on, we'll find you the best medicos money and fame can buy. I'm not having you die on me, Tom. You and Hester are the only witnesses I have to the fact that I've just killed the stalker Fang. Wait until the world hears about this. I'll be back at the top of the bestseller lists in a flash. He held out his hand. Give me the key. He'll never make it across the causeway. I'll bring the sky yacht down in the garden. Hester glowered at him. Well, all right, said Penny Royal. You go and fetch the yacht, and I'll stay here with Tom. Please stay, Het, Tom said weakly. Hester passed the key to Penny Royal, who said, Hold on, Tom, back in a jiffy. You might want to wait outside, he added as he hurried away. This building's on fire. Carefully, Hester began to drag Tom after him, along the villa's mouldering halls and out into the cold of the garden. They heard Penny Royal's footsteps crunching off along the causeway. Then silence, broken only by the rush of the flames inside the house. Firelight lapped across the gardens, gleaming on frosted grass and the ice-hung branches of bare trees. Beside a frozen fountain, Hester laid Tom down pulling off her coat to make a pillow for him. We're going to get you to Batman Gompa, she promised. Inoni will sort you out. She's a brilliant surgeon, saved Theo's life. Mine too, probably. She'll make you well again. She held his face between her hands. You're not to die, she said. I don't ever want to be parted from you again. I couldn't bear it. You're going to be well. We'll take the bird roads again. Look, said Tom. Above the mountains, a new star had appeared. It was very bright, and it seemed to be growing larger. Tom managed to stand, walking a few paces away from the fountain for a better view. Tom, be careful. What is it? He looked back at her, his eyes shining. It's Odin. It must have blown up. That's what she was doing before Pennyroll appeared. She ordered it to destroy itself. The new star twinkled like a quirkmas decoration, and then began to fade. At the same instant the roof of the house collapsed with a roar and a rush of sparks, and a spear of pain went through Tom's side, so much worse than before, that even as he fell, he knew this was the end of him. Hester ran to him, her arms around him. He heard her screaming at the top of her lungs, Penny Royal! Penny Royal! Penny Royal reached the docking pan and saw the boy creep out of the pines to meet him. Even here the ground was lit by the glow of the fire on the island. The sky yacht's silvery envelope shone cheerfully with orange reflections. Penny Royal waved the key as he hurried toward it. Nothing to fear now, young fish paste. I sorted your stalker out. All it took was a bit of good old-fashioned pluck. He unlocked the gondola and climbed inside, the boy following. The yacht was a Serapis sunbeam, rather like the one Penny Royal had owned in Brighton. He squeezed into the pilot's seat and quickly found the key slot under the main control wheel. Lights began coming on. The fuel and gas gauges all showed half full, and the engines worked after a couple of attempts. First, I must collect my young friends, Penny Royal said. After what they had just endured together, he felt Tom and Hester really were his friends. 
his comrades. He was determined that he would save young Tom. No, said Fishcake coldly from just behind him. Eh? But it's all right, child. There's no danger now. Go now, said Fishcake. And he reached around from behind the pilot's seat and pressed one of the blades of Pennyroyal's own pocket knife against his throat. They left me behind, he said. In the garden, Hester heard the engines rumble and rise and said, He's coming, Tom. The airship's coming. Tom wasn't listening. All he heard was the word airship, and as all pain and feeling began to leave him, he saw again the bright ships lifting from Salthook on the afternoon that London ate it, long ago. The sky yacht rose and hung above the garden. The downdraft from its engine pods whipped Hester's hair about and made the burning house behind her roar like a furnace. She looked up. Fishcake was staring down at her through one of the gondola windows. She recognized the look on his face, solemn and triumphant all at once. And she felt sorry for him, for all the things he must have seen and been through, and all the long miles he'd had to come for his revenge. Then he turned from the window and shouted something at Pennyroyal, and the yacht rose, curving away toward the mountains, the drone of its engines whispering into silence. There's no way out this time, Hester thought. And then she thought, there is always a way out. She pulled Fishcake's long, thin-bladed knife out of her belt again and laid it down in the shadows beside her, where it gleamed with reflections from the fire, a narrow doorway leading out of the world. She kissed Tom's face and for a moment he half woke, although he still didn't quite know where he was. Memories and real life were all tangled up inside his mind, and he thought that he was lying on the bare earth on that first day, fresh fallen out of London. But he didn't care, because Hester was with him, holding him tight, watching him, and he thought how lucky he was to be loved by someone so strong and brave and beautiful. And the last thing he felt was the touch of her mouth as she kissed him goodbye. And the last thing he heard was her gruff, gentle voice saying, It will be all right, Tom. Wherever we go now, whatever becomes of us, we'll be together. And it will all be all right. Chapter 53 The Afterglow when they came for Inoni, it was still dark, and the breeze that blew in through the small window of the room where they'd been holding her smelled of ash. Faint earth tremors shivered the floor. She had been feeling them all night in her sleep. Her dreams had been filled with the crash of falling masonry echoing across the valley from Batmungompa. She washed her aching face in cold water and said her prayers, assuming they were taking her to be killed but when they led her down the stairs, she found Sub-General Tien waiting for her. He looked weary and slightly dazed, and his uniform was streaked with dirt. Naga is dead, he said. Inoni saw him staring at her broken nose and the bruises that had spread around her eyes. If Naga was dead, then Tien was the most senior officer in Batmungompa, she thought. He would try to seize power for himself, 
and he would not want her around to remind people of the man he was replacing. Come with me, please, he said. She followed him outside, onto a balcony where the cold wind tugged at her clothes. The southern sky was a wall of shadow, lit faintly from behind by the red flaring of the volcano. The voices of the nuns chanted steadily somewhere inside the building, the chant rising in volume for a while each time the ground shook. In the courtyard below the balcony, Inoni saw hundreds of faces looking up expectantly. Green storm soldiers and aviators, refugees from Tianjin. She felt nervous in front of such an audience, but not afraid of dying. She knew that poor Naga would be waiting for her in heaven, and her mother and father too, and her brother Eno, all those whom she had loved and lost, who had gone ahead of her. What do you make of it? asked Tien. He was looking upward too and she realized that it was not at her the people in the courtyard were staring, but at something above her head, above the roofs of the nunnery, above the mountains. Across the few patches of the sky that were still clear, hundreds of shooting stars were streaking, white and green and icy blue. What do you make of it? asked Tien again. He wanted her scientific opinion, Inoni realized. She licked her lips, which had grown very dry. I would say that something, some things are falling into the upper atmosphere. More weapons? Tien sounded very scared. Inoni watched for a moment, thinking. No, no, I think it's a good thing. I think something big has exploded in orbit, and those stars are some of the fragments burning up. The city's weapon? asked Tien. You think it is destroyed? It was not theirs, Inoni said. She was about to explain her theory about the stalker Fang and tell him that Shrike must have found the ground station and destroyed it, but it would be better kept a secret. If the cities learned who had turned Odin on them, it would lead to more fighting. It was all an accident, she said. Some old orbital gone mad. Let's pray it's over. Tien nodded and reached for his sword. She had told him what he wanted to know, thought Inoni, and now she was no more use to him. She could not help squeezing her bruised eyes shut. She heard the ringing rasp of the long blade sliding from its scabbard. She heard the chink of metal against stone. She opened one eye, then the other. Tien was kneeling in front of her, laying his sword on the pavement at her feet. Down in the courtyard, everyone else was kneeling too. Soldiers bowed their heads, saluting her, fist to palm. What are they doing? she asked, bewildered. What are you doing? Our armies are smashed, said Tien. The barbarians' cities are broken. The world is in turmoil. We need someone to lead us down new roads. I'm not the man for that. He rose and took Inoni by the arm, bringing her gently to the front of the balcony so that all the people waiting below could see their new leader. The engines of the air yacht failed a few miles from Batman Gompa, and Fishcake abandoned her there and set off walking, leaving Pennyroyal behind. 
Pennyroyal spent a while trying to restart the yacht, but Ash had clogged its air intakes, and it would not work. Reluctantly, finding his way by the light of the meteor showers streaking across the northern sky, he set off on foot through the ash drifts to the nearest Greenstorm base. There he attempted to surrender, but the storm were in such a state of confusion that nobody wanted to be saddled with a towny prisoner. At least send ships to Edenitess, he begged. My friends may still be there. It was the ground station. The stalker Fang was controlling the weapon from there. No one was controlling the weapon, said the base commander, waving a communique she'd just received from Batmungompa. Naga's widow says that one of the ancient's orbital devices malfunctioned and destroyed targets at random. But you are free to go, Professor. It was months before Penny Royal found his way back to Murnau. He used the time well, making use of the long waits at provincial air harbours and caravanserais to write his greatest work, Ignorant Armies. It was surprisingly truthful by Penny Royal's standards. He confessed all his previous lies in Chapter 1 and kept as close as he could to the facts when he described what he had seen and done at Edene Tess. But when he finally reached the hunting ground, he found himself in a world that was changing quickly. The predators were growing so savage and the prey so scarce that even the staunchest of municipal Darwinists were starting to wonder how much longer the system could keep going. People were looking for new ways to live, and Murnau had shocked everyone by settling down on a hilltop west of the Rustwater and going static. Refugees from Zan Chan were moving there, helping the Murnauers lay out fields and plant crops. Old von Kobold had kept on a few of his harvester suburbs, and an air force, led by Orla Twombly, which whizzed around the margins of his pail of farmland and scared off any predator that came too close. Undaunted, Penny Royal went in search of his publishers, but Verderober and Spohr wouldn't touch his new book. After Spiney's expose, said those gentlemen, nobody would believe any more wild yarns from Nimrod Penny Royal, least of all them. Anyway, the Mossies were friendly now. Had he not heard about the treaty von Kobold had signed with the widow Naga? And incidentally, what had happened to the advance they'd paid him for his previous book? Penny Royal spent ten months in debtor's prison, boring his fellow inmates with endless stories of his wonderful adventures. When some of his old friends from Moons clubbed together and paid his debts, he slunk away to Peripatetiapolis, where one of his former girlfriends, Minty Bapsnack, still had a soft spot for him. He lived out his final years in her house, and they were not unhappy. But even Minty took his story with a pinch of salt, and she never lent him the money he needed to publish Ignorant Armies. Fishcake did not see the shooting stars. By the time the wreckage from Odin began to streak across the sky, he was beneath the lid of smoke from Zan Shan. He bypassed Batmungompa in the dark and walked on for days, up roads clogged with ash and refugees. He was the only person travelling toward the volcano, not away. The eastern flank of the mountain had been ripped open, and the people who had lived beneath it were fleeing in ragged columns, with tales of whole towns being buried, 
whole cities swept away. But the western slopes, though shaken and dusted with ash, had not suffered so badly. When Fishcake came over the ridge above the hermitage, he saw the little house, still standing, the cattle in their pasture eating bales of hay brought up from the lowlands, fresh prayer flags flapping on the shrine at the head of the pass. He shuffled toward the door on bare, bloody feet and collapsed on the step, where Satya found him next morning when she came out to milk the cow. In his frost-bitten hand, he was still clutching the little horse that his stalker had made for him. He would stay there with Satya for many years, growing into a strong, handsome young man of the mountain kingdoms. He would come to forget a lot of the awful things he had been through, but he never forgot what he had done at Edene Tess. That was his secret, and at first it made him feel strong and proud, because he'd carried out his promise to the gods and sent Hester Natsworthy and her husband to the sunless country. But later, when he was grown up and married, watching his own children play with Anna's little horse in the dust outside his foster mother's hermitage, he came to feel less certain about it. Those were the years when the widow Naga was pushing hard for peace, preaching her policy of forgiveness toward old enemies. Sometimes Fishcake wished he had shown a little more forgiveness himself, and let the Natsworthies aboard that sky yacht after all. But at least, he told himself, he hadn't killed Hester and Tom. He'd just taught them a lesson by abandoning them as they'd once abandoned him. They were tough and resourceful, and he was sure they had survived. Zagwa, 25th of April, 1027 T.E. Dear Angie, it's hard to believe that it's four whole months since we left you at that cluster in the Frost Barrens, and that it's nearly a year since New London was born. I wish Theo and I could be there with you to join in the birthday celebrations, but we shan't be ready to leave Zagwa for a few weeks yet. I hope trade is going well up there in the ice wastes, that you are selling lots of levitating armchairs to the people of the ice cities, and the Childermas engines are keeping you out of the jaws of predators. I'm writing this in the garden at Theo's parents' house, sitting on a lovely terrace overlooking the gorge in the afterglow of sunset. It's beautiful here, and Mr. and Mrs. Ngoni and Cayello and Miriam are all very sweet and welcoming, and seem to have gotten used to the idea that their Theo is going to marry a towny girl and live in the sky. The merchant man who brought us here put in at Airhaven on the way south for fuel and gas. When I dropped into the bank there, I found that, guess what, I'm rich. I had quite forgot the five thousand that Wolf Kobold had paid us for his trip to London. But there it all was, still safe in the Jenny Hanover's account. I felt a little bit guilty about keeping it, but I suppose we earned it fairly. After all, we took Wolf to London as he asked, and it's no fault of ours he tried to eat it. Anyway, I have spent some of the money already on an airship of my own, and she is being overhauled at Zagwa Harbour as I write. She's a converted Achebe 1000, and we plan to call her Jenny Hanover too. So when we come home, we shall be traders in our own right. Ngoni and Natsworthy of New London, purveyors of maglev furniture to the gentry. Trade is opening up again with the east now that the green storm has gone, and the new league has made peace with the cities. We may even cross the ocean to America, 
and see my old friends and my old home at Anchorage in Vineland, and tell them about everything that's happened, and, of course, we shall often come to Zagwa. Theo had a letter back from the widow Naga, which was very nice of her when you consider that she's got the whole of the new anti-traction league to run, and half the mountain kingdoms still knee-deep in ash. She told him that Mum and Mr. Shrike reached Batman Gompa with her on the evening before Zahn Shan got zapped, and they rescued Daddy and flew off in the Jenny Hanover. She doesn't seem to know where they went, or why, but the burnt-out wreck of a ship with Jeune Caro pods was found later at a valley in the Erdene Shan. She says that if I want to, I could go there and pay my respects in the place where they died. It's thoughtful of her, but I don't want to go. I feel certain Dad and Mum are dead, but even if that is the Jenny's wreck at Erdene Shan, that's not where they are. They've gone. Nobody knows where, and no one ever will. But I like to think that they've taken the bird roads, west of the sun, beyond the moon, flying off together into wild skies and wonderful adventures. Sometimes, without quite meaning to, I find myself looking up, as if there's still a part of me that expects to see the Jenny Hanover come out from behind a cloud or the shoulder of a mountain, bringing them home. And now the light has gone, and the moon is rising, and here comes Theo, running down the stairs from the house to tell me that the evening meal is ready. So I will close now, and hope this finds you soon. With love to all of London, Wren. Chapter 54 Shrike in the World to Come Shrike had arrived too late. He ran like a ghost through the mountains, and came to Edenites just before dawn, when the sky above the lake was scratched with the trails of shooting stars. The house was a ruin by then, grey ash, charred beams, a few trickles of white smoke still drifting across the garden. In a chamber full of carbonized machinery, he found the remains of the stalker Fang, and knelt beside her. The gym-crack engineer-built part of her brain had stopped working, but he sensed faint electrical flutterings fading in the other, older part. He unplugged one of the wires from his skull and fitted it into a port on hers. Her memories whispered to him, and his mind drank them. The sun rose. Shrike went back out into the garden, and in the gathering light he saw Tom and Hester waiting for him by the fountain. He had not noticed them in the dark, for they were as cold as the stones they lay upon. Shrike went down on his knees beside them, and gently drew out the knife that Hester had driven through her own heart. At first he thought that if he were quick he could still carry her to Batmungompa and make Inoni Zero resurrect her, but when he started to lift her he found that she had clutched Tom's hand as she died, and she was still clinging tightly to it. If stalkers could cry, he would have cried then, for he knew all at once that this was the right end for her, and that she would not want him to take her from this quiet valley or from the once-born she had loved. So he lifted them together and carried them away from the house. As he crossed the causeway, the slack weight of their bodies shook a faint memory loose in him. He checked to see if it was one of those he had just absorbed from Anna Fang, but it was his own. 
Long ago, before he was a stalker, he had had children, and when they were sleepy and he had carried them to their beds, they had lain just as limp and heavy in his arms as Tom and Hester lay now. The memory was a fragment, a gift, a down payment on that knowledge of his past that Inoni Zero had promised would come to him when he died. But that would not be for a long time. He had been made to last. He found a place at the head of the valley where a river tumbled down in white cataracts past a rocky outcrop, where a stunted oak tree grew. It reminded him of things Hester had told him about the lost island of her childhood. There he laid her down with Tom, side by side, still holding hands, their faces almost touching. Unsheathing his claws for the last time, he cut away their soggy clothes, the belts and boots they would no longer need. There was a shallow cave at the foot of the rocks nearby, and he went and sat down in it, watching and waiting wondering what he would find to do in a world that no longer held Hester. That evening, airships buzzed down to land at the ruin on the lake. After a while, they went away again. Days flew over the valley of Edenites. In the fitful sunlight, Tom and Hester began to swell and darken beneath their shroud of flies. Worms and beetles fed on them, and birds flew down to take their eyes and tongues. Soon their smell attracted small mammals who had been going hungry in that cheerless summer. Shrike did not move. He shut down his systems one by one until only his eyes and his mind were awake. He watched the graceful architecture of Tom's and Hester's skeletons emerge, their bare skulls leaning together like two eggs in a nest of wet hair. Winter heaped snow over them. The rains of spring washed them clean. Next summer's grass grew thick and green beneath them, and an oak sapling sprouted in the white basket of Hester's ribs. Shrike watched it all while the years fell past him, green and white, green and white, the small bones of their hands and feet scattered into the grass like dice. Larger ones were tumbled and gnawed by foxes. They turned grey and crumbly, and it became hard to tell whose had been whose. The oak sapling grew into a tree, spread out a canopy that blushed green in summer and threw dancing shadows over Shrike, shed acorns that became new saplings, grew old, trailed beards of lichen, died and fell and rotted, giving up its goodness to the roots of younger trees that were spreading down the hillside to the lake. Shrike sank deeper into his fugue. Stars blurred over him, seasons blinked at him, the trees became a wood, bare branches breathed in, exhaled green leaves, turned golden, bare, breathed in. At last, a human figure began to flash in front of him, stooping again and again to place something around his neck. With a deep effort, he began to rouse himself, the flicker of day and night becoming less frantic as the whirl of seasons and centuries slowed. A summer morning, green light shining through the leaves of an ancient oak wood, garlands of flowers decked Shrike's torso, and the remnants of older garlands lay dried and crumbling in his mossy lap. His shoulders were shaggy with ferns, a bird had nested in the crook of his arm, 
Of Tom and Hester, nothing remained but a little dust blowing between the gnarled roots of the trees. Goats were moving through the wood. The bells on their necks chimed softly. A small, once-born boy came and stood looking at Shrike, and was joined by a girl still smaller. They had ochre skin, brown eyes, dusty black hair. Hello, said Shrike. His voice was rustier and more screechy than ever. The boy fled, but the girl stayed, speaking to him in a language which he did not know. After a while she went and picked some small blue flowers among the oak trees and made a crown for him. Her brother came back, cautious, wide-eyed. The little girl brought some fat and rubbed it into Shrike's joints. He moved. He stood up. Gravel and owl pellets cascaded off him. He shook himself free of cobwebs and birds' nests and moss. The girl took his hand, and her brother led them down the valley amid a bleating, chiming crowd of goats. They stopped at a village where adult once-born came to stare at Shrike and poke him with sticks and the handles of simple farm tools. Listening to their excited chatter, he started to decipher their language. They'd thought him nothing but an old statue sitting there in his cave. They had hung flowers about his neck for luck each summer when they brought their goats up to the high pastures. They had been doing it since their mother's mother's time. Down a track to a paved road, riding on a cart now, the children beside him. The sun was redder than Shrike recalled, the air clearer, the mountain climate kinder. A town lay cupped in a wooded vale. Shrike wondered if his new friends realized that its ancient metal walls were made from the tracks of a mobile city, and that some of its round, rust-brown watchtowers had once been wheels. They seemed simple people, and he imagined that their society had no machines at all, but as they brought him through the town gates, he saw delicate airborne ships of wood and glass rising like dragonflies from tall stone mooring towers. Silvery discs, like misty mirrors, swiveled and pivoted on their undersides, and the air beneath them rippled like a heat haze. They took him to a meeting place, a big hall in the city's heart. People crowded around him to ask questions. What kind of being was he? How long had he been asleep? Was he one of the machine men out of the old stories? Shrike had no answers. He asked questions of his own. He asked if there were any places in the world where cities still moved and hunted and ate each other. The once-born laughed. Of course there weren't. Cities only moved in fairy tales. Who would want to live in a moving city? It was a mad idea. What are you for? asked one boy at last, pushing to the front of the crowd. Shrike looked down at him. He pondered a while, thinking of something Dr. Popjoy had told Anna. I am a remembering machine, he said. What do you remember? I remember the age of the Traction Cities. I remember London and Archangel, Thaddeus Valentine and Anna Fang. I remember Hester and Tom. His listeners looked blank. Someone said, Who were they? They lived long ago. It seems only yesterday to me. The little girl who'd found Shrike looked up at him and said, Tell us. 
Around her, people smiled and nodded, settling down cross-legged, waiting to see what stories he had brought for them out of the lost past. They liked stories. Shrike felt for a moment almost afraid. He didn't know how to begin. He sat down on the chair they brought for him. He took the little girl on his lap. He watched dust motes dancing in the ancient sunlight that poured like honey through the hall's long windows. And then he turned his face toward the expectant faces of the once-born and began. It was a dark, blustery afternoon in spring, he said, and the city of London was chasing a small mining town across the dried-up bed of the old North Sea. This is Barnaby Edwards. We hope that you have enjoyed this production of A Darkling Plane, Book 4 of Mortal Engines by Philip Reeve. This audiobook was produced by Dion Audio and directed by Amy Matheson. Executive producer, Paul R. Gagney. Print edition published by Scholastic Inc. by arrangement with Scholastic Children's Books, an imprint of Scholastic Limited, London. Text copyright 2006 by Philip Reeve. Production copyright 2018 by Scholastic Inc. All rights reserved. Look for other exciting titles in the Mortal Engines and Fever Crumb series by Philip Reeve from Scholastic Audio. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.